Greetings and good afternoon, everyone. This is Cheryl, and I'm so pleased to be here to welcome you to Tara and Rama's Saturday afternoon program, The True Planetary and Galactic History Herstory and True History Herstory of Nasara. Infinite blessings to us all and a very happy Thanksgiving next week. We're going to celebrate tonight, this afternoon, by doing some abundance work as well as some thanksgiving and gratitude work. So go into your higher self state, go into your heart center at this time, as we call forth that full emergence with our soul, with our higher self, with our monad, with our mighty I am presence, and the full integration of each level, the maximum that we can receive, as well as all of our multidimensional being through to our God presence and Goddess presence. See yourself in your pillar of light, filled with an exquisite golden frequency that brings in both eternal peace and infinite abundance. And all of the golden colors of the autumn season. See, sense it, feel it in through and around you as it anchors your pillar directly from source into the heart of Mother Earth. Give gratitude to each, your source and your Earth Mother, as they send you love and nurturance and nourishment and they send their gratitude to you for being on the planet at this time as well. We invite in everyone on the planet to do this ascension work with us. As we now affirm, please repeat after me, I am my I am presence. As my I am presence, I am one with the I am presence of all humanity. I am one with every man, woman, and child. I am one with all my family members and loved ones. I am one with all that is. Take a nice deep breath and feel the expansiveness of that oneness. As we connect heart to heart, high heart to high heart, cosmic heart to cosmic heart, with every man, woman, and child, with every sentient being on the planet, and directly to Mother Earth and to our Mother, Father, God. We give thanks for this opportunity to serve here at this time. As we see everyone joining us in their golden pillar of light. We give thanks for this opportunity to be the bridge between heaven and earth. The anchor for the new golden age. And the open door that no one can shut. And so for one and all, we invite in all soul extensions, planetary and galactic, 
to receive the benefits of all that we receive. All of our ancestors, all of our genetic lineage or ancestral lineage, all the generations past, all the generations forward, our spiritual lineage, our soul families and soul pods. We welcome for everyone, all of our guides and teachers, our healing teams, our beloved guardian angel, our beloved twin flame, our ascension council, our mission council, all of the teams that we work with, all of the kingdoms, the plant kingdom, the tree kingdom, the mineral kingdom, the animal kingdom, the diva kingdom, the elemental kingdom, the fairy kingdom, all of the kingdoms of nature. The whales, the dolphins, the unicorns, and all magical kingdoms. We welcome all the realms of the angels, from the angels and archangels through to the cherubim and seraphim and all angelic healers and healing teams. We welcome for one and all all the Ascended Masters, the Brotherhood of Light, the Sisterhood of the Rays and Rose, the Order of Melchizedek, the Radiant Ones, all of the Enlightened Masters, all Divine Mother Emissaries, Divine Father Emissaries, all of the Planetary and Cosmic Hierarchy of Light, <clears throat> all Ascended Master Healers and Healing Teams. We welcome all of our friends in the Galactic Federation of Light, and we welcome all those that we work most closely with, from Arcturus, from Pleiades, from Sirius, from Andromeda, from Chiron, and from Venus, and all cosmic, galactic, universal healers that can be of service. We welcome the assistance of the entire company of heaven, asking our Mother, Father, God to overlight all that we do. And we ask that this be magnified, 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 individually and collectively. The maximum that each being can receive in divine order 10 billion times, 10 billion fold. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We call forth all those in our circle of support from the very first name that created it. To every man, woman, and child, every family member and loved one, every pet, every animal, we welcome in the circle everything that we've placed in the circle, every life condition, every group, every organization, every corporation and business, every institution, every aspect of family life every aspect of government, the leaders of every nation, every nation, every military, every executive office within each and every government, each and every legislative person in each and every government, each and every judge and judicial proceeding, and jury, every aspect of the judiciary of every nation, 
including all of our, all decisions made for each and every being individually and collectively. All the weather patterns, all the storms, all the droughts, all the earthquakes, all the fires. Every aspect of climate change. Every aspect of any food shortages or conflicts or violence or wars across the planet. All of that in our circle. The situations of every man, woman, and child. Again, for example, homelessness and every other affliction, starvation, and again, all individual violence as we call forth unity consciousness for this entire planet, as we call forth every single gift of the heaven on earth, and we hold things in divine perfection, we hold things, we see things in divine order, individually and collectively for all. And we give thanks for this. And we call in all the rays, all the flames, all the universal laws and ascension waves. And with every energy and frequency, every prayer and evocation, every blessing, every grace, every dispensation, every activation, we ask that it be received individually and collectively through every cell, chakra, meridian, layer of our auric field, multidimensionally. On a conscious, subconscious, superconscious level. And we ask that everyone and everything easily and effortlessly digest and assimilate, ground and anchor, integrate and embody these frequencies these gifts, these dispensations with the greatest of ease and grace and joy and peace and bliss and ecstasy, serenity and tranquility without resistance on any level, without discomfort on any level, without fear on any level in love and light and laughter. We call forth all of the energies of this month, be it the 11-11 portal, be it Veterans Day, be it uh, all of our birthdays, (laughs) Thanksgiving, all of the eclipse energy and all that's that's coming up uh, uh, around the whole holiday season. We call forth all the energy that people have invested in, including into the um, election here in the U.S. We call forth all of this month's energy into our collective cup of consciousness to truly transform the planet, to truly integrate divine consciousness into every mind, body, soul, and being, to elevate everyone into their Christ itself, to know their divinity, to know who they are and what they came here to do, and to be grateful, to be thankful for all that they have and all that they are receiving, to open everyone's eyes to the gifts of divine grace and unity consciousness and love 
and reverence for all life. And we ask Gaia to receive the same through her chakras and meridians and layers of her work field multidimensionally. Through her ley lines and song lines, through the grid system, the love grids, the light grids, the unity grids, all of the multidimensional grid system. Through every portal and vortex and monument and sacred site, every place of power, every stargate, every city of light. As we continue up this amazing spiral of evolution, as Gaia takes her rightful place as Freedom Star. Again, we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We ask our mighty I am presence to take full and complete command of our being. And we say, mighty I am presence, charge me full to overflowing forevermore with inexhaustible strength and energy, indestructible health, Invincible protection, irresistible divine love, inescapable prosperity, ascended master consciousness, illumination, freedom, and use of thy full power instantly and eternally manifest. So be it, and so it is, and we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath. We call in our abundance. With that golden flame of abundance that is the flame of eternal peace, the energy that filled our pillars and we see it in through and around us, in through and around the planet to every person, every aspect of life. As we ask it to magnify, magnify, magnify in divine order for each being individually and collectively. Through the power of God, God is blazing in my heart and the hearts of all humanity. I joyously receive and accept the gift of God's golden flame of eternal peace and infinite abundance. On the wings of this divine light, I ascend further into into the causal body of God. From this realm of divine consciousness, I have the clear inner knowing that God my supply. I relinquish now, in the name of God, God as I am, all of the power I have ever given to lack and limitation. Through any of my thoughts, my words, actions, and feelings, in any time frame or dimension, both known and unknown, I relinquish now in the name of God, Goddess, I am all of the beliefs I ever have ever had that were based in poverty consciousness. From this moment forward. 
I consecrate and dedicate my very life to be the open door through which the new frequencies of the golden flame of eternal peace and infinite abundance will now flow to bless me, my family, friends, co-workers, and all humanity. As I breathe, think, speak, feel, and act, the presence of God Goddess within me is perpetually expanding the golden light of eternal peace and infinite abundance to all life evolving on earth. And so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Take a nice deep breath. And affirm with me now, with one heart, one voice, one being, one presence, we say, I am reclaiming the infinite flow of God's abundance. And the new earth is becoming a tangible reality in my life. I now accept God's abundance as my divine birthright. It is now time for me to manifest my financial freedom and the God-Goddess supply of all good things. This will fulfill the necessary sustenance and support I need to fulfill my divine plan. As I assimilate this truth, the divine intelligence blazing in my heart exposes the fact that all of the beliefs I have ever had that were based in poverty, lack, and limitation were merely illusions. The supply of all good things, financial freedom, opulence, and abundance are God's gift to me. And to all of the sons and daughters of God Goddess. Prosperity consciousness floods into my mind and heart. And I see new innovative ways to create prosperity in my life. Through my I am presence, I accept and expect the infinite flow of God's abundance in my life now and forever. I know the ebb and flow the in-breath and out-breath of my life force is a universal law. So in return for God's gift of abundance, I willingly and joyously agree to share my abundance with those who are striving to co-create the new earth. This is my gift of love that I am giving back to God, Goddess, in appreciation for my gift of life. As I give, so shall I receive. I am at peace with the concept of sharing my money and my abundance with others, knowing full well that God's abundance is infinite. 
The fear of scarcity for my human ego no longer manipulates me. My I am presence is in control, and I know that by continually sharing my money and my gifts of abundance with those who are working to fulfill the divine plan, I open the door for a perpetual flow of abundance into my own life. This is a universal law of life. It is the law of the circle. Take a nice deep breath, and so it is. Continuing with the golden flame. The golden flame of eternal peace and God's abundance is now blazing through every particle of life. As it bathes the physical, etheric, mental, and emotional strata of this earth. This activity is forming a powerful catalyst for God, Goddess's abundance, which is empowering, awakening humanity to joyfully accept our financial freedom. With the assistance of the entire company of heaven, I now seal and permanently sustain this activity of light. As I breathe in deeply, I expand and expand the divinity within my own heart flame. And the divinity within the heart flames of every man, woman, and child. Together we create a mighty chalice of light that cradles the sweet earth in all her life. Now is one breath, one voice, one heartbeat, one energy, vibration, and consciousness of pure divine love, I affirm. I am open and receptive to God's abundance. And I joyously receive and freely give my wealth. I am therefore eternally blessed with financial freedom, opulence, abundance, and the God-Goddess supply of all good things. Through my newfound prosperity consciousness, all of the financial sustenance I need to fulfill my divine plan is now flowing into my life daily and hourly. I am the divine image of God manifesting infinite abundance in my being and world and for the children of God everywhere, everyone, in God's supreme name forever. Wherever I am, my very presence in the universe is a constant outpouring and release of God's life and light, God's transfiguring divine love, God's eternal peace and abundance, God's truth and freedom to all I contact every day in every way. I so decree it and accept it done through the power of God, God as I am. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. Beloved presence of God, God is pulsating in my heart. 
and in the hearts of all humanity. Expand, expand, expand in the fullness of your divine powers. Raise me and every human being up into the into our full divine potential. Blaze the golden flame of God's abundance and eternal peace through my heart center until this heart flame is visible to the sight of everyone. Enfold all life within the radiance of this divine gift. May all humanity hear and respond to the celestial command for the golden light of eternal peace and abundance to manifest now on earth. Through the presence of God, God as I am, I expand and externalize God's eternal peace and abundance with every breath I take. Through the presence of God, Goddess, I am, I receive and externalize my financial freedom and the golden light of God's abundance filling my every need. Through the presence of God, Goddess, I am, I freely share my abundance with humanity thus co-creating the new earth and opening the door for the flow of God's abundance into my life. Through the presence of God, Goddess I am, I perceive and externalize every minute the patterns of perfection for the new earth now made manifest in the physical plane. Through the presence of God, Goddess I am, I create and externalize every minute an aura of divine light, which acts as a natural conductor of God's will to all life wherever I am. I accept and know that through the presence of God, God as I am, pulsating in every heart, this glorious activity of light is expanding in power and might daily and hourly, with every breath I take. Through the grace of God, Goddess, it is victoriously accomplished. The light of God, Goddess, is always victorious, and I am that light. The light of God, Goddess, is always victorious, and I am that light. The light of God, Goddess, is always victorious, and I am that light. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And take a nice deep breath. We call forth Sandal, Bon, and Gaia to assist us to anchor these gifts and these dispensations as we give thanks. We give thanks to our Mother, Father, God. Beloved Mother, Father, God, from your glorious heart I came into being and into your loving heart one day. When my service here on earth is through, I shall return. I thank you for the privilege of having life and having a physical embodiment during this sacred time when the permanent golden age of spiritual freedom is being established on earth. 
I thank you for the gift of transmutation through the power of the violet flame. This amazing gift through which all that is not of the light that I myself or others have created consciously or unconsciously will be totally purified and returned to light. I thank you for sustaining through the legions of the ascension flame the open door to which this sweet earth and all life evolving upon her shall return home. To this end, I now individually and collectively as a surrogate on behalf of all humanity offer my energies and my individual life stream as a holy grail through which the light of creation will flow to fulfill the immaculate concept of the divine plan for this blessed planet. Assist me, beloved Mother, Father, God, to continually harmonize my outer self, my physical, etheric, mental, and emotional bodies through the grace of transfiguring divine love invest me with the power to magnetize and radiate the presence of divinity and the patterns of perfection for the new earth with every thought, word, action, and feeling I express from this moment forth. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We now give thanks to the angel of restoration and ask her to continue to work with us throughout the rest of the year and beyond. Mighty angel of restoration, in grateful humility, I acknowledge your presence in the universe and the tremendous service you are rendering to the planet Earth and her evolution. I thank you for continually sustaining a canopy of light over Washington, D.C. And I offer you now my energy and the good of my causal body to help you expand and sustain this canopy of light over the foci of government for all the countries in this world. I ask you to seal all governments on this planet within a constant outpouring of the crystal flame of restoration until all life is purified, restored, and manifesting God's plan for divine government on earth. I consecrate and dedicate my vehicles to be the open door through which the purifying process of the sacred fire will flow to restore all into divine perfection. So be it, and so it is. And we give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We're going to seal this work with some affirmations of gratitude and thanksgiving. I invite you 
to go ahead and to go ahead and repeat them after me <clears throat> in divine order for your being. I express gratitude and thanksgiving often. And I always look for things to be thankful for. I am glad to be alive and so grateful for the good that has come to me. I always thank God for my bountiful blessings. I am thankful for I know that I am cared for and provided for. And I joyfully look forward to the future. I am filled with gratitude for the many blessings I have in my life. My heart sings songs of praise and thanksgiving. I am grateful for the moment and focus on living in the divine present. I count my blessing and I am amazed at the abundance of good that exists in my life. I now accept my good with grace and gratitude. My heart is filled with gratitude and peace. As I extend gratitude, it attracts only the good into my life. I am thankful for my presence on this planet and the divine mission I am here to serve. And so it is. Again, we ask that this be sealed by the entire company of heaven. That Mother, Father, God magnify all that we've received here individually and collectively for every man, woman, and child on the planet. We ask that this be sealed, maintained, and sustained in divine order as we ask for a continuous downpouring of divine love and light, of all the rays, flames, universal laws, and ascension waves, as we strive every day to manifest heaven on earth in all of its glory. We give thanks for this opportunity to serve. We give thanks to every man, woman, and child for being here with us at this time. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. We give thanks for this. And so, my friends, hold that Thanksgiving for this week ahead. Allow your heart to overflow with love and gratitude. 
no matter what takes place. I love and honor you all. I thank you, thank you, thank you for your divine service and your participation in these prayers and invocations on the Saturday calls. And I invite you to to do some more divine service work every Sunday and Monday evening for the Ascension Meditation and Activation Call. Where we do our prayers and our, our invocations, our visualizations, our meditations. Again, to anchor heaven on earth and the new golden age. So please join us. Again, we won't be doing Christmas Day because that falls on a Sunday, but every Sunday and Monday we will, other than that. Every Sunday and Monday at how we begin at 8.45 p.m. Eastern Time, 5.45 p.m. Pacific Time. We have about 25 minutes of greeting, so then Tar and Rama come in and give us a brief update. 9.30 Eastern, 6.30 Pacific Time, we begin our work in earnest of activating the ascension energies and and bringing heaven to earth. It's a teleconference call, so if you please take down the number if you don't have it. uh, The main number is area code 425-436-6260. Area code 425-436-6260. The access code is 946. 7441 pound 946 7441 pound Again we love and honor and bless you all have a glorious Thanksgiving have a beautiful beautiful week I know it's pretty frigid here in Metro Detroit Michigan and uh I hope it's um not too snowy where you are So with love and gratitude we want to thank also Tarn Rama for their service, and I want to thank Rainbird for her service as well as I pass this beautiful golden talking stick. So activate it with the gold. It's, it's, you might be able to see some of the rainbow colors in it, but it is so bright, so glorious, so magnificent. And again, it holds every aspect of divine energy we could ever need or desire to manifest. With that, I'm going to pass the talking stick to you, to you, Rainbird, with love and gratitude. Rainbird? Hopefully you guys hear me. Rain. Hi there. Rainbird. Anybody Rain. out there? Hi. <laughs> Hi, Cheryl. But Rainbird, where are you? She might have dropped. Oh, I'm here. I'm here. Oh, there you are. Okay. Hey. I'll leave it to you. Everybody is talking light as I pass this talking stick. Rainbird. Thank you, Carol. I'll take that talking stick and thank you for your divine service and thanks for that. I I went on the other side there for a minute. <laughs> so, I'm back. 
And I'm here to do the housekeeping as we are listening to supported radio program. It's all of us that make it happen. So um, this week we need, um, well, each week we need $300 for our, radio, our services with CBS Radio. And this week we need $600. So we're behind a week and need to catch up. And so here's how we make it happen. We go to into our heart space and see what's ours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. And for this program, you're looking for the um, menu on BBS Radio for our programs. And on um, Radio Station 2, uh, it's this program, The True History, Hershey, and the Sarah with uh, Tara and Rama, and, and our Galactic Origins. So that's... That icon, as you see, that listed at the 1.30 hour, as is your all Pacific time, that's at the 1.30 hour. You click on that icon there, and that'll take you directly to our account, where you can just make um, a donation in any amount, so using your bank card. So thank you for taking that action. And we have two other programs on, on Thursday and Friday on Radio Station 1 at the 6, six o'clock hour. You'll find those. And Thursday is the Night at the Roundtable with the panel. You can click on that icon that's there. And Friday is also at the 6 o'clock hour, and the hard news with Tyron Rama and that icon there will take it to our account. So that's how we do it. Thank you for keeping it on, keeping it on, and making it happen. This is how we gather each week, and we're so grateful to do that this way. And... There's lots of new people, too, all the time, and they can always just pitch in and see how that feels, pay it forward like that. So thank you. Thank you for taking the action. Thank you for all the ways you show up in your life. So we're also assisting Tara and Robin with their needs, and they're needing, um, well, they have two situations that are occurring as far as Unusual meeting a printer, which is $400 for the one that they picked out, and that also has to have shipping, so another 35 for that. And then Rama needs to win a coat, so another 35 for that. Or is he's having his coat cleaned? It's $20 to get it back from the cleaner, so um, not sure what it is. So it's $460 is what we're looking for for. Tar and Rama covered these expenses that are not the normal ones. And um, so so as we could pitch in and make that happen, we're grateful. Also, they need about $300 to cover their expenses for this week, gas and basics and cat litter and things like that. So that's that. And then with bills, we have... Uh, $100 in bills, $150. Um, I'll write it down. Um, but, yeah. So, there you go. That's what they're needing, all those things. Uh, so, if we can get that, make that happen, that'd be good. Um, and lots of gratitude for all of you that pitched in for the GoFundMe for Chris Banks, um, Tara's son, and he's able to pay his rent. So, we'll want to give you a Thank you for that and shout out. So, um, what else? I think that's it. 
So here's how we do it. We want to go to the web address to access Robert's PayPal account. So the web address is rainbowroundtable.net. And there on the home page, as you click on the menu grid, a list of everything that's on that site will drop down a different category. So the donate link is near the end of that list. Click on that, and that will take you to Robert's PayPal account or the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal account, I guess, is how it's listed as the commercial right there that works. Thank you for taking that action. Thank you for your generosity. If you'd like to access the friends option for paying with PayPal, you go to paypal.com and put in Rama's email there, and that connects you as a friend. And so that email to use, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999 at hotmail.com. <laughs> so if you do that, that takes you right to that account as well. And that puts in place a friend's option. So either way is perfect. We're grateful for all your contributions. And, yeah, that printer's a little high, so we're working on that printer and those little extra expenses and making sure that they still have money for food and gas and, and this $150 in bills. You know, it might be just 100 I think it's just a one bill. Anyway, <laughs> there you have it. We'll, we'll take it all. We're so grateful for all that Tara and Rama do, and we are grateful to be able to... Uh, support in this way for all that they do and connect us to the Faction 3 White Knights and all that's going on and we're all focused on what's happening with Ms. Sarah so we're bringing it forward now and so the work we do here is so important and so we have so much gratitude to each and every one of you. As you're sending something to uh, Rama, you want to let him know what you sent and when you sent it. That address, email address for Rama is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999 at Comcast.net. And then as you need it, the mailing address is as follows, Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, and that's Post Office Box 280, Post Office Box 280, in, that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, in the zip code there, 87567. So there you go. That's all the information, and so much gratitude for your contributions. And, and again, all the ways you show up, and happy birthday to Penny, our scribe, and to Marshall, as well, um, his birthday is also today, and uh, there you go. It's a good electric. <laughs> it's it's an electric serpent day, so we're celebrating that in the Maya calendar, and there's lots to celebrate. So let's hand this talking stick over to Tara and Rama. But first, I want to say thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart, long life, no evil, and here comes this talking stick. <laughs> Still got those turkey feathers all over it. It's that, it's that gratitude. It's a gratitude stick. And uh, it's also got quite a quad, quite the quaddle. And what 
whatever Cheryl just put on it. <laughs> it's all there. I'm sure it's all the gemstones and the rays and the rainbow colors and everything good. So greetings, Tara and Rama. Here comes the stocking stick. Greetings. Greetings, everyone. Thank you, everyone, for being here. Fantastical. Um, there's a lot going on, as we all notice, and uh, keeping track of everything can scramble your brain, just so you know, so that you let that part go. Uh, I would just say that... Uh, where we're going is where the Faction Three White Knights have been continuously reporting that we have already won, right, Rama? Yes. Okay, so I'm casting the talking stick to you. You can take it from there. What you want to say about today? Um, today on uh, Counterspin, um, I heard Greg Pallast and um, Nomi Prince talking about Mr. Lula and how Mr. Lula is uh, going to hold Mr. Bolsonaro accountable for crimes against humanity and war crimes in Brazil. And this has to do with the destruction of the rainforests and all the indigenous people that he has kind of orchestrated to have them killed, and I'm not making any judgments. It's up to great goddess of it is, and um, they were talking about the ins and outs of the financial corruption that is so prevalent there in Brazil and how the United States has got its fingers in it and it's getting turned around by Mr. Lula right now. Right? Yeah, I would say Bolsonaro is Donald Trump's twin. Yeah. In the behavior patterns. <laughs> and... This is stuff that won't be reported on any of the major networks, you know, and Counterspin is kind of way out there in left field as well. As well. And I just got to say, Blaze the Violet Fire, as folks are coming forward and sharing their news. And... Um, in terms of the uh, story that's going around today, um, I got a text from the King of Swords that said, you know, try, uh, Mr. President Joe Biden essentially pardoned Mohammed Ben Salvin for the killing of Mr. Khashoggi and, uh, Jamal Khashoggi. Yes. And that 
doesn't that doesn't pass muster. No, these are war crimes and crimes against humanity as well. They go out and behind the scenes with the Democrats and the Republicans and what side of the coin, you know, and it's time for a different story. That's what's unfolding. And we all know that I bring it up once again, Joe Biden and the Bush Clinton crime family did 9-11. And, um, blaze the violent fire. I passed the talking stick. And Joe Biden lied about that. He did. And yeah, Joe Biden ordered 9-11. Yes. He did. And it goes all the way up to the Vatican because the Supreme Court is owned by the Vatican. And every day I hear about this in various radio stations that cardinals and bishops are being called on the carpet for... Rape, murder, torture, abuse, all the boarding houses, both in this country and Canada, for what the Vatican did to the indigenous people of Turtle Island. In the name of, I just got to say, Admiral Sananda Kumara does not condone the form of Christianity that uh, is being talked about at this time on the planet. <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but I don't know where to go with it except to cry oceans of tears. And um, we got enough samsara. I passed the talking stick. Okay. Um, so we're going to play a couple of things. Um, uh, before we play this one, it's called The Most Powerful Astrological Transits of 2023, 2024, and 2025. And this is on YouTube, and this is by a lady who is friends with Mr. Kepacha. Um, let me find her name here. Jocelyn Starfeather. And if you go and type into YouTube, Jocelyn Starfeather, the most powerful and important Astrological Transits of 2023, 2024, and 2025, you will see it. Sacred Planet. Oh. That sounds good, Rama. Sometimes economic issues. Oops. Okay. Well, we're going to quickly play. We started a little bit with John Nichols, but we're going to go from there because we just want to get him in and then uh, Richard Wolf, and then we'll commence with this one and then we'll have a meditation. So let's keep it all 
happening. Here we go. Cinema sometimes on climate and in choice and other issues. Uh, you you can you can build a, a workable coalition there, and so it's it's a subtlety. But having one more seat is actually exponentially more important than just having that additional seat. And then the final thing I will throw in the mix here is that while Republicans are likely to get the House, Democrats being in control of the Senate means that they can fill judicial vacancies. For instance, if an opening comes on the Supreme Court, they can move there. They can also fill cabinet appointments, ambassadorships, all sorts of key positions, regulatory commissions, etc. And so there's a lot of power that comes from clear control of the U.S. Senate. And so, frankly, it's a huge victory for the Democrats. Now, let's talk about the House. Uh, Democrats have retained, had the House for two years um, and seem to have lost it. Uh, there was a minute there, uh, maybe late last week, when there was a slim possibility some races would go the Democrats' way. In fact, a lot of the races that the Democrats are losing are in New York and California, these big Democratic states. Perhaps these are rural areas, I think, where uh, Democrats may not have put as much um, effort into campaigning. But had they maybe realized how close the fight was, uh, things might have turned out a little bit differently for the House? Absolutely. Let's take a couple of things and put them in perspective here. First and foremost, if the Republicans take the House, which I always thought was likely, um, they will do so by maybe three or four seats. Could even be less than that. These close races are going to play out for quite a while. They're being called in some cases, but there will still, in, in many cases, there will be recounts, which are quite legitimate, reviews of the results. And, and so we, we could end up with a situation where the Republican majority is, you know, one, two, three, maybe four seats. It's probably not going to be much more than that. And so then you have to look seriously at where the loss occurred. You're right that it's New York and California. Those are key places. But I can also point to uh, particularly rural districts in Texas and Wisconsin, where Democratic candidates who did not have significant support from D.C. Democrats, from the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, from key political action committees, ended up getting incredibly strong votes, getting 48, 49 percent of the vote. And so... In those cases, as well as some of the cases in California and New York, it's quite clear the Democrats, had they put their resources in the right places, might well have been able to retain the House. And and I think they were they were severely weakened by a general assumption that it wasn't possible. Right? They there was just this sense of well, you know, it's, it's so overwhelming. We better save our incumbents. You know, fight hard for the the races that look easily winnable. And so they put their resources there, but the problem is that in some cases they overinvested in races that they were going to win and they underinvested. And I hate to talk about this all in money terms because there's so much more to politics, but underinvested, especially in rural districts. And I, I just can't begin to tell you, Sonali, how, how frustrated people are out in these rural and small city areas where they've maintained the Democratic Party, where they have fought hard to maintain and, and keep a multiracial, multi-ethnic party, because remember, many rural areas now have, you know, substantial uh, indigenous population, substantial black population, substantial uh, Latinx population, and the Democratic Party just didn't realize its potential in some of these areas. No. The last thing I mentioned, oh, go ahead. No, no, uh, finish your thought. One more race. 
In western Wisconsin, in my home state, uh, there's a district on the Mississippi River that has voted Democratic in six of the last eight presidential elections. It had a Democratic congressman until this year. And you know, national Democrats pulled their money out of the race because they thought that their candidate couldn't win. Well, their candidate got more than 48% of the vote. He came oh. within his favor of winning. Wow. If the resources had been there, that would have been one more seat. And if Congress comes down to one seat or two seats, uh, you just got to look at those places and ask, you know, well, how did they miscalculate so badly? And John, one of the things that comes uh, that, that jumps out at me is that while Democrats may have miscalculated because the punditry pointed to doom and gloom, the flip side of that is that the doom and gloom scenarios did generate enough panic among voters to show up. Yeah. Midterm elections are historically low voter turnout elections, but we didn't see that happen. I think it wasn't as high as 2022 or 2018, but we may, you know, we're still tallying votes. I think it's still, it might still be up in the air whether uh, 2018 or 2022 midterms had a higher turnout, but voters panicked. <laughs> you know, people showed up. Um, and so, you know, had that had that punditry not been forecasting doom and gloom, maybe those voters might not have shown up. So it's, it's really hard to say how these things will turn out, right? Well, you're a very wise analyst here because, of course, we put all of these things in the mix, and there are counter counter pulls and counter punches and all that. Um, I know that. And you know, look, I was certainly among those people that thought that Democrats were going to do worse than they did. I'm not going to claim some great, you know, insider genius here. I thought it was going to be a tough midterm. And one of the things that made me start to rethink right toward the end of the process was that I live in Madison, Wisconsin. It's the university town. And there was a huge early vote among students. There were long lines of students. And then on election day, I remember uh, texting with a friend because I literally took a walk. I was walking by a polling place in an area that has a lot of graduate students. And there was a line out the door and around the block. Amazing. And yeah. And so, I mean, it's clear that whether it was fear or determination or, you know, whatever other word we want to use to describe it, young voters especially came out in really disproportional numbers. And the interesting thing is that in the exit polling, it shows us that among voters under 30, there was a 28% advantage for the Democrats. That's almost unheard of. That's an overwhelming uh, bias toward one party. And so uh, I think we have to give a lot of credit to uh, the youngest voters who, for again, whether it's fear or determination or whatever, decided to come and save the republic. So let's talk about what this election means for the GOP. With uh, slim House control, the most they can do is throw up roadblocks, refuse to pass the bills that the Senate passes. Uh, but also, what does the party really, you know, do you see any honest assessment within the party on what it has cost them to throw their weight behind Trump? Very little, to be honest. I, I think this is an important thing to understand. Certainly, you see the pundit class, right? The, the folks who appear on CNN and MSNBC, and even a little bit on Fox, who are saying, you know, something went wrong here. The, the Republicans didn't do as well as they expected to do. And you're even seeing a handful of Republicans step up to say that. But the important thing to understand is that this is the third election cycle in which their sort of cult of personality loyalty to Donald Trump has cost the Republican Party dearly. 
It happened in 2018 where they lost a lot of ground. It happened in 2020 where they lost more ground. Um, and it's happened in this midterm where they were supposed to make up a lot of ground but didn't. And that's even more so in the states. And so for three cycles, Trump has been a burden to them. And yet, after the November 8th election, you saw top Republicans, uh, people like Elise Stefanik, who's one of the top Republicans in the House, saying how Trump has to be their candidate in 2024. And so um, I think this is still a party that really wrestles with, um, you know, what it should be and where it should go. And uh, there are certainly some Republicans who are saying there needs to be a clear break with Trump and Trumpism. The party needs to move back toward a mainstream conservatism. But I would really strongly emphasize, I don't know that those are the dominant voices in the party even now. And one of the fantasies that plays out is a, a line that, well, you know, maybe they'll replace Trump with DeSantis from Florida, Ron, Ron DeSantis, and somehow that will be better. The fact is that Ron DeSantis is on issue after issue after issue as extreme or more than more extreme than Donald Trump. So and, I, and, I, less, I, and, and he's also more disciplined, which is he is more disciplined, and he had a big win in Florida. That's clearly to be understood, but. Uh, the notion that, uh, that America is going to suddenly take a look at Ron DeSantis in places like New England or the upper Midwest and say, boy, that's what we want. That's so much better than Trump. I don't necessarily think that's the case. So I, I don't think the deep assessment, what the Republican Party can or should be uh, as a conservative party, uh, has really happened yet. What about how progressives did on election night? Um, in in addition to the fact that the uh, that voters turned out in full force, um, you saw as a result of that, particularly young voters, you saw some really remarkable wins, even if they may not be part of a majority in the Democrats. You saw just in Florida, as, as, as we were talking about, uh, the state that elected Ron DeSantis, a district elected uh, Maxwell Frost, one of the youngest members of the party. Um, did progressives do well with centering aggressive a progressive platform and agenda, did they do well on election night? Yes, they did very well. And and this is, again, one of the things that a lot of the pundit class misses because they, they you know, look at a narrow set of races and they don't pay attention, actually, to a lot of the, the broader patterns. But if you look at, for instance, the Congressional Progressive Congress, it's going to have a lot of new young members. Uh, you mentioned Maxwell Frost, a, a 25-year-old who got elected from Florida, uh, but we should also make note of uh, Summer Lee, uh, a new representative from Pennsylvania, of Delia Ramirez and Jonathan Jackson, both coming out of Chicago, very, very progressive figures. Uh, Greg Kassar coming out of Austin, Texas, a very, very progressive figure. Jasmine Crockett coming out of Texas. There's, you know, the, the list is actually quite long. It's multiracial, multiethnic, uh, and generally quite young. And so the Progressive Caucus is going to get an infusion of new members. I think it's also important to, to recognize that the Democrats who did very well in the state house races around the country, and again, there's a lot of coverage of Congress, less of the states. But if you look at who's won the governorships, uh, Tony Evers in Wisconsin, who's a quite progressive governor, Gretchen Whitmer in, in Michigan, a quite progressive governor. These are people who got yeah, in, like, in Arizona. That was a Democratic win. I'm not sure it was a progressive, but that was a, a, yes. a, a, a the Democrats did better in, in gubernatorial elections. 
Yeah, they did really well. And, and, and they did well in state, Secretary of State races and state legislative races, flipping chambers. And on balance, these Democrats who ran in the states were running on a program of uh, strong support for abortion rights, strong support for democracy, shoring up voting rights. Uh, in most cases, very strong support for unions and for organized labor. Uh, and, you know, you just kind of run down the list. Acknowledgement and respect for the crisis that, that uh, climate change is causing. Uh, so these were not conservatives. Uh, they were, or even centrist Democrats in many cases. You saw quite progressive Democrats winning. And, of course, the, the capstone for it is Pennsylvania, the one Republican-held Senate seat that has flipped the Democrat, won in Pennsylvania by John Fetterman, ran uh, to certainly to the left in his own primary. He had a more conservative, more centrist Democrat, Connor Lamb, running against him, and uh, and who many people in the Democratic establishment were at least a little bit afraid of. Well, you know, John Fetterman won a pretty easy victory in Pennsylvania, despite having some severe health challenges, having had a stroke during the campaign. And how did he do it? He did it by being very, very strong in favor of labor rights, being very, very strong in favor of economic justice, supporting racial justice and supporting criminal justice reform, and being very, very strong on abortion rights and building a campaign that didn't just focus on, on you know, the big cities, but also went to every single county in Pennsylvania, even to small towns and rural areas, on the theory that there were Democrats out there, and if you just went and talked to them, they would come out and Right. Vote. So there was the battle between Democrats and Republicans. There's the battle within the Democratic Party between centrists, so-called centrists, and progressives. But just as there is a sort of analogous battle within the Republican Party, although I think that the, uh, the you know the, the pro-Trumpers still remain far more vocal. Um, than, than who they represent. But within the Democratic Party, that battle, certainly it seems as though the progressive side has won many new allies. And so we'll see how things play out in the next two years. Um, and then finally, one last last question, John, and you feel free to be as brief as you want to be on Trump's announcement or expected announcement in, uh, to run for 2024. Uh, you know, Journalists want to wish him away, many of us, right? But that doesn't mean he's going to go away. And avoiding talking about him doesn't mean that he's going to go away. He's still there. He's going to announce. What do you think? Well, it does look like he's going to announce. With Trump, you always have to be a little careful because you never know quite what he's going to do. And and he can change course unexpectedly at the last moment. But I have always argued that Donald Trump was going to run for the Republican nomination in 2024 and that he was going to be the Republican nominee. Now, the Tuesday's results were not particularly good for Trump. I mean, a lot of the candidates that he put forward lost. And there is an analysis, especially among Republican strategists, of whether Trump is more of a burden than a benefit to the party. But that is not necessarily a feeling at the base of the party. And the fact of the matter is that if you know anything about Donald Trump, it is that he is a master at destroying his opponents in Republican primaries. That's what he did in 2015 and 2016 against the entire elite of the Republican Party, beating Ted Cruz and Rand Paul and Scott Walker and Jeb Bush. You just run down the list of all the people that he took apart and beat. And so those who assume that Trump is finished within the Republican Party, I think make a mistake. My sense is that he's got a very good chance of taking apart Ron DeSantis. And it's clear that Trump uh, cannot get over the fact that he lost the presidency in 2020. And so my sense is that he is going to, he's going to come back and that's going to be a huge burden. 
for the Republican Party. But it is also important to remember that Donald Trump got, you know, 70 million votes in, in 2020. He uh, has a following and he can get a lot of votes. And so Democrats can't just, you know, rest easy. Uh, there is still an, an important necessity to counter Trump and Trumpism with not just saying Trump's a bad guy, but also with a, a vision of economic and social and racial justice of, you know, peace and saving the planet, something that can actually energize and excite, uh, especially young voters and disenfranchised voters, because my sense is that we're in a period, a historical, uh, you know, time period where um, we're going to have a lot of battles. They're going to happen in election after election. Eventually, there will be a clear result. And, you know, my sense is that the arc of history bends uh, you know, in the right direction, and so ultimately that clear result will be a victory for more progressive candidates, but it doesn't necessarily come easy. And so my sense is that what 2022 gives us is a sense of what's possible, but uh, 2024 is still going to be a lot of work. And, and that, again, whether journalists like it or not, I suspect we'll be covering Donald Trump quite a bit. I want to thank you so much, John, for joining us today. It was a pleasure to have you on. It's an honor, of course, as always. My guest has been John Nichols, National Affairs Correspondent for the Nation Magazine, host of the podcast Next Left, and a contributing writer of the Progressive and in These Times, Associate Editor of the Capital Times, and a frequent guest here on our program. I'm Sonali Kolhakar. You can access this and other interviews on our website, Rising Up with Sonali. Okay. Uh, Rama. Yes. Let's do this. Oh. The okay. most powerful astrological transits. I thought you were going to play normal friends. Yeah, but we got to see if we got time. Okay. So let's start this right now. This is really, this is really the focus, don't you think? <laughs> right, Ron? This is the really most important thing. Tell everybody what it's called again. The most powerful astrological transits of 2023, 2024, and 2025. Here we go. Okay, here we go. Um... moment here there we go we are live streaming on youtube we need to turn off the sound there okay very good all right looks good we're live on youtube so welcome everybody over on youtube welcome everybody joining us on zoom and please do go right over to the chat or the comments and put your name and location in. I would love to see where everybody is joining from today as we begin our forecast event. And let me welcome some of you coming in here on Zoom. Welcome Lauren Rose in Paris. Welcome Naraya in Spain. Welcome Liz in Chicago. Welcome Deanne in Michigan. Welcome Nancy in Ottawa, Canada. 
Welcome Virginia in Pennsylvania. Nathalie in Burgundy. Ooh, that sounds wonderful. Nathalie, welcome Sister Bless in London. Yay, so glad to see you back here, Sister Bless. Welcome Leah in Wilmington, North Carolina. Welcome Rosemary in Southern California. Welcome Pauline in Montreal. Katrine in Paris. Erhard in Denmark. Yay, Erhard, great to see you here. Welcome Ilana Blue in Colorado. Barbara in Charlotte. Kelly in Eastland, Texas. Deb in Canada. Jillian in Surrey, UK. Christina in Sweden. Melinda in Florida. Diane in Maine. Linda in Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada. Abhane in Ireland. Lynn in Devon, Illinois. Leanne in Nebraska. Michelle in Toronto. Barbara in Nova Scotia. Wow, and many, many more. Welcome, everybody. I am thrilled to be here with you today. Absolutely overjoyed <laughs> to be here presenting this to you. And we are about to have so many incredible live interviews. You will also be able to watch our pre-recorded interviews at your convenience all throughout each day, whenever you have time. And so, oh my goodness, there is just so much amazingness in store for you here during the 2023, 2024, and 2025 forecast, forecast event. And let's see who's over on YouTube. So welcome, Micah in Netherlands. Hi, Emer in Scotland. Yay, glad you're here. Welcome, Jody in Illinois. Jana in Michigan. And Kim in Michigan, yay, and welcome everybody else who's joining over on YouTube. Oh my goodness, this is so exciting. So this event, I'll just tell you, has a very interesting backstory. Um, and part of the reason I'm thrilled and very grateful to be here uh, presenting to you today. So fascinating. So this idea for this event where we're look, we're, we're going to move into a forecast here and we're bringing this forecast from astrologers, from different wisdom traditions, from people who have studied the ancient prophecies, who, from people who have studied the ancient sacred sites and many others. And all of these people will be bringing their unique expertise, their unique modalities in to help us to understand what's going to happen, not just next year, 2023, but for the next three years. Because as my guides told me, the next three years are going to be absolutely critical for our human trajectory, for us to really um, move into full alignment with the earth and the cosmos and all the forces of nature. And so we're going to be exploring that in so many different ways here. But what happened was this idea, this kind of transmission for that this event needed to happen and that it should be a forecast event for the next three years came through on June 4th, 2022. And I've been creating these summits and global conferences since 2015. So I usually create one or two of them every year for my business. I also uh, help others to uh, guide others to create their own soulful summits and global conferences. And so I normally don't start planning these events until maybe three months before they're going to happen. But for whatever reason, and I soon understood the reason, the idea for this event came through in June, June 4th, 2022. And I started inviting the speakers and automatically the speakers started saying yes. And we had pretty much our full live speaker lineup already set by the second or third week in June. And what happened was I became very, very sick this year. I was completely out of commission, couldn't run my business, couldn't take care of my kids, couldn't do anything for most of July and August and September. Toward the end of September, I started being able to come back and do things. 
And so I know lots of you also have gone through health crises or relationship crises or other major life changes during this year. And so if that idea hadn't come through so early on in June, we wouldn't be gathering here today because I wouldn't have had the energy to bring all this together. But it was mostly fully formed already by the end of June when the bottom fell out from my world. And here we are. And this is just so incredible. Absolutely so incredible. And so this is my always my message to everybody, to my clients, to the sacred planet community is follow that guidance. When you get these transmissions, when you get these insights, like, wow, I think I need to do this, even though the timing doesn't seem right. I think the time is now just we got to follow those instructions. Right. It leads to amazing, amazing breakthroughs. So um, uh, we're going to explore this in many different ways. But as Naraya is saying here, healing hugs for everyone who here here who did go or is going through any kind of health challenge. Um, we're going to talk about this through astrological lenses, ancient prophecy lenses. There are so much changing for us in our world right now. We are all going through major crises of some sort. So I want to really honor everybody listening for what you are moving through. It's big. It's important. Don't be afraid. Know that it is the entry point to our whole new reality, to your new life, to our new collective um, world that we're that we're creating together, one person at a time and all of us together. So let's dive in today. Um, there's so much, so much beauty here to share. All right. I'm going to share slides with you today. Um, and hopefully you can all see my slides. If there's any issue, write it in the chat on Zoom if you can't see the slides, but hopefully you should be able to see them well. So welcome to the event once again, um, the 2023, 2024, 2025 forecast event, illuminating our understanding of these unprecedented times. And we are bringing together in this event wisdom transmissions, astrology, ecological perspectives, indigenous prophecies, the knowledge written and encoded in our sacred sites, and so much more so that you can have an in-depth understanding about what's going to occur during these massively crucial next three years and really be able to work with the energies, really be able to work with the changes rather than having the changes knock you over, (laughs) really be able to work with them and flow with them in the best possible way. Now, if somehow you have gotten here and you're watching me, but you haven't registered yet, definitely go to this link, which I'll put in the YouTube um, description field once we're done recording and make sure to sign up so you can hear all 25 of our illuminating talks and presentations about these topics. This is just a little bit about me. I am a visibility coach for visionary entrepreneurs. I'm a spiritual alchemist, astrologer, global conference creator since 2015, and I'm the founder of Sacred Planet. And I share shamanic and ancient wisdom to guide courageous seekers, that's all of you out there listening, in co-creating a revolutionary new world in alignment with Mother Earth and the vast intelligence of the cosmos. So my website is wearesacredplanet.com. Many of you are already on my YouTube channel. Check it out. Um, Lots more amazing and beautiful content that I've been creating there. And I'm going to share two live presentations here on the forecast event. You're watching the first one. This is the most powerful astrological transits of the next three years. And then also on Saturday at the same time, 9 a.m. New York time, I'm going to share with you more detail about how to work with these powerful transits for your greatest benefit. 
So let's begin. Let's dive right in to these most powerful transits. And these are some big ones. We've had some big transits the last three years. Well, these are even bigger coming up. It's going to be extremely powerful times. Now, just to give a little bit of a foundation, a little bit of a a starting point here to our topic and to the subject matter we're going to be exploring throughout this entire conference. Okay, I just wanted to give you this brief introduction on why does astrology matter? And even if you've already pondered this, even if you're already an astrologer, I think you'll find this really fascinating. So since the beginning of time, humans have noticed that the events in the cosmos were closely tied to the events here on Earth. Now, by 5,000 years ago, virtually all of the ancient and indigenous cultures, and so we're talking about Native Americans, we're talking about ancient Sumerians, ancient Egyptians, Australian Aboriginal peoples, and many, many others on every continent had already developed well-advanced forms of astronomy and astrology. Now, this meant they were already developing them for tens of thousands of years before that. Here is a beautiful astrological ceiling from the tomb of Seti One. This was created in about 1279 B.C., in Egypt, in the Valley of the Kings. And so clearly the science of astrology and astronomy were quite well developed in significant detail by this point. So we know that ancient people were working on the development of this for tens of thousands of years previous when we actually see it beginning to be written down and encoded. And so we now know that astronomy and astrology were known, practiced, and in development even tens of thousands of years ago. In fact, these animals painted on ancient caves such as Chavot and Lasso caves as far back as 32,000 years ago point to particular constellations such as Taurus, the bull, and Cygnus, the swan, which is also the Northern Cross constellation. These were major, major um, uh, high-potency constellations that we see referred to in Egypt in Gobekli Tepe in Turkey, as well as in these caves in Spain and many other places around the world. So interestingly as well, countless ancient and indigenous origin stories say that we came from the stars. And the Pleiades in particular is frequently mentioned as our origin point in creation stories from every continent. So this relationship that we have with the stars and planets runs extremely deep. And we are remembering now, we're remembering how connected we are with the cosmos. And astrology, as a result, is gaining quite a rapid increase in attention these days. I think this was really um, (laughs) just substantially um, launched in 2020 when we heard all of the astrologers reporting. I can remember listening to astrology reports in January 2020, and everyone was saying, all of the astrologers knew that something absolutely world-changing and catastrophic was going to happen that year. And now we can see they were right. And it has significantly affected our subsequent years as well. Now, why does astrology work? This is a really important question that the ancient people and the indigenous people have always known that that it works and that we're connected to the cosmos and that there is an energetic pull. There are energetic strings or threads 
um, between us and the stars and planets. But even modern quantum physics is beginning to be able to understand this and explain it. So quantum entanglement is the key here. Quantum entanglement is a phenomenon in which entangled systems exhibit correlations that cannot be explained by classical physics. And so what this means is that when two particles become entangled, they remain connected even when separated by vast distances. And it has recently been suggested that a similar process occurs between people. Surprise, right? We're part of the, um, the, the, um, connected makeup and architecture of the universe. And this explains, you know, scientifically considered anomalous phenomena, such as, for example, energy healing or the experience of meeting someone and being immediately and intimately familiar with them, even though you never met before in this lifetime. And so the particles, which currently make up you or make up me or Jupiter or the sun were once fused together in distant stars. And if we go even further back, 13.8 billion years ago, we were all fused together very tightly together before the big bang. Okay. And then there was the explosion, the vast explosion and all of the galaxies began to form and stars and everything began to form. But we've all been together before. The particles that make up you are very, very connected with the particles that make up me and the particles that make up Venus, for example. So we've all been together before. We're all going to be together again. <laughs> In the meantime, we are all still quite intimately connected and we all have a pull on one another. We all have this energetic connection. Now, at the moment you were born, this is really important too, there was a certain very unique configuration of stars, planets, asteroids, the sun, the moon. And so this split second blueprint of the moment of your birth and all of the energetics of the earth and cosmos that were occurring at that very moment was imprinted upon your energetic and physical body. And so we take that earthly and cosmic imprint upon you and we combine that with your own unique genetic makeup and with all this combined it means that you carry certain archetypes and qualities in a configuration like no one else in the world you are a magnificent gem there is no one else like you and your birth chart is a document that shows this now it doesn't show your genetic makeup although that even that is reflected in some ways in your birth chart Okay, but your birth chart includes all the details of your greatest challenges and your most expansive opportunities in this lifetime. Truly incredible. I've been reading charts for many, many years now. Absolutely mind blowing every time. I never get tired of it. I'm sure all of you astrologers out there feel the same way. And similarly, each transit that occurs in the cosmos throughout each day makes a continually evolving imprint upon us. And we feel this at a very deep cellular level. Some planets move faster, some move slower. Each has its own unique pull on us and on our emotions. And so world events and personal events are created as we humans and the earth and the animals, the mountains, the oceans, you know, all, all of these forces of nature and animate beings each uniquely respond to these energies, the earth being one of those animate beings with consciousness. Now, we always have free will. 
And at the same time, certain themes and archetypes can be pinpointed as the prevailing energies at any given time. So we're going to talk a lot more about this on Saturday, but I'll say briefly for now, how to use astrology for your highest benefit. The key is to utilize the positive aspects of our natal planetary placements and to use the positive aspects of the ongoing transits um, as the planets move through the sky. And also one other way that astrology really helps us is that it gives us a much larger, more universal, even mythological context for what's happening in our world. Mm-hmm. And on a collective level, we can see the larger archetypal forces that are moving at this time. For example, Saturn in Aquarius, square Uranus and Taurus, which was the huge prevailing energy throughout 2021 and 2022, very challenging, difficult energy shows us that the breakdowns happening in our world, this is not just needless chaos and confusion. Things are not breaking down for no reason. They're actually happening because this is a necessary step on the path for us to build something completely new and different from all that has come before. So if you don't have this larger cosmic context, you're, you know, this is people out in the world who don't have this context are feeling the intensity. They're seeing the structures and systems of the world break down and they're going running around making YouTube videos about doomsday scenarios and preparing for the apocalypse, right? With astrology, it gives us a context so we don't have to go down that fear rabbit hole. No. And I mean, honestly, you can't prepare for the apocalypse, you know, so don't worry about that. If that's going to happen, It's going to happen, but we can't prepare for it. And really and truly, what we need to be doing instead is focusing on the highest positive aspects as best we can to create the energetic signature of a bright and vibrant future. If we're focusing on the apocalypse, it's actually increasing the chance that the apocalypse will happen. (laughs) Okay, but when we look and see these breakdowns are happening so we can break through into a new world, let's hold the energy of that new world we want to create. Let's navigate this with our sight set on the highest outcomes. That is going to bring about the best benefit and outcome for everybody, all of us and the earth and all beings included. So this is really important to keep in mind. And here's a quote from a transmission that I received from Thoth a few years ago that I'm still contemplating this, what he said to me. So you can take this in as well. He said, the music of the spheres is orchestrating everything that is happening down here. The more we can resonate at the frequency of the spheres, the more we will be prepared for this journey and for what lays ahead. Very profound. Actually, I recommend meditating with that. It came from way out in the cosmos, the sacred architecture that both helped to create. Um, and the music of the spheres, of course, being the spinning of the planets and the pulsing light of the stars and all that music that happens out there in the cosmos. Astrology was considered a science in ancient times, and actually it still is a science. Um, we're just The mainstream doesn't recognize that, but it will. 
And so it's a very far reaching science, very comprehensive, and it can predict the likelihood of events such as times of war or times of peace in the individual birth chart. It can pinpoint the personality challenges and opportunities of every person. And on a much vaster scale, it can indicate the great ages. So the processional cycles, the 26,000 year cycles in which countless generations of humans have built up and torn down one civilization after another. And not only does it have this predictive quality, but it blends the mystical with the purely logical in a really beautiful way that most modern sciences fail to do. Although quantum physics is starting to dive back into that. And when we read the ancient texts from a wide multitude of different languages and different forms of writing from many, many thousands of years ago, we find that now is the time. Now is the time that was predicted as having tremendous change and upheaval. We haven't seen change like this since about 12,000 to 13,000 years ago, which was the halfway point on that processional, that great processional cycle. Here is an astrological stealing from the Temple of Dendera telling us that now is a momentous time to be alive. And just so you have this here, this is Isis in her sacred cow form. This is Osiris before he died, before he was mummified, and this is their son Horus sitting on the lotus flowers in the center. So beautiful. Beginning of time. So those of us who are alive at this unprecedented time, we are here to live and breathe and be the change that our ancestors have seen coming for thousands of years. And of course, we're feeling it very intensely. We are living these vast and sweeping changes. And so internally, we're feeling it. Externally, we're seeing it. And so we need to really come into our calm center, connect with our heart, and know that this is all part of a much larger plan. Again, we don't want to go to the apocalyptic scenarios. It's not going to do any good. It's actually going to do more harm. Because really and truly, all this is happening to catalyze us into a rapid, upward-oriented, future-building evolutionary process. We are opening up to completely new realities and new possibilities as we move into the future. And what's so interesting, and the reason that I cannot help but reference Egypt in almost everything I talk about these days, is that in ancient Egypt, they had an extremely different perception of reality than what we have today just incredibly filled with the sacred, with the recognition of the sacredness of life, the sacredness of all things. And we're coming back into that remembrance. So these next three years are going to be a time of huge up-leveling and positive evolution, personally and collectively, for those who are dedicated to raising their consciousness and those who are open to learning the lessons of our times. This is something really important that I've learned over the summer while I was sick, because Saturn was working with me extensively and still is. Um, and so I began having conversations with Saturn because I realized that I can turn away from the lessons and keep suffering or I can turn toward the lessons. I can turn toward the darkness. I can turn toward the initiation and really open my heart. And so I've been asking Saturn, what is it that you need me to learn I'm ready. I'm here. I want to learn it so I can move forward, so I can continue to evolve. 
And so when the lessons are tough, we need to turn toward them even more and open to this evolutionary impulse that's wanting to move through us. It's so important and it's so powerful and life-changing when we can do that. So we're going to move into the transits here, everybody. And I just wanted to have this note first. Why should we study the transits? Well, when we can embody and embrace the highest potentials of the upcoming planetary transits, that is how we learn to work with the energetics and paradigm shifting events and flow with the next level changes that are coming our way. Because the truth is, that we can navigate all of this with joy, passion, resilience, courage, fulfillment, abundance. There are going to be opportunities beyond our current understanding that will be coming into our lives and opening the way for us to live in in really a completely different reality um, is what the astrology is saying. So let's tap into those transits now. Let's see what's coming next. Here are the most powerful transits of the next three years. Um, real quick, we're going to look at these four, which were what we've already had. Okay. And these are rare and powerful and we've just moved through all of these. So Saturn Pluto conjunction in January, 2020 in Capricorn, Jupiter Saturn conjunction at zero degrees of Aquarius in December, 2020 Saturn Uranus squares between Aquarius and Taurus all throughout 2021 and 2022. And then Uranus and Mars conjunct the North Node at 18 degrees of Taurus in July and August 2022. Wow, that was a doozy. Now, this is what we've come through. All right, I just wanted to give a little more context there. So let's see where we're going next. You will want to get out your calendar. You will want to mark your calendars. And I'm going way, I'm even going out to 2028 in a couple cases here. So you'll see soon. You want to mark your calendar with these critically important dates. And if you have your birth chart available, keep it by your side so you can see especially which houses in your chart are going to be affected by each transit. Let me just check the chat real quick. Okay, beautiful comments. Thank you all for your comments in the chat. And I will have time to um, take your questions once we look at these transits. Okay, so... Saturn. So we're starting in March 2023. Um, of course, there are lots of other transits going on between now and March, but I'm kind of going to the big picture here. We're looking for really the um, the the epoch changing transits <laughs> that are going to be coming through. Um, some that I'll mention in 2023 are are. Um, going to be really beautiful, like Jupiter conjunct Uranus. You know, there's some incredible things coming. So we'll, we'll look at all that. But we're starting in March. March is a really big month, as you'll see here. So on March 7th, Saturn enters Pisces. Saturn has been in Aquarius from December 2020 until March 2023. And Saturn will be in Pisces from March 2023 to February 2026. Now, this is a really different energy than we've had. Saturn was in his signs of rulership, Capricorn and Aquarius, since 2017. And so Saturn has been very strong. Saturn has been a very strong force, and Saturn is about working really hard. Saturn is about um, 
uh, frustration, complications, difficulty, challenges, things slowing down. Ultimately, Saturn wants to help us, but he makes us go through a lot in order to get to the point where he can help us. Um, Saturn ultimately wants us to do the hard work to build the strong foundations. He's about structure, okay? He wants us to build really strong foundations on which to build our new future, okay? Or on which, on an individual level, to build our legacy work because he's he's father time. So he's looking even beyond this lifetime when he's working with you. He's looking at what is the legacy work you're going to leave to the world, and he wants to help you build a solid foundation for that. He makes you work really hard <laughs> to get it. So Saturn has been creating a lot of challenge, difficulty, slowdowns, frustration for us, to, to, to put it mildly, um, since 2017. And Saturn moving into Pisces is a huge shift because Saturn is not as strong in Pisces. It's not very strong at all. And Pisces is a much more flowing, imaginative, creative, um, yeah, let's be in the oneness kind of energy. So this is really different. And so we're going to move into a space where we're not going to feel that constrictive, limiting nature of Saturn anywhere near as strongly as we have for the past five years. So more freedom, less structure, more flow will become available to us, and that's going to be a welcome relief. This transit and these, uh, it's just about three whole years that Saturn will be in Pisces, um, is going to show us that our visions and dreams are not just for fun. They're not just woo-woo, okay? They are truly important for how we're going to build, reveal, and welcome in the new world. So Saturn in Pisces is going to enable us to manifest the mysteries and unseen forces of nature into actual structure and form. This is really powerful. We're going to see this theme from a few of the other transits as well, where we are going to be able to bring that which we know but cannot see um, a lot more into mainstream consciousness, a lot more into what we're actually building day to day in our lives in a very concrete way. Now, there's going to be a huge increase during these three years in successful and long-lasting business models based on energy healing, metaphysics, accessing the other dimensions, shamanic work, ritual work, all these beautiful esoteric topics, okay? So if you've been wanting to start your energy healing business, if you've been wanting to start your shamanic-based business, do it now. Do it in 2023. Um, The time is right. And as I was mentioning, all the aspects of how we're interconnected are are going to become much more accepted in the mainstream Okay, we will gain more solidity, stability in our understanding of how to work with energetics and interconnectedness. And this is all going to help us anchor into a deeper trust in the larger plan. Again, Saturn is looking even beyond our lifetime. So what is the larger plan that we're all working to contribute to here? He's going to really bring our attention to that Saturn in Pisces. That's very beautiful. Pisces Pisces represents consciousness, highest consciousness, oneness. Um, the multi-dimensions, okay? So how are we going to actually anchor our trust in that, okay, and really build that into structure and form in our world? Now, this is a, a challenging aspect here. Pisces includes the immune system and contagion. And when this whole COVID thing first started, February 2020, uh, Mercury was retrograde in Pisces at that time. Okay, so there could be more serious occurrences on the health front. I hope not, but that is a possibility here. 
Um, but overall, there's so much positive that is going to come from this Saturn in Pisces transit. Also in March 2023, on March 23rd, Pluto will enter Aquarius. Now, Pluto has been in Capricorn since 2008. All right, so this is massive. Pluto moves very slowly. He only changes signs every 20 to 40 years, depending. Now, Pluto will be back and forth between Capricorn and Aquarius for most of 2023 and 24. So he'll still be carrying that Capricorn energy for a while. But this is the first time he moves even just a little bit into Aquarius. And then he's going to finally move into Aquarius for good on November 19th, 2024, and will stay there until 2043. So this is an energy we're going to have working with us until 2043. And this is just a massive shift in consciousness. Um, Pluto's going to spend a lot of time these next two years at the exact zero degree Aquarius point that is really important for us because it's where Jupiter and Saturn had their grand conjunction in December 2020. So this is truly the initiation point into a new age. Pluto represents the mysteries, life, death, and rebirth, that which is hidden. He also represents sex and money and power. Okay, and those are our innate powers that we have within us that can come forth once we dare to explore the shadows. Once we dare to go into the initiations, we rise into greater ability to stand in our own power. Okay, greater life force and sexual energy, greater ability to call in the abundance that is truly ours. All right, that he rules these kinds of mysteries. So these topics are all going to become increasingly important aspects that will be more honored, revered, and brought into the collective awareness over the next 20 years. Again, the mysteries, the esoteric, coming more into the mainstream. My hope is that through these initiations that Pluto will bring to welcome us into our Aquarian future, um, we'll be able to create more sacredness and reverence in our world in which life itself is restored as the top priority for us as a collective. As it always was in the ancient times, the ancient Egyptians, the ancient Sumerians, the indigenous peoples all around the planet know that life itself must be held at the center as the top, top priority. And so I believe Pluto is going to bring us the initiations to help us remember that much more fully, much more deeply so that we can create the bright future that we want. So on a more practical level, Pluto entering Aquarius means we're going to have absolutely unexpected, unprecedented next levels of technology created, especially because Uranus is going to be moving into Gemini starting in 2025-26. And these two, Pluto and Uranus, are going to form trines between Aquarius and Gemini again and again and again. I'll talk more about that on another slide. Absolutely, absolutely unprecedented new technological discoveries. Um, This also, Pluto and Aquarius, also represents sweeping changes in social order and public rights. So Pluto was in Aquarius from 1778 to 1798, and this brought us the ratification of the American Constitution, the Industrial Revolution, the French Revolution, the Enlightenment, and publishing of the Vindication of the Rights of Women. Wow. Uh, There's a lot more, actually, that I didn't put on this slide, but those seem like the really big, important ones. Um, Redistribution of power, giving a voice to the masses and obtaining freedom and liberation are also themes we will see 
with Pluto in Aquarius. So this is huge. And, you know, Pluto in Capricorn has taught us a lot of lessons about uh, our finances, okay, about money, about the physical world, the physical earthly reality, um, about work and how we're using our energy. Pluto in Aquarius is very different. Pluto in Aquarius is very forward oriented um, and is going to bring these mysteries, revealing what is hidden, the sacredness of life itself to the forefront of our collective awareness in really powerful ways. So it's going to be intense and it's necessary and it's going to be powerful. I put a picture of Osiris here. Um, this is a beautiful image of Osiris from the tomb of Nefertari because I think that Osiris, he, he, he just came in and, and into my awareness. I think that he so beautifully represents this Pluto in Aquarius. So what's interesting is that Pluto, the planet Pluto is Hades. You know, he's the God of the underworld. He's the one that wants to drag us down to the underworld and help us evolve into our, our highest consciousness self, aware of the mysteries and our, power and our sex and money and these kinds of things, right? Interestingly, Osiris is a very different kind of underworld god. He's the king of the underworld, the god of the underworld, and yet he's also the god of agriculture. And this is because the Egyptians had this profound understanding that life and death always lead to rebirth. And you can see he's green. His skin is shown as green because not only does he help us make the journey uh, when our life ends into the underworld, but he rebirths people. us and he helps to create the life force energy. He is the life force that pushes up the green grasses and the green plants in the springtime every year. That brings life back to the land after the time of death. So I just have chills thinking about this. I really think that this Osirian kind of consciousness is what's going to be coming back into our world with Pluto in Aquarius. And that is very positive and very powerful. Also in March, like I said, March was a big month. Um, Venus will be conjunct the North Node at four degrees of Taurus. Now, Venus conjuncts the North Node about once a year. Okay, so that in and of itself is not extremely rare. But what is really important here is that this is going to be a wonderful counterpoint to the chaos and instability that we've been experiencing in 2022. In 2022, in July and August, Uranus and Mars came together with the North Node and Taurus. That was a very different energy. That was very life altering, you know, just structures crumbling, um, war consciousness, shocking events. Okay, severe health challenges for many, really difficult. Okay, but when Venus and the North Node come together at the equinox on March 20th, 21st, and 22nd, it will be a much more calm and relaxed experience. And we will feel the presence of beauty and love in our lives, a feeling of abundance and blessings. And this is going to be like a balm for our nervous systems. Finally, it's like we'll finally be able to slow down and enjoy life a little bit and relax the nervous systems. And we're going to be feeling this actually even in December 2022, in the beginning of the year 2023, but in March especially, this is going to be a really beautiful energy. 
Now, moving on to some bigger transits here. Jupiter in Taurus. So Jupiter's right now in Pisces, has just retrograded back to Pisces. Uh, Jupiter will re-enter Aries and move very quickly through Aries from January 2023 to May 16th, and then we'll move right on into Taurus. This is going to be a very welcome shift in energies because Jupiter in Aries that we'll have for the first five months is going to be pretty fast-paced, pretty fiery. So this, from this May to the next May, will feel similar to that Venus uh, North Node in Taurus energy, a chance to slow down and smell the roses. And again, we really need this. Our nervous systems are shot <laughs> after the last few years. We need this chance to slow down. So I'm not saying that everything in the world is going to slow down at these times, but we'll be able to tap in to this slower energy when we want to. It will feel more available to us. Okay, and we'll want to really cultivate that. We'll really want to cultivate balance in our lives in finding a slower pace, in finding stillness at certain times, spending more time in nature, connecting with the energy of peace. We really need to become proficient at this, um, especially as the other fast-paced transits are going to be still swirling around us. So Jupiter in Taurus is coming to assist us with this. I love this quote from astrologer Bracca Goldsmith. She said, there's no Wi-Fi in the forest, but I guarantee you'll feel more connected. And that's such a beautiful quote to represent Jupiter in Taurus. Um, and this is an expanded time to start new businesses or to create a new financial situation for yourself based on your own inner values, talents, and integrity. Because Jupiter rules wealth and abundance and brings blessings to us in that area. And Taurus represents our values, our talents, our integrity. Um, Taurus also represents the earth. Taurus represents our physical bodies, our connection to home, our ability to feel at home and safe on the earth. Um, and so there will be here with Jupiter and Taurus, again, a, just a beautiful opportunity to become really proficient at your self-care, at healing where it's needed in your life, at strengthening your connection with the earth. And you can... Just pause here and think about the radical changes that Uranus has brought into the Taurus areas of your life. So if you know your birth chart and you know what house is Taurus, Uranus has brought some big changes there, I'm sure, since 2018, probably especially last year with the Uranus-Mars and North Node conjunction. Now Jupiter is going to come in and bring a more optimistic and soothing and expansive energy to this sector of your life. So really think about what do you want to build here from May 2023 to May 2024, you'll have the chance to do so. So whether that's around your finances, the needs of your health and body, your self-care, the stability of your home, taking time to enjoy life. Okay, really, what do you want to anchor into and build during this time? Very important to work with this, to harness this energy for your highest benefit during this time. Now, there are two especially important transits while Jupiter is in Taurus. One is Jupiter conjunct the North Node at the very end of May and first days of June 2023. That will be at three degrees Taurus. That will be um, very close to the four degrees Taurus point where Venus conjuncts the North Node. So this is building on that Venusian energy. And this will bring learning, expansion, and abundance to support the new future that we're building together. So you may feel really inclined to learn something new at this time that's going to build your new future. 
It's a very fortuitous transit. And we'll receive support during this time in the areas where we most need to move forward in life. And this last occurred in June 2016 at 16 degrees of Virgo, just for historical reference. Um, all these transits I'm mentioning to you are pretty rare. Like this one only happens every 11 or 12 years. And then this next one, Jupiter conjunct Uranus, only happens about every 14 years. Okay, so this will be from April 18th to 24th, 2024. Note the year there, next year or the following year. Now, this is big. Um, this brings unexpected leaps towards success, and it can definitely bring surprises. This is definitely going to bring some things you never saw coming. And this is supporting exploration, innovation, revolution, in service to higher consciousness, enlightened value systems, because it's in Taurus. Um, interestingly here, this is going to bring us the ability to leap off a cliff toward a new and as yet unseen future. I think that is so interesting. And then have the ability to, it's not like you're just falling off a cliff. This is like, then you really make that future happen because you did that leap. So faith and courage are a big part of what this will bring, ingenuity and creativity. Um, here are some notable ones, all right? In 1436 and 37, this conjunction happened. Gutenberg built the first printing press, and that was 100 years before the scientific revolution. So he was way ahead of his time. 1775 and 76, that was the start of the American Revolution. 1968 and 69, landing of the first man on the moon. So these are like major innovations and new ways of thinking, new ways of perceiving reality that this transit will bring us. It is brief but powerful. Now, here's something really interesting that I notice. Very rare. All planets will conjunct the North Node between 2022 to 2027. This indicates we are moving into a bold new future that is being imprinted with the energy of each and every planet over the next five years. Okay. Now, the North Node takes 19 and a half years to go the whole way around the Zodiac. And normally the planets are, you know, all over the place. In this case, all the planets right now are clustered fairly close to the North Node. And the North Node and the planets are going to gradually come one to another over these five years. Very fascinating. This is really indicating this new future that's becoming available to us. Because the North Node represents the future, the shared future direction of humanity. Okay. And, you know, Mercury and Venus always come to the North Node once a year. Mars about every two years. I have the dates here. But Jupiter is only every 12 years. Saturn is only every 30 years. Or it might be a little bit less than that, 11 or 12, probably 25 to 30. You know, it, it, it's very slow. So this is this is really fascinating, really beautiful. Um, it's happening. Now is the time. <laughs> and it's not, you know, this is not all planets conjuncting the south node. That would be very different. The south node is about our karma, our trauma, our pain and woundings. This is about the future. This is about the direction our souls are pulling us toward, the direction that our consciousness wants us to move. Um, and all of the planets are coming in to assist and support us in making that that shift. It's really big, really beautiful. Now, I'm not going into detail about the nodes and the eclipses, but I did just want to give you a chart to show that the nodes are going to be moving through in these next through 2028. Okay, next. So we currently have the north node in Taurus, south node in Scorpio. 
Then June 2023, we'll move to North Node in Aries, South Node in Libra, and wherever these nodes are, where the eclipses happen. So you always want to be paying attention to where the nodes are, what house they are in your birth chart, because that's where you're going to be transformed, <laughs> um, particularly. And then January 2025, North Node moves into Pisces, South Node moves into Virgo. And July 2026, North Node moves to Aquarius, South Node into Leo. When the North Node goes into Aquarius with Pluto and it trines, they both trine, uh, the Uranus and Gemini, I mean, that's just massive. There's really, really massive, beautiful shifts coming. So let's talk about that a little bit. Uranus is going to move into Gemini on July 7th, 2025. We get a little further out here time-wise. And Uranus will be back and forth between Taurus and Gemini for a bit, and Uranus will move fully into Gemini from April 25th, 2026 to August 3rd, 2032. Uranus moves pretty slowly, so spends about seven or eight years in each sign. Now, as I mentioned, especially because Pluto is in Aquarius at the same time, just absolutely unprecedented developments in technology. It's like things we cannot even imagine yet, maybe an unforeseen new version of the internet. I mean, maybe we break free. This is what I'm thinking. Maybe we... Shuttlecraft for everyone. Break free completely from all the devices and the screens, and we actually remember the way that we can do all of these communications without any computers, without any technical support. (laughs) We just know how to do it through our own consciousness and telepathy and our interconnectedness, right? What an incredible shift. Let's hold the energy for that. Um, but definitely rapid advances in information networks, new social media platforms are very quite possible. Maybe, like, again, it's going to be like different stuff we couldn't imagine right now. Um, we will feel our mental abilities just lightning click, qu- lightning quick. And this is again why I say perhaps we really shift into this completely new level of consciousness and what we're capable of in the technology. I mean, our bodies are magical technology. Our bodies hold the energy of life itself, right? And so uh, we used to know in Egypt, they they knew how to work with that. They knew the secrets of life and death and everything in between. We may come back into a full remembrance or at least enough remembrance to be able to really work with those abilities again. Um, rapid innovation in science, technology, and communication, advances in aviation always happen when Uranus is in Gemini. Um, quite possibly the first communications with extraterrestrials where we're actually effectively communicating, not just seeing them whiz by in the sky, but actually really effectively opening lines of communication with those from other places in the cosmos. Um, radical new fields of science may emerge. We will be very inspired on a personal level to study and learn more in multiple fields at once. The last time Uranus was in Gemini was from August 1941 to June 1949. And this brought inventions of things that had never been seen before. Aerosol cans, the Polaroid camera, which was really big at the time. The invention of the microwave, cooking food like never before. Whether it's healthy, well, we don't know, but (laughs) in any case, and, and in further back times, um, a lot of the, so the Wright brothers developing the airplanes and then the first time that, you know, more commercial planes were developed, all of these kinds of things happened during Uranus and Gemini. So there's a lot with aviation. It's very interesting. And that's why I like the connection with the cosmos 
could be really big during this time. So this is exciting, fast-paced, fast-moving. Um, something to look forward to overall. I just hope that we don't go too far into the negative reaches of technology, right? That's what we want to uh, to hope oh, does not occur. Now, this Neptune and Saturn and Aries thing is this is going to be a very different kind of energy than what we've had so far. Um, I think this will be a somewhat uncomfortable energy, honestly. This is not as magnificent. So the ones I've shared with you so far are fairly magnificent and positive. This is going to be more difficult. Um, there's a lot that happens in 2025 that's really big shifts. So there's definitely the feeling that we're entering into a completely different reality in 2025 and 2026. So Neptune will enter Aries on March 30th, 2025. Uh, Neptune has been in Pisces for a long, long time. I don't have the dates right on here, but a very long time. And then we'll stay in Aries until 2038. So, oh, here we have Neptune has been in Pisces since 2012. Okay. So this is a huge shift. And there's been a lot that's happened with Neptune in Pisces around the expansion of our visionary abilities, people working with dreams. These are some of the themes of both Neptune and Pisces. They carry the same archetype. Okay, so it's dreams, visions, imagination, um, inspiration from other from the multi dimensions, um, shamanic work, traveling into the other dimensions. So there's been a lot happening with that since 2012. Um, Neptune, as it says here, rules addiction, alcohol, art, compassion, enlightenment, fantasies, dreams, sacred medicines, ideals, spirituality and water. Now, Aries is very different from that. Okay, Neptune and Pisces were the same, all those same themes both of them together. But Aries is this more warlike energy, action, aggressive, aggression, assertiveness, courage, leadership. And so one thing that seems clear here is that ideas, imagination, visionary abilities will be able to take great leaps ahead. And again, I think that all of this is going to come so much more into the mainstream and be things that we can really take action on in much more concrete ways. Um, and then Saturn is going to enter Aries on February 13, 2026, um, and will be there through 2028. Now, this is a big paradox. I think that things are going to be moving forward with the ideas, imagination, visionary abilities when Neptune goes into Aries. But when Saturn gets there, it's going to put a halt to that kind of thing because Saturn slows things down. Saturn rules structure, hard work, and time. And Aries only wants to rush heedlessly ahead. So this is a conflicting, two very conflicting forces. Uh, plus you got Neptune in there. So it's really an interesting combination. So the Saturn-Neptune conjunction, when these two are going to come together, will be exact on February 20th, 2026, at the first degree of the entire zodiac, zero degrees, Aries. It's considered the hinges of the world. This is the like the axis that the entire world shifts around. And really, we'll feel this strongly for the full period from May 2025 to March 2026, because they'll be very close together. And as it says here, Saturn and Neptune are two very different ends of the spectrum. Saturn is concrete form, slowness, frustration, Neptune symbolizes the transcendence of all of that <laughs> and the dissolving of boundaries. So when these planets have conjuncted previously in history, it often correlates with historical periods that pit the rational against the irrational. 
and visionary beliefs and esoteric concepts against structure and government. So this could be a time, what I feel and sense for this is that all of these shifts we've made with Pluto and Aquarius and Saturn and Pisces and being able to actually bring the visions and the imagination and the esoteric into mainstream, I think that the governments are going to just very strongly want to counteract that. And there's going to be some major things that happen where maybe it'll be like one of those or the other needs to rise above the other. Hopefully the visionary beliefs and esoteric concepts can rise, you know, carried by the people and really create, as it's saying here, like a new world order, new theories and belief systems can come through that are more based on the sacred, more based on the esoteric than we've seen in thousands and thousands of years. Um, but the fact that this occurs at the first degree of the zodiac is huge. This represents complete new beginnings, complete new understandings of reality coming through for the entire world. Um, so this is really big. And I think it will be difficult. And again, it's it's like this is needed. These kinds of breakdowns are needed. And we want to, as always with these, you know, see where it falls in your chart. See what house is zero degrees Aries. That's going to be really important for you personally. Um, but we want to tap into the positive potentials here. Energize that. Okay. Vision around that as much as possible. So that's what we're creating through every thought, through every word. So I mentioned Pluto and Aquarius. I mentioned Uranus and Gemini. Well, these two major heavy hitters are going to trine one another from 2025 to 2028 again and again. So Pluto between one to eight degrees of Aquarius will trine Uranus between one to eight degrees of Gemini. There are three exact trines on these dates that I have here, July 18, 2026, November 29, 2026, and June 15, 2027. So this is a trine. It's a positive aspect. Okay. It's going to support us in creating positive changes in the long run, but it can feel underworldly with Pluto. It can feel beyond our immediate grasp. Like things will be happening in the mystery. Things will be happening in the unknown. Okay. But overall it is positive because it's a trine. It's not a square. Fortunately, it's a trine and this will positively affect in your chart. One to eight degrees Aquarius, one to eight degrees Gemini, and also one to eight degrees Libra. Whatever you have at one to eight degrees Libra, it will be creating a grand air trine with your degree of your chart there and Pluto and Uranus. Very interesting. So this is going to be about lightning fast technological progress, as I've already mentioned, massive social change, global changes in power dynamics, reform and revolution. Um, this is just going to feel particularly electrically charged and fast moving. And my sense is it may feel as if we're evolving faster than our ability to even comprehend what's happening. Um, Uranus finally will pull away from the trine with Pluto in June 2028. So this is going to be really strong from that midpoint of 2026 to June 2028, especially. So, this is why I'm saying these transits that are happening in 2023, like Jupiter in Taurus, Venus conjunct the North Node in Taurus, we need to become really proficient at holding that calm center within, proficient at the self-care, proficient in grounding, connecting to nature, connecting to the heart, 
within ourselves that, that knows the ultimate truth. Because when these more electric, fast moving, you know, a kind of unsettling transits happen, and again, this is pa- positive overall, okay, this, this trine, but it's going to feel wild. So when those things are happening, we know how to ground in. We know how to keep ourselves calm. We know how to not go into fear. Okay, we're almost done here, guys. Um, one more piece that's really important. I know this is way far out in 2028, but it's really important to keep in mind with all we're going through now. All right, Saturn's going to enter Taurus on April 12, 2028. This will be a big relief for one thing when Saturn moves out of Aries because Saturn will stop exerting his, you know, slowdown and challenging forces in sign of Aries and forward progress will become easier. Aries will be able to stand for what Aries stands for once again, which is forward movement. Um, and this is really critical because Saturn in Taurus is going to assist us in building the world back up after everything that Uranus has torn down and deconstructed between 2018 to 2025. With Saturn in Taurus, both of these are slow and steady energies. So this will be slow and steady growth and building. But now at this point, 2028, we've been revolutionized. We've been recalibrated on so many levels that we would never build it back up the way it was before. Clearly that didn't work. And instead, and we're meant to be learning these lessons right now, these lessons of Uranus and Taurus, these lessons of Saturn and Aquarius and Pisces, so that we can know how to build it in new ways based on sustainability, compassion, integrity, mutual respect, strong values systems, which is all that Taurus stands for, and trust in the larger plan that's unfolding for all of us. So this is a lot that I've shared. I I really recommend you to, you know, listen again if you can, or at least make sure you're marking these dates down so you can come back and tune into them as they're getting closer. This is just huge. I mean, this is complete um, revolutionization of what our reality is meant to be, that these transits are going to bring to us. And again, the more that we can hold the image of, yes, the, the esoteric, the metaphysical, our knowledge of who we truly are, placing life at the center, right? The more that we can hold the energy for these things to grow in our world, for these things to become more and more accepted by the mainstream, right? And and that governments and corporations cannot put these values down anymore. We are here to hold them strong. We are here to share them with the world. Um, that's such a huge part of what events Global conferences like this are doing, right? Sharing this information so that we can create the groundswell so that we can shift things from the grassroots level so that it can roll out into the greater collective in a really beautiful way. So this is our role here as we navigate these powerful, powerful transits. Now I have two free gifts for you today and I'll put these in the chat. And also, if you're watching this later, um, these will be on my speaker page within the conference. Don't worry, you'll be able to find them somewhere. <laughs> um, you'll notice that I reference Egypt a lot. So the free gift number one is an inspiring video workshop to awaken your connection with ancient Egypt. It's really fun. It has a beautiful shamanic journeying practice as part of it. I hope you will love that. And also... My second free gift is three keys to th- to 
thriving. It's meant to be thriving, actually, in the realm of revelations and miracles. Let me just correct that. Thriving is what we're doing here. <laughs> um, that's a cosmic transmission in a creative workshop. I had so much fun creating that. That was in September as I was just coming out of my uh, deep, dark journey into the underworld. So very interesting, the transmissions at that time. I also want to let you know about some exciting opportunities related to Egypt because Patricia Aoyan Lehman and I are co-leading a tour in person in Egypt in this beautiful month of March 2023 that I told you about so much here today. It's called the Rise of the Winged Kepper Tour. It's going to be beyond incredible, just beyond. So let me put these in the chat too. And if you want to come back to these links, um, if you pull up this page, let's see, that I'm going to put in the chat right now. This will bring you back to the free gifts and to all the information that I just shared. And that's where my video will be posted. Um, so you can you can access everything from that page. OK, in case you lose the chat. Also, I have the ongoing Mysteries of Egypt online course. OK, we still have three live class sessions coming up. There's a total of eight sessions and we have three more that I am still yet to deliver on November 21st, December 5th and December 19th. If you would like to join, it is donation based. You can send the amount that feels right for you, that is right for your financial situation. Um, it, it's really open for you to come and join and just immerse in the beautiful energies of Egypt. We're visiting one temple in each class. I have beautiful images from all the temples to inspire you. And so you can receive the transmissions from those places. So even if you can't go live with me and Patricia, you can take the class and join by donation and really enjoy. Now, all of these links I'll also post um, in the description field of YouTube after we end the live call here. And I have one more really special announcement. Okay. Um, and I'll put this in the chat right here. So I guide others. Oops, didn't want that. I guide others to create conferences like this one. Um, I have been doing the creating these conferences for my own business and it has revolutionized my own business ever since 2015. And I have trained many, many, many people over the years to also create their own soulful summits and global conferences. Now I'm starting a new mentorship group. I start one or two of these groups every year for summit creators. This is a small group. Okay. There will only be a maximum of five to seven people in this group. Um, because I know that you need my personal attention to really make your summit happen and to really make it a success. So if you are interested Go and check out this link. I have one space left for the group starting on November 29th. If you're ready, if you have a business like what I talked about earlier in the presentation that's around energy healing or metaphysics or your coaching or your therapy work to help people shift into this new world and you're ready to really get your soul's mission and message out there in a big, impactful way, Utilizing all of these powerful energies we're going to have in 2023, you can check out the possibilities at this link right here. And there are also opportunities to work with me one-on-one. -on -one. So if the group fills and you still want to work together, we can do one-on-one. -on -one. I have a few openings for 2023. 
Um, and if you'd like to move forward, you can either purchase from that page or you can submit the Soulful Summit interest form and I'll get back in touch with you soon. So exciting times and that's one great way to make the most of them. <laughs> so I want to thank you all for attending 2023, 2024, 2025 forecast event. I hope you will enjoy each and every interview. I hope you've enjoyed this and received so much from this talk. And I do want to open up for questions. I know we're over the hour um, and some people may have to go. But if you want to put a question in the chat, please do on YouTube as well. You can put questions in the chat and let me just see if there's any questions. Hi, everybody on YouTube. Yay. Watching live. Let's see. We have 87 people watching on YouTube right now. So glad to have you all here. And we've had over 200 on most of the Zoom calls. So that's fabulous. So glad you all were able to join live. Let's see. Da, da, da. Michelle, you were in Egypt on 2-22-22. I was there too. That's, that was such a powerful time to be there. Yay. I'm so glad you've been there. Um, thank you, Deanne. Yes, I would love to have you all join Mysteries of Egypt. It's, we're having so much fun in there. It's so incredible to explore those temples. And yes, the climate meetings are in Egypt. Yeah, there that is deeply meaningful. I'm so fascinated by that. Let's see. Any questions, guys? I don't see too many questions. Oh, here's one. Constanza. My ascendant is Pisces. With Saturn there, will I have limitation? How can I use this energy in a positive way? Okay, that's a great question, Constanza. So, and I don't do, I don't, Always, I can't always answer all of the personal chart questions, but this one, since there's not a lot of questions, I have time. So let's dive in. So Constanza, the ascendant, your ascendant represents who you are at the very core of your being. The ascendant is the first personality traits that we start to see exhibited by like one, two, three year old children. They're starting to walk and talk and express themselves. So your ascendant is like the core of who you truly are. Now, when Saturn comes in, um, and, and with it, let me just say first too, an ascendant in Pisces, you, um, are probably very open to the visionary realms, the multidimensional realms. When Saturn comes in, he's going to throw some challenges your way. He might throw some limitations your way. But what you want to keep in mind is that Saturn wants you not to just shut down and stop your life. Okay. Saturn wants you to create positive structures, to create positive foundations, to be able to share that visionary ability, okay, to be able to share your, you know, shamanic abilities, your ability to travel into the other realms, to share it with the world in a bigger way, to really help you to make a positive difference and create your legacy work around who you truly are. So he might send you, you know, things that seem like roadblocks, mm. things that seem like unsolvable problems or unsolvable obstacles. And what I recommend is same thing I did. Start having conversations with Saturn. Ask him what he wants you to learn. Ask your guides, what am I meant to be learning from these challenges? That's the way to move through it as quickly as possible because you're then opening to the evolution that wants to happen. Okay, so I hope that will be helpful for you, Constanza. Um, I wrote my slides, Bernie. <laughs> I wrote them. I hope you enjoyed them. 
Barbara, how do we utilize this information with our birth chart? So I'm going to talk more about that on Saturday, Barbara. I'm doing another presentation at 9 a.m. New York time in two days on Saturday, where we'll talk a lot more about that, how to apply this to your birth chart. But in brief, what I'll say now is you want to look at what I presented today, okay, and just find out what houses these different transits are falling in. And from there you'll be able to get a really good idea for the themes and the revolutions that you will be moving through um, in these coming years. Naraya, you mentioned enlightened value systems in the context of Taurus. So, yes, so that is, so value systems is Taurus. Taurus is about our, our deepest integrity, the value systems that we hold dear. Okay. Um, what we what we ultimately believe is at the core of our truth and our principles, okay, every one of us individually. And then Jupiter, I think I was talking about Jupiter and Taurus when I said that. Jupiter represents enlightenment, high consciousness, optimism, abundance, growth, expansion, okay? So Jupiter comes in and expands and enlightens whatever he touches, so when Jupiter's in Taurus, that's what I, that's how I got to enlightened value systems. Um, and I, as I mentioned throughout the presentation, I really think that we are going to be creating a world where the metaphysical aspects, the esoteric aspects, the multidimensional aspects, I mean, you know, even possibly communicating with extraterrestrials and finding that we have more friends than we even knew before. Um, so many levels that this can go to, but that that is all going to become much more a part of the mainstream. And we want to create this in a way that's very different from what the governments and the corporations have been building for so, so many hundreds of years. Um, so hopefully that is helpful. So that will be much more enlightened value systems than what we have now. Um, yes, I will post the slides in the description below the YouTube and also within the conference on my page, which I'll put that here again. Um, you'll be able to find the slides on this page after the conferences, or I'm sorry, after this recording is posted. And yeah, Pamela, I do recommend watching again. I know it was a lot of info I wanted to cover, so you can come back and watch it a little slower if you want. Um, Susanna says my Taurus is in Chiron and nine house. Well, I think maybe you meant to say your Chiron is in Taurus in the ninth house. Um, and then you said Sun, Moon, Ascendant. I'm not really sure. I can't really tell from your note where your planets are, Susanna. So I'm not really able to, uh, I don't want to tell you something that's not correct. So I'm not sure. Erica, I'm glad you had magical experiences in Egypt. Yay. You can tell I have a lot of, I have Egypt around me. Beautiful Isis is here above me and Sekhmet is right here. So Egypt will come in and shift your life in the most powerful, beautiful ways. That's for sure. Okay. So let's see. Okay, we're going to go to the next. These are just a few more questions. We want to do the experience of the meditation. So, recalibration of the crystalline grid. This is Cryon. Recalibration of the crystalline grid. 
ones I'm crying on magnetic surface. And my partner opens the door. And in the action of his spiritual intent, there's a meld that occurs. The conduit of communications on this planet called channeling is not that difficult to understand, for it is not something you would call possession. <laughs> it is a meld between the human being's higher self and that energy on what you call the other side of the veil that would communicate. And the bias of the human being would like to assign a personality to whatever comes through. Not understanding that that is not the way it works. I speak to you now through my partner's mind. All of his experiences in language, in thought, all brought together right now. So that as I project to him the thought groups that I wish to show, it gets linearized into language, his language, and given to you. But by his allowance of the process, another energy is created. A quantum energy, that is to say a multi-dimensional energy, is also present here. And the multi-dimensional energy that is present is one that is not audible. But you can feel it. In a multi-dimensional sense, there is no time. Therefore, anyone listening to this or reading it will receive that energy if they wish to receive it. And if they give intent for the process, it will be just as fresh to them as it is to you. And so we say it again to you, long after this particular meeting on your clock, long after that, long after it is finished, there will be those involved in this meeting. In what you call the recordings or the transcriptions. And to them it will be now. Like to you, it is now. And because of that, we see the potentials of who they are. And so there is more here than meet the eye, dear one. A lot more. I want to give you some information. Information is about why you're here. If we could give this in its simplistic form, it is about Gaia. It is about the energy of Earth. 
It is about those who would come from the creative source itself, which you call God, and come to this planet lifetime after lifetime in order to give the potential of this planet changing its energy completely. And that potential is normally reached within 300,000 years of seeding. The seeding is that which we have called what you received from the Pleiadians. The creation story itself. At that point in time where humanity was given the freedom to know of dark and light. When they can, in their own DNA, claim that there is a peace of God. Planet after planet has been given the opportunity. And you are in its infancy. The last time we sat with you, we discussed some of the human attributes that you have to get past in order to move into this shift cleanly. Sometime before that, we told you of how young you are, that the human race against all odds is very, very young when the earth is so old. We told you the earth and the galaxy are all the same age. We told you that there are others. Life that has been in existence, even in ascension status, thousands of years before the microbes started on the planet Earth. The time schedule is just about right. For you have been approximately 200,000 years from seeding. And now you move into this energy shift So we now discuss what is new, what is coming and different in an esoteric way. You've spent all of this time, human being, to get to the point where you realize that a high consciousness is a possibility for the planet. Not all of you as human beings will see this, but the old souls do. A slow movement toward a planet without war. A slow agreement about the wisdom of how to proceed environmentally. The addition of new inventions that will enhance humanity's ability to have fresh water anytime they want. And amass enough energy so that even in the coldest winters there will be no shortage and no grid loss. These are the things we told you that are coming. But let us talk of the esoterics, for they change as well. What is the goal? You are not here to live lifetime after lifetime as an experiment. There is no experiment here. This is a plan. There is a system. And the system has this planet coming to fruition 
where human nature itself will change. Where DNA itself will change, not the chemistry you can measure. But the energy that creates that which you call the Merkaba. The quantum part of the human being that shines in a dark place. The peace of God that is in you. It starts to become active. And in the process, the human being starts to think differently. That promotes itself through birth of humans to a place where the young replace the old and new consciousness then is more prevalent than old. And that is what you are going through. You approach 21 December, which is the midpoint all over the earth as it occurs all over the earth, time zone by time zone, as the solstice that marks the midpoint of the 36-year alignment. And the next 18 are critical. And this is where it gets esoteric. What is the goal? What is the mechanism? How does it work? And so we want to review with you that which is the crystalline grid. It is part of how humanity communicates with Gaia. And it's not necessarily in real time. It's cumulative and it's not linear. Let me explain. We have told you about a grid of the planet, which is what we would call crystalline. We have told you this is not something that you can see. But it exists. It is a multi-dimensional grid that covers the very dirt of the earth, all of it. It's in your feet now. It's wherever you walk. You might sell, you might say it is a shell that remembers. Crystalline substances in geology are the only known substances to your science that can hold vibration. And so the metaphor of the crystalline grid is a grid that holds memory and energy. And the energy that it holds best and what it was designed for is everything a human being does. The planet responds to you. The consciousness of humanity is imbued into the grid every single day by your actions. Everything you do has energy. It seems like for millennia, thousands of years, these energies that you have created have all been the same. History repeats itself. War repeats itself. It seems like government repeats itself. Greed repeats itself. Until now. And this is where the shift begins. Where you're starting to see in your daily lives the products 
of the shift. The children are changing. Governments are changing. Regular human beings awakening to a shift that is before them where they change the very essence of how they live. The governments currently that are falling are ones that have been here for a very long time. The leaders in total and complete denial, holding out to the very end to face death, and they do. Not for a moment believing that it's actually happening. That's how different it is. They, the ones before them and the ones before them, all had the same kind of control. There was a stability in the old energy. And that is changing. It etches itself onto the crystalline grid, dear ones. Those of you who sense energy, when you stand in a battlefield that is fresh, and it's only several hundred years old, what do you feel? Those of you who sense the energy, you feel the emotion, do you not? Perhaps you feel the sorrow, some even the release of death. Much goes on. The crystalline grid at your feet as you stand in the battlefield knows it all. It was there, and nothing kept it from being recorded. Everything you do gets recorded. But up till now, the things that got recorded were those things with the most emotion. If there was an emotional event on the planet, those who sense these things can go and stand where it happened and feel it. Quite often that's mass death. Sometimes it's joy. But it's been emotionally driven. So you might say that's the caliber. That's the measurement. In that soup of emotion is compassion. Compassion is the catalyst of enlightenment for the planet Earth. We have told you this before. Humans sometimes come in just to be part of an event that creates compassion. And the whole earth feels it and the whole earth is changed because of it. All of it goes into the crystalline grid. If you look at the cumulative emotional impact of the crystalline grid, you will have then the energy of Gaia at the moment. History weighs upon it. Now this is what is changing. And this communication between humanity and Gaia is changing. And this is what I want to show and tell. As you change your dimensional perception of who you are, that means as you take on more of the dimensionality of your higher self, it changes the rules. <laughs> this rule change is the catalyst for Earth's very ascension in the future. 
There will still be those, including old souls and light workers, who will stand and say, this cannot change because. And they're going to give a list, an old laundry list of rules. Overpopulation, they'll say. Pollution, they'll say. And they'll give the list of all the things that you've experienced in the old energy that are issues and problems today. And they won't have a bearing tomorrow. How do I tell you this? If you have an enlightened population, if there is more wisdom, you will have solutions to the unsolvable. You don't know what you don't know. If you live in a black and white earth, And all of a sudden, the kids start coming in in color. (laughs) How do you think it's going to look to them or you? For they will see the things you never did. And you will see them as odd and strange. And that's what's happening. The very earth starts to change how it works because you're changing you. Let me tell you one of them. This crystalline grid of yours has piled up all of these events of humanity and recorded them. And then this is the energy of the planet. And it's been driven by feelings, by emotions, by death, by love, by joy, by compassion. Now I'm going to give you something. That is starting to change. As you change you, Gaia responds and starts to also become multidimensional itself. The crystalline grid is going to change how it remembers things. The first thing, it's no longer going to be linear. Now that means that what you believe is something that adds to itself. When you pile things in a pile, they weigh more. The things on the bottom were first, the things on the top were last, and that is linear. That goes away. Suddenly, the crystalline grid starts to clean itself because it now is responding to light and dark instead of emotion. Now, here's what happens, light worker. We have told you that less than one half of one percent of this planet has to awaken in order to have the entire planet change. We have told you that one half of one percent of the planet are old souls. That's who sits in the room here now. That's who listens to this now. And that's who reads. And you are the ones who have this ability to impact the crystalline grid in a greater fashion that has ever been impacted before. Everything you do, the grid will see. And the old energy, no matter how emotional, will not have an effect. It starts to explain some of the radical attitudes 
you're beginning to see with old energy bastions. I want my partner to explain this better. The old energy on this planet has gotten used to certain things, including the way the crystalline grid works. Old energy, which some of you call dark, likes the fact that the crystalline grid remembers things that are negative. That gives it importance. That's going away. And it doesn't like it. You see, there is a consciousness of dark and light. There is an old balance of dark and light. But when it starts to shift because light workers become brighter, the dark objects. This is all metaphoric to energies on this planet, and I will tell you, you will see the diehards against all common sense. There will be those who will take the old energy to their grave. Yelling and screaming, not believing that that which is around them is shifting and turning so greatly. You'll see it in government. You'll see it in politics. You'll see it in banking. You'll see it in insurance. You'll see it in mortgages. All filled with the old way things work. All of it. This is what is responsible for the economics that this country is having at the moment. For the issues of those on the other side of the ocean who try their best to put together unequal economies in a union of togetherness so that they will not war anymore. And there are issues. And the old energy will fight the issues. And there will be those who say they will not survive, but they will. Ryan, you, you talk in metaphors. I don't want to. I want to give you the basics. Let's put it this way. There was a measuring scale at one time called Earth, and it measured everything in lead. And today it measures it in gold. The crystalline grid is starting to awaken and be responsive to light instead of emotion. A battle can occur and it won't see it. It doesn't care. Guy itself won't care. It won't respond. You know what happens when a war doesn't get an attention? <laughs> Pretty soon, there's no reason for it. And that's what we're saying. Only the things that make a difference to light on the planet will go into the crystalline grid and measure itself as different. It will not see dark. It will not see emotion. The things that had the most impact on human nature in the past that you would remember more than anything else, death, sorrow, murder, is not going to matter. Oh, it'll still be there. But it's not something you're going to want to hear about, dear one. Stand by for that. There's going to be a day when you go to your news and you're going to expect the Good News Channel. 
<laughs> and when they tell you something awful that happens, you're going to turn it off. Because it doesn't suit the magnificence of God inside you. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is catchy. <laughs> Human nature itself will shift. And drama will not hold the key that drives the earth anymore. That's the new news. That's a difference in the way you communicate with the planet. Total and complete difference. That's what we wanted to tell you. What are you going to make of this? What are you going to do next? Let me show you the profundity of this. There are those in the room with puzzles. And you don't know what to do with them. And you're waiting for the synchronicity, for the intuitive answers, which we're going to talk about tomorrow. <laughs> I just told my partner what we're doing tomorrow. He loves that. <laughs> And in the process of the way you work with spirit, dear ones, you become self-balancing. This means that no matter how unbalanced you become, In 3D, spiritually, there is a trigger that will create a self-balance chemically to return. You are self-balancing. That's what an old soul does. When you start to solve the problem you came in with today, whether it's health, whether it's relational, whether it's life purpose, As these things start to be solved, they create light. This is a metaphor. The solution of your problems using the multidimensional source you have within, which is creator source, creates another energy. Solution creates light. There's the engine of light. It's with you solving your problems. And this light is immediately seen by the crystalline grid. It goes into the grid and it changes the planet. Incrementally. In a way it never did before. So as you leave this place, making decisions that are going to enhance your life, enhance others around you, And create peace wherever you walk. You are creating light that the planet knows about and is seeing. And this dear human being should make you stand a little taller. That's what you're here for. That's your goal. No matter what you thought you were supposed to do, everything you do is about that. We've said it before. Sometimes we give human beings things to do to keep them busy. And you think it's your goal. <laughs> your goal is to exist and love God. That's your goal. And in the process, you have marriages and children. There is sorrow. There is death. In the process, there are books that are written, friends that come and go. 
process. And none of those things are goals. All of those are opportunity to create light, do you see? And the old soul is the one who can do it. Because you're self-balancing. That is your instinct when you arrive. You know God is inside. You know there is help there. You know intuitively of your seed biology and the love of those who came first. All of those things inbred in you create a human being that can do what no other human being can do at this point in time. And you sit in front of me. And you're listening and you're reading. Corporally, the room is filled with you. And it isn't any wonder that we walk your feet. That we come into this place in a congratulatory mode. That there were those here whose colors you could see last night before you ever opened the doors and turned on the lights. The room is all warmed up for tomorrow. And the pastor will know it. <laughs> when she stands at the platform, she'll know it. That the love of God is even stronger in her church because of what the light workers did the day before. Because the crystalline grid under your feet changes as you sit and acknowledge who you are, your life's purpose, and the goal of creating light with every step. It starts to change, dear ones. That is what a multidimensional planet in ascension does. It's going to take a long time. But now you've created the ladder where there was none before. You start to build the bridge where there none existed before. Do not fear what comes next, for there are those energies that wish to pull you back who have no idea the amount of light that can push you forward. They're blind to light. They'll scream and yell and go into their own demise in total denial. But you're an old soul and you've seen that before. That's cryptic and needs to remain so. And so, dear ones, all is well. And you look at your life now and say that, all is well. Can you believe that there is purpose behind your life? Young person and senior, it makes no difference because you will swap positions soon. <laughs> it's what you do. And you're not going to miss the end, I'll tell you that. All of you are coming back. This is what we see, dear family, because we've seen it before. This is a routine that you have felt many times, but never on this planet called Earth. And that's the way it is today. And so it is. Hi, everybody. Thanks for watching this. I wanted to tell you this is a little time sensitive. Greetings, dear ones. I'm Cryon uh, of Magnetic Service. I want to talk about connections.
We have spoken of these things before. But I want you to wipe the slate clean of who you really think you might be historically. Let's paint the picture that we have many times before. You are sitting here or listening as an old soul. The definition we have used of an old soul is one who has been on this planet many, many times. And therefore, you have an accumulation of wisdom, of experience. And as you sit here, you know so. Whatever makes you different, you feel it in the wisdom. And that is to say you would recognize when you start speaking to people, discussing things, that you seem to know things they haven't discovered yet. This is the old soul. It doesn't make the old soul that special or above or below any other human being any more than it does when you go to school. You go through a process, all of you, where you learn things at a certain level and you move to the next level and you learn more. And you're all together in the school. So there is no one who is better or worse. There is just those who know more. That's the old soul. And so you start investigating esoterically, what would that mean? Now, I've given you a hint when we say, dear ones, you might be your own ancestors. That would mean that those in the past, a distant past on this planet, were you. How do you feel to be that old? What might you have gained by being your own ancestor? It's so interesting, is it not, that many of the indigenous will then call in their ancestors to make decisions. And if you ask them, who are you really calling, they may skirt the issue. But they have that, that idea, that paradigm that they were there. So really, they're calling in the energy of the wisdom of who they used to be, as well as the connection with the planet. So when you hear the indigenous consulting their ancestors, it's more than just those who used to live there. It's profound. The societies of today have lost that connection. And so there is a part of the lesson that we have taught over and over to reconnect Reconnect with the past. The past not meaning who you were or necessarily what you did, but the fact that you were even here contributing with the planet and that past that would go into the realization that there is more here than you think, that the earth has energy that you really have not considered in most of the cultures of today. But there's more. So how how far back do you want to go? And the further back you go starts to define who you might be. So let's go to that which the archaeologists say would be the beginning. Maybe 14, 15,000 years ago. And we have told you, well, that was not the beginning. It was more than that. For there was a civilization before yours and one before that. 
We've given you channeling that would say that these are starting to be discovered. Someday there will be archaeology which admits there must have been those before those who you admit are there now. And then you look at that which is the oldest civilization on the planet as measured and provable, and that is the one called the Aborigine. Now you're at 40 to 50,000 years old. So you don't know what civilization you were in, but you know that you were at least 40,000 years old, old soul, especially if you came in at the beginning. Now you have a tremendous background of knowledge, of being a human through all of this. All of that stops at about 200,000 years ago. And that is the timeline that we have given. The timeline for the kind of evolution which gave you a different kind of DNA. You might say, some of you have been here since then. Since it all began in some way. Now, that is amazing. How old are you? Wow. You cannot even conceive of that distance, that many past lives. What if all of that was still inside you? We teach that it is. Nothing has been withheld from your DNA experience. And so you can even remember civilizations that are not even recorded or admitted on this planet. There were far, far fewer of you back then, dear ones. But old souls on this planet have often participated in most of those. That's why there aren't that many old souls in comparison to the billions on the planet and the few million of you. How old are you? And if you were there from the beginning, what was your connection, truly? to all that is, to the creative source, to the teaching of those from the stars. Those from the stars. Oh, my goodness. Let's think about that for a moment. If you ask many indigenous on this planet, especially the ones who are still in touch with their heredity, their mythology, their traditions, and their ancestors. If you start to ask them the question of how things got started, in other words, ask an indigenous, what is your creation story? Many of them will say, we came from the stars. Hmm. Now we get esoteric, dear ones. I want you to wipe the slate clean of everything you ever thought you knew. (laughs) Of what you were told. About who you might be. When the Pleiadians got here, the whole purpose of that ascended planet was to give you the knowledge of the Creator. To alter your DNA so that you kept what was, what was working for you and they added on to it. It was morphed, adjusted, and the additions were that which were Pleiadian. Mm-hmm. 
You therefore have DNA from the stars. If this is so, how old are you? Let's stop for a moment. I want to give you some astronomy in a way that I haven't necessarily given to you before. We interrupt this esoteric time to give you science. But those who listen to it will say it's pseudoscience because it's not accepted yet. It's not believed yet. And like so many other things, there will be a day when scientists, astronomers, listen to this channel and say, you know, he was right. (laughs) So let's talk about what they don't accept yet. You might have noticed in many of the channelings of Cryon that we speak of your galaxy. We don't speak of the universe. Maybe some of you never picked that up. But this is something we have been doing now for more than 28 years. And almost all of the discussions of things outside of the purview of your solar system are those from the galaxy. Rarely, if ever, do we say the universe. Now, why would this be? It's difficult to, to let you have this information because you don't know what you don't know. There's two things you should know. Number one, the other galaxies, and there are trillions in the universe. The other galaxies are each unique to themselves in so many ways. And even that which you would call normal physics is different from galaxy to galaxy. So we don't talk about the life in other Galaxies, it doesn't refer to your kind of life. This is a setup from the center of your galaxy. The center sets up the physics for the galaxy, period. And the centers of each of the other galaxies are unique to themselves. So in summary, what I'm saying is that physics, that which you believe is universal, changes from galaxy to galaxy. So we only talk about this one because this is the one with your kind of life. Here's another hint to the physicists. We've said it before. Think about it. Use logic. In physics, you have discovered something. And it's correct. There is a polarity for everything. There is a polarity even within your cellular structure. But all the way out to basic physics and the galaxy, there is a polarity. The rules and laws of physics that you have set up shows it. You have a strong and weak force here, a strong and weak force there. Every single rule of physics you have set up, humans, is polarized, strong and weak force. And that is a push-pull energy like magnetics, that literally is responsible for everything you see in the galaxy right to the individual cellular structure down to the molecule of DNA. But in your infinite wisdom of the way things work, you look to the center of the galaxy and you say there is one thing. (laughs) It's not logical. Even in your own physics, it's not logical 
to say at the center there is a black hole, a singularity, which actually violates your own rules of physics. At the center of the galaxy is a pair. There is polarity at the center, and how it pushes and pulls and how it works sets up the physics that you know and study right here on the planet. That is why we talk about your galaxy. So, back to the esoteric. You came from the stars in your galaxy. If it's true, dear ones, that this benevolent, beautiful, graduate civilization called the Pleiadians came almost as angels. They know the one God. I'll say this again. Why is it such a stretch for you to believe this? Why is it a stretch for you to believe there's life on other planets in other systems in your galaxy? Life is everywhere. Where is the logic that it only occurred in one tiny little place? We've said this before. It's like the human being being born, growing up and sitting on the beach on an island and saying, I can only see this beach and this sand. Therefore, because I cannot see others, this is the only beach on earth. It's that silly. It's everywhere. Life is everywhere. But your kind of life that is sentient and knowing about the creator is not everywhere. That is why the Pleiadians came to seed you. It has to be free choice. God inside is given only to few planets of the trillions and trillions that can support life. But only a few get seated like the Pleiadians seated you. They know the creative source. They know the one God, just as you're discovering, dear ones. They are not outsiders. They are not ETs. They are from the creative source. They are the Pleiadians. There was great love in that. To come here and see you and so many of them never go home. Beautiful love in this. It is not odd. It is not otherworldly. It's from the creative source. You have their DNA. Therefore, how old are you? If you have their history, then you're as old as they are. Now there is somewhat of a veil that happens. It keeps you from remembering anything but your earth lives. We say somewhat of a veil because it is in the Akash. It's almost like a block. So you will not go back any further than that which you can recall from your life on this planet. But oh boy, it's in your DNA because you have DNA from the stars. Well, what if we go further? Who seated the Pleiadians? And who seated the ones who seated those who seated the Pleiadians? (laughs) How many billions of years has a soul called you operated in this galaxy? Now, old soul, how old are you? Who are you? You're from the stars, all of you. You were your own ancestors, 
planetary ancestors. You're your own planetary parents. You're your own planetary grandparents. And in that you have more wisdom than you can imagine. And dear ones, that is what's awakening. You're a child of the galaxy, almost from the beginning life that ever was here. Billions of years older than your own planet. That's how old you are. That's the connection that you have. And when so many of you go outside and look at this grand earth and the beauty of it, especially here, sometimes it sweeps in only for a moment, only for a fraction of a second. This is just one of many. And you've been on most of them that held this beautiful life in com- combination with that which you call Pachamama, that which you call Gaia. Every single planet was anointed, initiated, and had an energy that resound to the inhabitants like you do. And that is also carried forth. When you gaze up into the stars, it's harder for you to see it. But don't you feel something? When the stars are out and there's no light pollution and you can see them all, don't you feel part of it? And that's why, because you are. I want you to take this information of connection and understand this part. You belong here. There was not an accident that the lineage of the stars brought you here to the earth when it did, that you could participate in being an old soul through civilizations so you could come to, are you ready? The only one that has made it. The only graduate civilization. The only one. Who did not destroy itself on schedule like the others did, like you were going to. And now you begin an uphill climb. Eliminating darkness. Absorbing light. Paradigm shift. The struggle of old and new. That's where you are. Each of you has short lifetimes. That's going to change. It's not going to be science. It's going to be the evolution of humanity. It's going to be cellular. Because the cells will start evolving. And the telomeres will not shorten. And you will start living longer. Disease will not attach to a higher vibrating human being. And you'll live longer. But all of you, all of you, who have gone through life after life, will eventually, in the corporeal cells and the body you have, will pass over. And when it's time to do that, for each of you listening and in this room, I'll tell you something. That within three of your earth days, the party begins. You awaken into what you already know. To the grandness of being on the other side of the veil in a soul group that is galactic. Knowing what you know, you start to hear the music that you cannot hear now. I am metaphorically talking about things that you have no idea of. And that will then reveal, again, 
the majesty of who you are, what you've been through. And who are you going to meet there in that soul group? And I will tell you, you're going to meet the galactic center of humanity and all those who call themselves children of God. And there'll be trillions, and you'll know them all. And the celebration is grand as you prepare to return, to place the veil again on this planet so you won't remember any of it. It's not a simulation, but it is artificial. And what I mean by that is this earth was made for you. Gaia was made for you. This is the test of energy, not the test of the human. The test of the energy of light and dark that you are beginning to go through. Passing this test will create a planet which will then seed another and another and another. And the entire reason for this is to raise the vibration of this galaxy. It might even change the physics. Is that too high-minded for you? As you sit here in a room in 2018, light years, you might say, away from where it's going. You'll be there. You'll see. The words today are written down. They'll be there. They'll be studied. Someday they won't have to be because you will know intuitively everything that's ever been channeled. And you'll see the reality of the majesty you are and recognize the God inside. Just like the ones who seated you. This is the connection. You can't get your head around it, perhaps. It's too big, perhaps. But it's there for you to ponder when you look in the sky. This is the message, and it always will be the message. As long as my partner can utter it, this is the message of Brian. Magnificence inside. And so it is.
we finished earlier, but I have a little Tom Hartman read here we might listen to for just a few minutes. Here we go. The greatest force for peace on Earth instead is wielded as a weapon. Thunderclouds darkened the horizon, turning the beautiful Stanford, Connecticut sky from blue to nearly black. Within moments, my shirt was soaked with sweat as the August humidity crept down my collar. I heard the voices before I even got to the Purdue Pharma building. As I pulled into a parking spot, my ears started to ring. The shouting grew louder as I was as I hustled through the glittering monolith on Tresser Boulevard. The police are, were already here, shielding the front of the building in a blockade formation. Hundreds of people crowded the plaza. The noise hit me like a wall, and I stumbled as I went into the press of bodies, working my way forward. The ground was covered in shreds of paper, protest messages that people were stuffing into orange plastic pill bottles and leaving on the steps. The officers didn't move. Locked in place, they were there to back Purdue. Standing in the shadow of the building, my sweat turned to ice water. I looked up, craning my neck to take in the whole monstrosity. One Stanford form was the mother's ship. Ten floors of glass windows and dark chrome reflecting the coming storm down at us. It felt nearly abandoned, even on a Friday afternoon, when people should have been coming and going to their jobs. The stillness was eerie, as though the building were listening to us, planning its next move. I felt as if I were looking up at the Death Star for the first time. That's no moon. One Stanford wasn't just a corporate office. It was a national monument to American greed. The 505,000-square-foot building at 201 Trestor was stuffed with Purdue offices. This was ground zero. Inside these walls, the Sackler family-owned company had run the numbers, drawn up marketing plans, and executed their strategies. The company committed cold-blooded corporate genocide, rubber-stamped by the FDA, and co-signed by the free market. More blood had been spilled in that building than I could comprehend. My stomach clenched with nausea. I felt as if I were standing at the gates of hell. On the third floor, in one of the lacquered panes that overlooked the plaza, I could see finger, figures standing at the window. Three or four people clustered together, holding their phones and pointing down at the crowd. I narrowed my eyes. They were taking us. They were laughing. I'd tear the place to pieces with my own hands if necessary. My voice joined the chant that swelled around me. The protest was a furious hurricane, filling the plaza and battering the windows of the Purdue building. I'll end them, I thought to myself. If it's the last thing I do, I will take this place down along with everything it ever stood for. I got the phone call a year later on a beautiful sunny Sunday afternoon in September 2019. It was the long Labor Day weekend, and I was at the Bronx Zoo with my two favorite people for a last-minute vacation. I let go of my fiancé's hand to answer the phone. Sean, who was used to work, who, who, who was used to work interrupting our dates and outings, smiled at me and turned away to talk to my mom. They pointed at the red parkas in the nearest enclosure while I pressed my phone to my ear. Purdue's filing for bankruptcy, the voice on the other end said. Yeah, whatever. I got a lot of calls like this. Everyone had a theory about Purdue, and information spread like wildfire between advocates, reporters, and lobbyists. A lot of it was old news by the time it got to me. We all knew the same stuff because we'd worked tirelessly to take down Purdue and bring them to justice for encouraging and profiting off a national drug, drug epidemic that had claimed hundreds of thousands of lives. Now it's really happening, she said. But I learned that phone call all through the course of almost two years of my life, although it felt like 20. 
I didn't know what it meant, but by the time I hung up and turned back to Sean and my mom, the gears of history were turning at lightning speed. Within two weeks, Purdue Pharma did file for bankruptcy. Before I knew it, I was in a room packed with every person I'd ever squared off with. That day was the last calm moment I experienced for the next 22 months. Life before the Purdue case wasn't exactly smooth sailing, but I navigated the waves with some help from my partner and my friends. I wasn't new to being a disruptor, but I was about to be catapulted to a level of involvement I hadn't imagined was possible for people such as me. Previously, I'd worked to support a range of policy issues and devoted countless hours to advance forward-thinking addiction recovery legislation. I knew what the numbers were in the crisis. I saw firsthand how addiction tore families apart, destroyed entire communities, and killed our most vulnerable people. In the first years of my recovery, I lost more than two dozen friends to preventable overdoses. I visited dozens of communities as part of a documentary project in 2016 called Addiction X America and witnessed the losses sustained by ordinary families everywhere. I stayed in homes with parents who'd lost children to Purdue Pharma's best-selling painkiller, OxyContin. I ate at the tables of families that would never be the same. I vowed that I would be justice to them and all the people who, like myself, and lost years of their lives to produce rapacious hunger for profits. I told these stories and testimony I delivered to Congress in front of thousands of people calling for change and the gates of institutions with the Sackler family name emblazoned over them. I wrote my first book, American Fix, Inside the Opioid Addiction Crisis and How to End It, which was published in 2018. I talked about the crisis on MSNBC, Fox News, and any other outlet that would listen to me. The book is Unsettled by Ryan Hampton. That's about the Purdue Pharma bankruptcy and how it failed America. Okay, everybody. We still got a minute or two, so I picked out something here from Aurora Ray. And um, this is from 9-11 the date 9-11 this year. And she said, great solar flash will bring about massive positive changes for all of humanity and the earth, allowing us to enter a new epic of peace, harmony, and prosperity an exciting era that we have been preparing for throughout many lifetimes. And I can't read the whole thing. I'm just going to see what it says toward the end. Uh, Let's do it from here. Momentito. The time is now to begin preparing for this event. We have the power to trigger the flash by changing our consciousness and activating our DNA, which will transform the planet into a fifth-dimensional world. Write down any questions you might have and leave them be. Focus only on the now. And do not worry about the future. Be appreciative of the present. Crave to receive everything that the universe has to offer. 
as we can focus on the positive and allow our vibration to rise every single day, we will receive unimaginable healing energy. Release as much negativity as possible and all of the miracles that are destined for our lives will indeed occur before our our very eyes throughout the year ahead. This is what Kryon was saying and this lady in with the astrology. For those who are sincere in their intention, I cannot envision why this would not be a reality. Have faith and trust and know that no matter what happens with this incredible solar flash event or anything else in our lives during this year, that the universe is always working for good in love and light. So begins the greatest event to take place in our lifetime. Yet this fact Flash is not just for those who believe in its existence. Rather, it is for everyone, whether they recognize it or not. The cosmic energy released during the solar activation will reach all people, even those who are still in denial of its existence. That is how powerful this is and why we must prepare ourselves now by doing whatever we can to increase our vibrational frequency and be ready to move into a higher state of being. And so it is, and we love everyone, and so we will take a little break now, and we will come back with a bit of music that Rama is in charge of selecting for all of us, and then we'll have a listen to our brother Richard about the stars and what's going on. Uh... Right here, right now. <laughs> and uh, then we'll hear Tanya and we'll hear Kay Pacha, et cetera, et cetera. But see you for a moment. We'll, we'll take a little break to, and we'll see you back in about 10 or 15. Okay. Namaste, everyone. Namaste. That's the talking stick to you, Richard. Oh, Almost there, Richard, right? All right, all right. You hit me early. <laughs> yes, you did. You had time for another song, Rama. Oh, okay. Well, I wouldn't. Well, you, have you got one queued up? Uh, yeah, but I can play don't it. Wor- don't worry about it. We'll just we'll just go ahead and and acknowledge that we're 32 days from the winter solstice. Wow. Holy macaroni. Wick. Yeah. 32 days. The sun is in 28 Scorpio. Whoops. Oh, my God. And Venus and Mars are at 5 Sagittarius. Leading the way. I don't know if they'll be ahead of the sun by the time we get, you know, 30 days in the future, but uh, I haven't looked that up yet. I don't care right now. Uh, we've got a, uh, we, we still got that, uh, 
major trine between the sun and Jupiter <laughs> and Neptune. And uh, Pluto's kind of midway in between that, sextile to uh, Neptune and Jupiter and sextile to the sun. And the moon tonight is in, what is that, nine? Let me, let me, let me click here so I can read larger. I need large, I need my, I need to work on my glasses condition. Yeah, the moon's at nine Libra. Oh, conjunct my Saturn. All right. Now, um, and that's it. Then we still got, we still got Saturn square Uranus. Now Aquarius to Taurus. Mars has backed up all the way to 23 Gemini. And, uh, that's the thing. It's still retrograde. Who's not retrograde? Saturn's not retrograde, and Pluto's not retrograde. But Uranus, and Neptune, and and Mars, Jupiter's stationary, direct. All right, Jupiter's going to turn around and and, and and advance. Yeah, this. Chiron and Aries are thinking about that a little bit, and I think we could, I think we could rationalize reasonably that with Chiron and Aries, we're we're starting a we're starting a new cycle at a at a higher uh, higher turn on the spiral of evolution, right? Especially when you consider humanity as an entirety, right? Maybe, maybe, just maybe, the way these people are thinking about climate issues on the terrestrial plane, the Earth plane, maybe this. uh, uh, See, the problem is problem is. If if the goal is to raise people out of poverty, mm-hmm. it takes energy. Yep. How you get that energy <coughs> is the question. I heard a, I heard a great great thing on BBC Radio. Two ladies working in solar solar energy installations one lady's in from nigeria and she's got a she's she's training and hiring women to install solar panels and along with the solar panels they're giving uh lights to people who never had electricity before yeah they got solar yeah get a solar lamp driven by a solar panel and then you can have you can have light in your grass hut right as long as you got a few light bulbs and then they then they also have developed um a a solar powered stovetop so they can they can cook without breathing uh 
fumes from open fires, etc. Yes, thank God. See, that's all. That's all a good thing, you know. And uh, so, yeah, we'll, you know, and Saturn operating in Aquarius, you know, that's pointing these things out. All right, let's go see what Kaipacha wants to tell us about this week. I don't know. Oh, yeah, Moon's opposite. Uh, moon's opposite Chiron tomorrow. Oh. So uh, you may want to take a little self-care break. I mean, it is Sunday, the traditional day of rest. <laughs> right. Right. Thank you for reminding all of us. Yeah, just don't work so hard on Sunday. I'm gonna I'm gonna cook tomorrow. That's what I'm gonna do. That sounds like fun. Yeah, I'll cook I'll cook up some things to to uh, eat on during the week and maybe throw some extras in the freezer. Mm-hmm. I- all right, take it away, Kaipacha. Here we go. with the weekly Pele report for November 16th of 2022. Pura Vida, I have made it back home to the Machuca Rio after like six months. It's been a long time. If you go back to the Pele reports of March and April, you might remember this river was just a tiny little stream. <laughs> barely moving at all. It's the freaking rainy season. And you get to really experience the power of Mother Nature. Speaking of nature and natural law, Venus goes into Sagittarius today. Mercury goes into Sagittarius tomorrow. They are traveling very tightly close together. They are exactly conjunct on Monday. At the 8th degree of Sagittarius, I might read the Sabian symbol for that. Super powerful. I hope this is not too loud. I'm going to have to listen back. I don't know if I can actually do the report this close to the river. Anyway. In the meantime, La Luna is now in Leo. has gone into Virgo today. And by Saturday, uh, is going to uh, be in Libra. So, you know, in Virgo... She's going to oppose that beautiful Jupiter-Neptune conjunction going on over there in Pisces. That's still going on for quite some time. And Mars squared that and now is retrograde, comes back and squares Neptune again on Saturday. It is exact. But again, this is going to be going on all week. Meantime, the sun over there up in Scorpio is in trine to Jupiter. So we've got the Mars square, the sun trine, the moon opposite. Ow! 
We got it all going on, baby. And uh, so, yeah, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, the weekend there, the moon is over in uh, Libra. By Monday, uh, she goes into Scorpio. And balsamic, closing, ending, finishing this eclipse season. Wow. There'll be a new moon next Wednesday. I will talk about that on the Pele Report next Wednesday. But, uh, yeah. Let me look at the camera, explain a little bit about what all this means. That new uh, moon is happening at 1 degree 38 minutes of Sagittarius. So we're closing out this Scorpio moon cycle, eclipse cycle, and I'm sure many things are coming to a close for you. So... Let's talk about it. <laughs> okay, let's do this before I get eaten alive. You know, you would think by now that I would bring some citronella with me on these on these things. I just head off like the fool, you know. Dot to dot with my little bag of stuff, you know, off into the jungle with ten million mosquitoes, and think, oh yeah, oh yeah, just you know, do a Pele report. <laughs> Oh, my God. Anyway, so much to say today. Uh, I, I think I really want to go into this whole idea of the eclipse cycle and the eclipse season that happens twice a year. And it's not just that we have a, a solar eclipse and then a lunar eclipse and goodbye, it's over. But no, no. It is a season. It is, uh, you know, it's a, a time period at least a month long, sometimes longer. But this one, uh, I'm gonna. It's like, I'm just like, can't wait for Sagittarius. <laughs> can't wait for this new moon. I'm just like, let's get out of this eclipse cycle. Yeah, because we are still in it. And I just want to talk about, you know, the, the, the phases of the moon. And, uh, you know, Jessica talked about it a little bit in the lunar report. And I just want to, uh, you know, reiterate on that in case you haven't seen it. And that reminds me that, you know, I, I don't like to promote or advertise myself. But, you know, the, the, sometimes, you know, it helps just to inform people of what's going on. I have a Telegram channel where I post a lot more than I do uh, on YouTube or my website or Instagram or any place else um, because it's, uh, you know, encrypted, yeah? So Telegram, boom, I've got a Telegram channel, I've got a BitChute channel, I've got a Spotify channel, and the Spotify, you can either listen to the Pele Report like a podcast or you can uh, go to the Pele Report soundtrack and there's all the songs. I'm over three hours of songs now, of the weekly songs. So if you like, you know, the music that comes with the Pele Report, you know, the song of the week, whatever, you can check that out. What else is there? My website, yes, I do readings. You know, people ask often. Uh, I, I'm doing readings all the time. Uh, I'm doing workshops in different places around the world. And um, that is all on my website under readings and uh, under events and oh and I have a school I have hundreds of students that want to learn more astrology 
We've got a Telegram chat. We've got, uh, we meet, I meet on Zoom every Sunday with everybody, just about, unless I'm traveling. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, uh, hundreds of, I don't know, a library of videos that, you know, will tell you all about how to read your chart. So check that out. And, uh, and Jessica, and I write the lunar report. The, I do the overview every new moon and then Jessica does every week. And then uh, she does every day, 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 day if you're in the school. Yeah. So there's all kinds of stuff going on. Learning astrology. You are your own best astrologer. I, I am so into helping you understand your own chart and, you know, do your own thing. And, yeah, be Taurus. <laughs> be north, go to the moon in Taurus, conjunct Uranus, which rules astrology. <laughs> And be self-sufficient. Ow! Okay, now, to get back into this whole thing, it's just a cycle of the new moon is like you have the idea, and then it comes around to the full moon, and that idea manifests, and then it goes around, and as the moon wanes, you get, you get the results, you get the feedback, you get the, you know, uh, uh, what is you know, the ripple effect of whatever you created. As an example, okay, you know, at the new moon, you say, okay, well, I'm not happy with this relationship, okay? Uh, there's not enough of this, and we need more of that, so you decide to, you know, have that conversation with your partner. Well, okay, you have to overcome all your doubts and fears and get your, uh, you know, act together. And at the square, probably, you'll say, okay, let's sit down and have this talk. And this is how I feel, and this is what I think, and this is what I want, and this is what... There's not enough of this, and there's too much of that. Okay, yeah. And then, you know, it comes around to that full moon. And, you know, then it's like it's out of your hands. In fact, the full moon could even be that conversation. Or maybe you go to a therapist. Maybe you have a counselor out there, you know, with this full moon. But the thing is that... You know, the, the, what you initiate at that new moon manifests at the full moon. And then it's out of your control. <laughs> then goes into Libra and Scorpio, forces beyond our control. Okay, I can't control. What is my partner going to do with that information? Leave me? <laughs> Uh, want to go deeper, get more intimate, uh, uh, you know, do everything I say, not do anything I say, come back with anger or intense, you know, reactions, blah, 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 right, you know? And so there is this whole second half of the cycle. Let's say at that new moon you want to put on a party, full moon, you put on the party. And then after that full moon... Well, people talk about the party. You know, people got together at the party who never met each other. Uh, people got angry and had arguments at the party. Maybe somebody overdosed or hurt themselves at the party or whatever, right? You know, all these, you know, all this stuff goes out. It goes out. It goes out. And it comes back. So we're, we are now in this phase, right? We have the moon square the sun is today, okay? 
the sun in late Scorpio, moon in late Leo, boom, happening as I speak. That third quarter square is where it comes back on us. And then we move into the balsamic, right? The moon starts getting smaller and smaller, crescent, 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 disappears to become that new moon, right? Well, this is where everything just goes, you know, Pisces, 12th house, balsamic phase, chaos, confusion, surrender, allow, accept, just meditate, and and even in Aquarius, non-attach, like step back and step out. So, you know, we're in this balsamic phase for this next week. And you, and even since last week, since that full, since that total lunar eclipse, it's like, you know, it's like the boat set sail, man. And you're, you know, it's, you can't manage it. You can't control it. You can't. You get a feeling of powerlessness, of, uh, you know, of weakness, of, uh, you know, just helplessness, can go into hopelessness. Look at that mosquito flying right in front of the camera. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, those are not spirits. <laughs> it's a freaking mosquito in front of the camera. I know people see everything in these reports. Like, you know, there's, ooh, look at who's behind me over there. Look at that. Anyway. So, I tell you, I mean, it's, uh, it's, this is a challenging period, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And you may be feeling, you know, this sense of loss, this sense of, uh, you know, powerlessness, this sense of that, you know, and, and what's gone is gone. And, and Scorpio is the sign of death letting go and and this is just like okay I cannot control it I can I put I, I put in as much as I can put in or I've done as much as I can do and that brings me to what the four agreements by Miguel uh, uh, what is it Don Miguel Ruiz I just got a copy of the four agreements I pasted it Okay, you know, it's my screensaver on my desktop, on my computer. <laughs> Every time I open it up, boom, I got these four agreements. I'm going to post them uh, at the end of today's report. If you want to snap a screenshot of that yourself, you know, these are very powerful. And I know they've been around for a long time. And, you know, it's uh, still good reminder. Yeah, be impeccable with your word. Uh, say, you know, speak your truth. You know, this relationship is too much or not enough or blah, blah, blah. I mean, do put it out there. And then shh, the feedback. Don't take it personally. This is a big one, especially for me, especially for Pisces, 12,000 Neptune people who want to save, who want to rescue, who want to help, who want to be nice. And then it comes back and they're not happy or they, you know, uh, you know, and it's your fault or blah, 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 blah. It's, you know, Leo and cancer take things personally a lot, you know, for sure. 
Yeah. And so, you know, this is what it, this is saying is really everyone, everything that people are feeling, they project onto you. And we all need to like own our projections and own our shadow and own our stuff and not be blaming, 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 blaming. That's it. So if you're feeling down, it may be the result of guilt, taking other people's assessment of you. Scorpio is other people's values. Well, other people can try to impose their values on you. So it's also the eighth house is the house of conflict. Scorpio is a sign of conflict. It's where you have to stand up and say, you know, I don't value the same things you value. I don't want the same things you want. So either I'm out of here or you're out of here or you're going to leave me alone or we're going to da 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 That being impeccable with your word, you know, another part of that is just summoning up the guts to speak. We also have a, you know, suppress, oh, I'm not happy with this relationship. But if I say something, I don't want to disturb, I don't want to rock the boat. I don't want to, like, get my partner angry. I don't want to threaten, you know, the security of this relationship. So I'm just going to zip it. I'm going to shut up and I'm not going to say anything. You know, and then I'm going to be a martyr, you know, whatever. But I'm not going to be, we're not going to be happy. So we also, this is Mars in Gemini. Even though it's retrograde, it's still in Gemini. It's in a nice trine to Saturn over there. I don't know if I recommend, uh, uh, mentioned that. Yeah. What else have we got going on? Yeah. Well, besides, you know, being impeccable with your word, not taking things personally, don't make assumptions. Don't assume that because you want something a certain way, everybody's going to want it that way. <laughs> right? Like, come on! <laughs> you know, like, don't be assuming that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and not only too much, but too little. Don't assume that you're going to fail. Don't assume that it's never going to work. I'm going to try not to assume that it's going to rain any second on this Pele report. <laughs> so this really brings our focus into a shorter period of time. When you get overwhelmed, just deal with what's going to happen in the next 12 hours. Yeah? yeah. Narrow it down, man. And then, of course, last but definitely not least, okay, just... Always do your best. Always do your best. Then you got no regrets. You tried your hardest. Nobody can come back and say you skipped out. You know, you didn't give it your all. Blah, 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 blah. You know, and, and, when, and when you're doing your best, that's all you can do. You can't do any more than your best. <laughs> so, you know, then you can sleep at night. You know, I did my best. Maybe it wasn't good enough. Maybe it failed. But it was my best. I gave it my best shot. I really think that these, you know, can help us through these time periods of, okay, 
where there is loss and there is depression and there is evil. That's another thing Scorpio in the eighth house deals with evil. Yeah? The taboo, the evil, the dark. Okay? The exploitation, manipulation, the Jeffrey Epstein's, the whole, you know, the whole perversion. The whole, I mean, all this underground, covert stuff. Speaking of which, I watched uh, The Social Dilemma again. You know? I know it's, it came out a little while ago, but it's still... It's a classic, I think, and it kind of really brought me, you know, into a place of depression. <laughs> Just how, you know, the minds of young people are being, you know, manipulated by, you know, these huge, uh, you know, social media networks. And we can go beyond that into political networks and world government networks and medical networks. And, I mean, there's a lot of manipulation, a lot of exploitation, a lot of bullshit, a lot of, a lot of lies. Okay, there's just a lot of hell going on out in the world these days. And, you know, sensitive psychic people really pick it up. And you may be one of those. And you may be feeling feelings that are not really, you know, your problem. And they're certainly not beyond, I mean, they're certainly beyond your control. You're not going to be determining, you know, what the CDC or the WHO or some billionaire does. So these, you know, these are situations totally beyond our control. And they can get us down. Death is beyond our control. But if we dwell on it and we think about it, it can definitely bring us down. <laughs> that this could happen, this could all be over any minute. So what do you do with all of this? What do we do with all this? I, I just want to, again, I want to say this powerful coming into the now, but not only coming into the now, and this also has to do with the mantra for this week. It has to do with like what I, I just came up with last night as I'm doing the dishes, you know. I'm doing the dishes and it's just like, wow, wow. You know, I'm really thankful that I had food, uh, you know, for my dinner tonight. And I'm really thankful that I have these pots and pans to cook the freaking food. I'm, I'm really glad that I got a stove and I got gas, propane, you know, to cook my food. I mean, there's a lot of people who don't. I'm glad I got fingers so that I can make my food and eat my food and do these dishes. There's people with no fingers. Yeah. Right? I'm glad, I'm glad I got a refrigerator that I got food in that freaking thing because there's people who don't even have food. I mean, it's like, you know what? I mean, if we really look around, there's so much. You know, every moment of life is a gift. We are, we're, you know, we can just be in a place of what we're missing. Or we can be in a place of what we're getting, like that mosquito. 
flying right in front of the camera again, you little bastard. <laughs> I, I do services to humanity every time I smack these things, and I know, I know the Buddhist saying that uh, you know, if, if you uh, even kill an insect or you kill anything, it's a thousand lo- more lifetimes. <laughs> well, I got a few more thousand coming. <laughs> But maybe you won't get bit by a mosquito because I got that sucker. <laughs> anyway, where was I, man? Uh, yeah, I just kind of had the blues today. So challenging to do the Pele report. You know, I kind of woke up. I got here. My car is dead. Charged up the battery. Still won't start. Got to tow it. Things I can't control. Things that are just, you know, not going our way, not going my way, not going the easy way. So what we want to really come back to is, and I got this in that Tantra workshop, you know, it's just consciousness wanting to experience itself through me and consciousness wanting to experience every possible aspect Light or dark, good or bad, good or evil, right or wrong, pleasant or torturous. You know, there is this whole spectrum of life, of consciousness, that is coming through the experience of Kaipacha. And, you know, and you are another ray of consciousness experiencing itself through you. And we can step into this detached place. We can step into this observer. And Scorpio is desire. Mars, Pluto, it's like, you know, very powerful emotional desire, emotional attachment. And we're coming around, you know, this is Saturn and Aquarius. Uranus, the ruler of Aquarius, on that north node, breaking free, liberating ourselves from emotional attachment, sexual attachment, financial attachment, intellectual attachment, attachment to power, attachment to things, attachment to position, to a job, to a country. I mean, if we can move into this place of non-attachment, we will move into a place of liberation. Liberation, grasshopper. (laughs) So what do I say for the mantra today, this week? Repeat this one just over and over and over again. It just like came to me last night when I was, you know, down. Don't bring me down. Okay, my spirit, spirit, okay, not ego, not body, not mind, not emotions. My spirit, my spirit is indomitable. Love that word. (laughs) Indomitable. I shall not fail to feed the fires of love on earth that wisdom And truth prevail. We're moving into Sagittarius. 
The cool thing is that Mercury is going there tomorrow. Venus is there today. They're getting a head start on the sun. So it may, you know, it may smooth this balsamic chaos of the closing phase of this eclipse cycle this week. Knowing that, boom, you know, like Mercury and uh, Venus are already in fire. They're already in Sag. And the sun, right? Next Monday, Halla frickin' Lunia enters into Sagittarius and the, the, the phoenix will rise from the ashes. Yeah. We will, Chiron will rise from the underworld. The Christ consciousness rise. Osiris rise. Dionysus rise. You know, Dionysus got, you know, cut up into a zillion pieces or something. I mean, he, he totally. Osiris is 14 pieces, right? Spread out all over Egypt. But so we're, we're in a place of like scatter. We're in a place of like, we've been blown apart our lives. But our spirit is undominable and we shall not fail. Because the true purpose and meaning and intention of our incarnation is to keep the fires, feed the fires of love on this planet. That wisdom and truth prevail. That's about the truth. And like they said in the social dilemma, you can have all kinds of intelligence, all kinds of intellect, all kinds of answers, all kinds of smarts. But that's not wisdom. Wisdom is the ability to step outside and beyond and look right at the bigger wider cosmic astrological picture Ow! <laughs> thank god for astrology man yeah i'll leave you with that today wishing you the best and i will see you on the other side with that new moon in Sagittarius. Oh, I didn't even read the Sabian symbol, but you know, the, 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 it's even better, the, the, the one for the new moon. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, we got, we got good stuff coming. I've talked long enough. Have a good time. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. <laughs> Talking stick back to you, Richard. Okay. I'm looking at the new moon chart. Your new moon on the East Coast is at 6 p.m. Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Wednesday night. Now, this new moon chart is, it's basically
basically uncomplicated. It's got less complications than than what we've been going through the previous couple of months. So you know the moon, the moon, and the, and it's a two degree again. It's a two degrees of Sagittarius. I believe the eclipse a month ago was a two degrees Scorpio. So this, so this new moon chart is a two degree Sagittarius. It's still trying Neptune and Jupiter and sextile Pluto. And the two squares are still operating. Uh, that's uh, Saturn Uranus square and Mars Neptune square and Mars Saturn trine. So it's a uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty uh, clean and. Decent chart with uh, moderate help and moderate challenges. Not too much of one or another, you know. So we got that going on here. All right. So let's listen to Tanya. And when we get back, I'll read the Sabian symbol for the new moon. Okay. Here we go. Welcome to Star Codes. This is the podcast where we look at an upcoming event in the astronomy, the stars and numbers, to help us navigate the energies the most high vibrational way possible. And in this case, it's the Sagittarius new moon on November 23rd. Sagittarius, the sign that Jupiter rules. So we have a lot of joy and expansion and wisdom at our disposal. So always a welcome time of the year. And this one takes place, as I said, November 23rd at 10.57 p.m. Universal Time London, 5.57 p.m. Eastern Time, and 2.57 p.m. Pacific Time. And you don't need to be a Sagittarius to benefit from this video. You have Sagittarius in your birth chart. So this new moon takes place at one degrees somewhere in your birth chart in one of the 12 houses. And it may be conjunct, trine, square, opposite, sextile, a planet or an angle in your chart. So it, it does impact you in some way. So a few initial points. This is a new moon, so it is about fresh new beginnings, and it happens at one degrees, which of course is the number of fresh starts. It's the first number, and in numerology, it actually means new beginnings. So we have a double new beginnings theme, so that's very exciting. Also, the sun and moon at one degrees are conjunct, merged with Venus and Mercury. Now, if you remember, during the total full moon eclipse on November 8th, the sun and moon were also merged with Venus and Mercury. So that theme continues, and it makes it more personal. So that means there are four personal planets, so the sun being actually a star, but the sun, moon, Mercury, and Venus 
which in astrology govern our personal nature, whereas the outer planets like Uranus, Neptune, Pluto, Saturn, they govern our more subconscious nature. So four personal planets in a stellium, that's a big deal. And they form a trine to Jupiter, Jupiter, the ruler of Sagittarius. So what a fortunate new moon and how different from the November 8th total lunar eclipse which was so intense and groundbreaking and all about sudden changes. And this one is just chill. This is beautiful. It is invigorating in a very joyful, fortunate way. And it lightens up the energy now. The heaviness from earlier in the month is going to really shift. And, you know, Sagittarius always brings a beautiful perspective because of the wisdom, and also because it is very expansive and sees the bird's eye view. Sagittarius sees beyond the horizon, and so that's a welcome retreat as well, because that wisdom and joy and expansion is now what we're going to use energetically to move forward through whatever intensity impacted us earlier in the month. Now, the symbol for Sagittarius is the archer with the arrow, and so that arrow literally is about searching for higher wisdom, higher learning, and spiritual growth. So it's a wonderful time to dive into those topics. So you can do so for free in a free masterclass at spiritualmasteryclass.com. So head on over there and get a taste of what is happening in the ethers at this time in human history this class is really fun and it really helps you to take your power back internally. So go on over to spiritualmasteryclass.com and watch that free webinar. Now, Sagittarius is the fountain of wisdom. The moon is trying Jupiter. The sun is trying Jupiter. Mercury and Venus also are trying to Jupiter. And so there's a lot of wonderful energy here to feel recognized at soul level, to have very good negotiations, to feel happy and free to share your heart, to feel magnetic regarding any career developments, and basically happiness and kindness in a high vibrational way of energy, financial gains, increasing your net worth. All of those are incumbent upon you being grateful because Jupiter and Sagittarius also govern gratitude. So the more grateful you feel, the more you can tap into the wonderful benefits. And benefits is a word that starts with B-E-N-E, which means good. So you absolutely have a lot of goodness in your life at this time. The Conjunction with Venus and Mercury brings up a lot regarding love and also our values, financial flow. And Mercury is also about thinking, thinking clearly. How are your thoughts actually informing you emotionally, right? So basically thoughts move fast when they are merged in a fire sign, which Sagittarius is. So you want to adapt to the variety, be very, very open and not stuck in a thought pattern, like easily get out of it, easily recognize it through that spiritual understanding when you are stuck in a place that is basically invoking old patterns. So this will be very, very important. 
Now, Mercury's conjunction, as it was with the Scorpio lunar eclipse on November 8th, which was also conjunct the actual eclipse itself, which means the sun in this full moon eclipse, Mercury's conjunction with this new moon is placing a major focus on not paying attention to that incessant voice in your head that just runs constantly. And so that way you're no longer impacted by the thought stream, which is the past. So if you are constantly listening to that, you're only functioning based on the past. You are not in the present moment. And if Jupiter is anything, because joy only exists, True joy only exists in the present moment. So to the extent that you can actually see beyond a way of thinking that is based on fear, really, or based on abandonment or based on lack of trust, you know, trust is very much part. Trust and faith is part of the Sagittarius experience. Having faith is part of the fortunate feeling you have inside because you trust that there is a higher divine presence in your life. And Sagittarius is very aligned to that. So having faith in the most high vibrational beneficial outcome, no matter what the situation is, is one of the big themes as well. Now, Mars will be square to Neptune And Mars will be trying to Saturn during this new moon. Mars is the ruler of Aries, the first sign. Remember, this new moon's at one degrees, and the new moon is also about new beginnings, and Aries is the first sign. So that's also indicative of fresh starts. So this creates a much more internalized energy because Mars is currently in retrograde and will be until January 12th. So that inner energy internalizing the energy in terms of where you direct your joy, your energy resources is very, very important. And the trying to Saturn makes it real. It's very beautiful because Saturn is very much connected to everything to do with manifestation and also your career. Saturn governs the 10th house with Capricorn naturally in astrology. So it gives you the fortitude and the responsibility to move forward. Now, in this case, Mars retrograde is making that internal. So you have like this wonderful internal sense of where do I put my fire, my inner fire, which Mars represents being the ruler of Aries, a fire sign, and Sagittarius is also a fire sign. So there's a lot of fire energy here, and it gets lightened up because Mars is in an air sign and Saturn's in an air sign. Saturn's in Aquarius, Mars is in Gemini. And that means there's a lightness to this energy that helps you take flight and see the bigger perspective, very akin to Sagittarius. Now, Sagittarius is the sign of universal truths. And that archer that symbolizes Sagittarius holds the bow of truth that seeks the bull's eye, which is symbolized by the third eye, the eye of perception. The third eye resides in the head, but is not connected to our two physical eyes, which we use to live in 3D. The third eye actually is a multidimensional eye. So it connects to your inner light. And if you close your eyes so that you're not engaged physically, 
you actually have an even greater capability because you're not distracted by 3D reality, which constantly is giving feedback to your mind. You turn that down, you quiet your mind, and you can absolutely take advantage of getting in touch with universal truths at this time. So I highly recommend you take time to listen to beautiful music, for example, with your eyes closed, or sit in silence with your eyes closed, and perceive at a much greater level. And so this inner light is really what enlightenment is the meaning of. It is where neutrality exists because the left and right duality of the left and right eye is then really neutralized. And so you're so present at that point of the eyes closed that there is no more division. You just sense the truth. You quiet down. Now, one thing I want to focus on for just a moment is Sagittarius and Jupiter are often equated to having high positivity. And when you live your life in a way where you don't engage with what we deem as negative, we are actually avoiding living fully. So it is not to necessarily constantly choose to be on the positive side of every experience we have. It is to be neutral. And the neutrality brings the actual inspiration that we need in any situation. So when we avoid being negative at all costs, it's not to be on the duality spectrum at all. It's not to be either positive or negative or deem others as such. It is literally to be fully present in a place where we are in the center. That's why the third eye is here and the left and right are on either side. You want to be in the center and not choose one over the other so we can experience all life has to offer. After after all, we grow more often through what are deemed negative experiences than positive ones. The negative ones are the ones, what we deem negative, are the ones that really bring a lot of self-growth, spiritual growth, release, purging. So we need both sides of the equation, just like a battery has negative and positive charges. You know, if you have a battery that only has a positive charge or only has a negative charge, it won't work, right? Things won't start. So we, in the same way, need to partake in all of life and the wholeness that the universe has to offer so we can replenish. Because if we have a battery that's only on one charge and the other isn't working, there is no communication. There's no full electrical charge. And that's, you know, if we're into constantly being positive, that's because the negative sector of the battery only exists in tandem with the positive charge. So this is a very important matter to consider, just like in the binary code of life, the computer code and the zero and one degree or zero and one, which make up the binary code, they represent the feminine and masculine aspect and they make up the code of the universe, just like your soul is based on the binary code. Your physical body is made up of the code of the universe. So we need to really be aware of how our mind has distorted this concept of 
being positive or being negative and just seeing everything as energy instead, not living in that duality and understand the significance of both in order to grow and not favoring one over the other, but maintaining a sense of neutrality so that they come into balance. So you don't just choose light and cast away the darkness because at that point you are choosing to not see the light itself because there's no darkness to give it perspective. So we need to accept everything. Just like when we meet a person and get to know them, we accept them warts and all. We do not just seek to engage with their positive side and never listen to what we deem as their negative aspects. So it's really becoming more aware, more mature, that we cannot have one without the other. And to see Sagittarius, the archer with the bow, an arrow of truth, as a liberation, that all truth is good. And as it reveals the wisdom that is symbolized by Sagittarius, it helps us to see clearly the best next step to take, which is why Sagittarius governs that wide view, that beyond the horizon view. So in order to do that, we have to be present. We have to give ourselves moments of tremendous joy for no reason that comes through being utterly present. In the present moment, we can't have fear, and that's really the key, because fear is what, you know, the sense either feeling abandoned or feeling like we can't trust, have no faith. Those two underlying fears will bring us back into that duality. So if we give ourselves that sense of being utterly present, we feel that joy and we see it in everything as it appears. Like, oh, this is an opportunity. Opportunity, one of the key words to Sagittarius. So again, in order to really immerse yourself in this wonderful Sagittarius new moon energy, which brings such a breath of fresh air and lightens up our world, go to spiritualmasteryclass.com and enjoy that free masterclass because it really governs so much, including the secret of spiritual mastery, the true meaning of your rising sign, the important difference between individuality and uniqueness, your natal sun and moon's profound meaning on living a joyful, abundant life of neutrality, and how to instantly connect to spirit. There are many, many tools we're going to look at together in that free masterclass. So head on over to spiritualmasteryclass.com. Have a gorgeous, uplifting, Sagittarius new moon, and I will see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of love. Maybe you would look something up on Dane Rudyard's little book you got there or something to share. I don't know. Well, I told you I was going to do that. Oh. Okay.
What? Yeah, well, I'm looking looking at the looking at the new moon chart here. We were talking about the new moon chart here. Now that new moon, that new moon, is it two sad? So when we look at when we look at two sads, it's quite interesting. White cap waves display. The power of wind over sea. The keynote here is the mobilization of unconscious energies. That's the sea, the water element, under the pressure of super personal motives. He says here that just a single paragraph, wind and sea are in constant interplay, and the results of that interplay are inspiring and beautiful. In symbolism, the wind, pneuma, with the silent P, is the early Greek word for spirit. So the wind is associated with spiritual dynamism. It's like cardinality, cardinal science. That would be like Libra, cardinal air. The stirring of deep energies, this dynamism produces, obeys cosmic rhythms, the power of which is irresistible. That means we have no control over it, right? Now, the next important thing we want to check in here is the Jupiter stationary retrograde at 29 Pisces. Is that right? Yeah, 29 Pisces. Light breaking into many colors as it passes through a prism. And the keynote for this is the analytical power of the mind necessary for the formulation of life processes in their many aspects. And he says here, Cycles of existence begin in unity and end in what I have called multi-unity. At the stage of consummation, the many individual differences are totaled. They constitute a sum. Within that sum, a unified total, the inevitability of the future process of differentiation is implied because every cycle leaves a mass of waste products slowly returning to the unconscious state of chemical matter. What the symbol tells us is that unity will always break Again, 
into multiplicity. The prism is always there. There is no absolute unity. If anything could be called absolute, it is the relationship between the one and the many. That's the existence implies differentiation. So we got that going on. Now the other thing other thing I find interesting here is is Mars, which is both Square Neptune and Trine Saturn doing both. So Neptune at at 22 Pisces is a prophet carrying tablets of the new law is walking down the slopes of Mount Sinai The need to bring down to the level of everyday existence the clear realizations made manifest in a great peak experience. That's 22 Pisces. That's where Neptune is sitting here. All right. So, yeah. There, There are... People that are having peak experiences all the time, right? But in order to make use of them, you got to bring it down to the level of everyday practical existence. Right? Otherwise, otherwise, it's just you know an idea in the ether. They're not doing anything with it, right? That's twenty-two Pisces. Now, let me just check here. Where is, what's the exact degree? The exact degree of Saturn is 20 Aquarius. All right, that's, that's, that's uh, the trine to Mars. 20 Aquarius is likely to be interesting, too. A large white dove bearing a message. The answer of spiritual energies to thorough, sustained, and victorious individual efforts. I think we need a lot of that right now. The thorough, sustained, individual efforts. All right, now. Let's go to Mars at 22 Gemini. That's the, the, we got a triangle of forces here. Mars, Neptune, and Saturn. Yeah. 22 Gemini. Yeah, that's a, and it's a retrograde. Okay, dancing couples in a harvest festival. The wholesome enjoyment. The wholesome, not hedonistic. 
enjoyment of organic processes and emotional drives. Again, we have an image in strong contrast to the first of this series. 21 Gemini is the revolutionary impact of mental concepts upon the collective emotions and desires of man. That's that's pretty cool. So that's where we're going when Mars continues to retrograde. It's going to go to 21 Gemini. But right now, right now, the two poles of a wholesome society, the large industrial city and the agricultural village should be included. Likewise, the two poles of a healthy personality, mind and natural emotions, should be active. This one stresses the value of rhythmic, healthful activity in a natural setup. For this leads to an often much-needed process of bioenergetic rebuilding. That's 22 Gemini where Mars is. And and then when it continues to go retrograde, we're going to look at the revolutionary impact of mental concepts. All right. That's where, we, that's where we need this inventor to solve our problems with coal-powered electrical producing devices. You know, that was the one thing I was listening to. Uh, uh, what's her name? The War and Peace Report lady. Oh, Amy. Amy, yeah, I was listening to Amy this week because she was over there in Egypt talking to the folks. Yeah, and I think the one, I think the one, the one thing that I picked up on is is that uh, coal is still producing seventy percent of our electrical. Power generation. Yeah, they're still using coal. It's kind of strange. Yeah, and uh, the coal, the biggest coal users was India and China. Yeah. Yeah, those are the two countries with a billion plus populations. So we really need that new invention. Dr. Greer is all set up so they can't hide it, block it, or uh, you know, bribe the inventor to keep it secret. Yeah. <laughs> all right then. Well, welcome to Sagittarius in two days, and uh, have a good new moon the evening before your Thanksgiving day activities, whatever they may be, I will not be watching football. <laughs> no. 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 But I, 
But, you know, it's funny. It's like, you know, in, in, in the U.S., football's a really big deal on, on Thanksgiving weekend. True, true. And in the rest of the world, soccer oh, yeah. is, a, is a really big deal. And they're having the World Cup right now. This uh, this whole week, I think the first games start tomorrow. The first matches, I think, start tomorrow. So they'll be doing they'll be doing soccer all week. And uh, anyway, that's all the news that's fit to talk about, I guess. <laughs> Since we're not in the print business anymore. That used to be an old thing for you young people when we still had newspapers delivered daily to the house. All the news that's fit to print, they used to say. Those were the days, my friend. Yeah, when I picked up a few extra bucks with my buddy, one summer we, we went around the whole neighborhood collecting newspapers, right? Because we had, we had bicycles with baskets on them, right? So we go around, we beg people for the newspapers, and his mom had a, had an old station wagon, right, with a back seat folds down flat. We filled that station wagon all the way up, and his mom and, and me and my buddy sat in the front seat, and we drove that down to D.C., to a recycle a newspaper recycling plant underneath the K Street freeway, but most people haven't. You know, I grew up, you know, just mile, just a few miles from from DC, and underneath the K Street freeway, which was an exit off of the Key Bridge, Francis Scott Key Bridge, one of the exits. When, when you got across the river there was a right-hand turn onto the K Street Freeway. And uh, that was like a shortcut over to Capitol Hill or something like that. And then when you when you went to the end, it was a T intersection. And when you turned right, you were on M Street. And M Street was, uh, there was, I don't know, maybe uh, seven or eight blocks of of shops and small restaurants and things like that. And then you get down there about seven or eight blocks, and then you hit Wisconsin Avenue. Now, Wisconsin Avenue was really interesting because it went at a diagonal to the, to the squares of the blocks. And Wisconsin Avenue was a diagonal, and it went all the way up and out of out of D.C. and hit the Beltway up in, in Maryland, and then up on on Wisconsin Avenue, which was you know wider and everything. It had the it had the bigger the bigger shops and the fancier stores, and way way about there uh, on the left hand side was the was the theater where me and a couple of my buddies went to see Woodstock when it came out as a movie. It was it was one of the fancy big screen theaters, you know. Anyway. 
Namaste, my friends. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you later on. Thank you, Richard. We will Thank see you, you soon, and in your dreams, possibly, <laughs> on the way. All right. All right. Namaste. Namaste, everybody. Rama, what's the phone numbers? Um, 720-716-7301. And the pin code is 353-863-POUND. Come and join us, everyone, for an hour of a look into whatever your heart is calling to talk about. We'll talk there, and we'll be right back here at BBS Radio, the best radio there is in the universe. Satnam for now, and see you on the conference, everyone. Namaste. Welcome back, everybody. I've said this before, I had the pleasure of meeting Paul Horn. And we booked him for the World Symposium on Humanity at the L.A. site. And he played like that. And then he played with another person that built his own, I don't want to say it's an organ or a piano, but he built every single part himself. It was a very large instrument, and they put it up there on the stage there. And between Paul Horn playing that music and this person using that device that was handmade, it was like being in another realm. And that's what's happening. The energies are right now. Our sister Toriana was bringing it up that we're in this transition period where we're being introduced to higher and higher energy frequencies. And it's every second of every minute that's from, it's not the same as the second or the minute before. And we call it in with the highest good of all concern to happen here in our purest of heartedness and intention and manifest it does and that's who we are we are all the masters can come through us that's we are we are the vehicle we volunteer to take on form yeah got something to say say about that Rama uh, no <laughs> So, okay, well, we'll let um, our friends, Greg Braden, Freddie Silva, Billy Carson, William Henry, and all kinds of other folks, um, they have something that's called Japanese Megaliths and the Mu Empire. What ancient clues are leading researchers to dive deeper into text and traditions of Japan to answer questions about their connection to the stars, connecting megalithic architecture styles of Osaka Castle, Yanaguni Monument, and Ishii no Hoden 
with similar mysterious sites like Easter Island and Tiwanaku. Experts are piercing together a puzzle that could include the Empire of Mu. Explore the underwater architecture that experts are over uncovering to connect the advanced civilizations lost to the Great Flood. And so that's the word. This is 28 minutes, and let's do it, everybody. Mm-hmm. Let's get started. northwest region of the volcanic ring of fire, this mysterious island chain is known as one of the most volatile weather zones on planet Earth. The Chinese refer to Japan as the land of the immortals, whose people originated from a pantheon of gods that formed the basis of the religious belief system known as Shinto, which means way of the gods. In Japanese, These gods and spirits are known as the Kami. There are a total of seven primary gods and spirits that closely resemble other creator deities worshipped by ancient civilizations around the world. Legends of the powerful Mu Empire echo through this weathered island chain. Precise stone carvings and megalithic platforms provide clues to possible connections to pre-Diluvian sites across the planet. Off the coast of Japan, the discovery of Yonaguni Monument in 1987 shocked the archaeological world. This massive monument measures roughly 165 feet long and 65 feet wide. The current in the water surrounding the monument is extremely powerful making the site very challenging for divers to study. Could this submerged structure be remnants of the pre-Diluvian Mu Empire before the end of the world? The recent discovery of megalithic blocks submerged off the coast of Japan further suggests that there was an extensive complex of civilization that existed before the deluge, before the flood, before the sea levels rose to the level that they are today. And if that is the case, it means we're talking ice age civilizations, a time that traditional history is reluctant to acknowledge and a civilization that traditional historians are reluctant to acknowledge. The evidence up until recently has been called anomalous. So when discoveries are made, such as the Gulf of Kambat or the megalithic blocks off the coast of Japan, when they're found and they don't fit into the story, they're put into a pile that is called an anomaly and they say, we'll come back and study them later. What's happening right now 
is that the anomalies are so great that they're telling their own story. Japan is a big part of this. The stones that we see submerged off the coast of Japan, the precision of the way these stones were created is reminiscent of what we see in places like Tiwanaku and even the Giza Plateau in Egypt. When you talk about the smoothness, just the way it is inside the Great Pyramid, over a 20-foot area, less than one one-thousandth of an inch deviance, that is a sign of remarkable workmanship and of craftsmanship using tools that we have today. Where did those kinds of tools come from and how did the people in the Pleistocene create something like that? And if these stone blocks date to the age that the evidence suggests, this is precisely what we're talking about. That there was the technologically advanced civilization just off the coast of Japan when the sea levels were lower. And when those sea levels rose, the end of the younger Dryas, the city was inundated. And I think we owe it to ourselves to understand what these cities are, who the people were, what it means to us in our past to help us understand our relationship to the world today and even our future. Wherever you go around Japan, you get the sense that something much older is going on than uh, is publicly accepted. All you have to do is look at the foundation of, uh, for example, the Imperial Palace or the Major Temple in Osaka. And even if you go a little bit further south of Japan, underwater, the steps that form this platform called Yoganumi, which actually happened to mark the exact position of the Tropic of Cancer, where it was back in 12,000 BC. And of course, it's been submerged since then. In the Kansai region, roughly in the center of the main island of Japan, Osaka Castle is a site built of massive polygonal cyclopean blocks that resemble similar stones in Peru, Bolivia, and Egypt. The massive platform, which was built long before, serves as the foundation for the castle, resembling the ancient platforms on Easter Island and in Tiwanaku, leaving more clues around the possible pre-Diluvian link between Japan and the ancient Mu Empire. So the fact is, we're finding this polygonal cyclopean style in Japan, just like we find partly on Easter Island, in Peru and Bolivia, in ancient Egypt, and many other places. So what is going on here? Is this proof of an advanced ancient civilization on a global scale? One of the most interesting sites in Japan, to me, is Osaka Castle. Now, this is one of these sites that has these massive cyclopean blocks, precision carved, a polygonal masonry involved with it as well. One of the stones weighs up to something like 800 tons. Absolutely huge, some of them. The other thing about Osaka Castle, there's extreme weathering and kind of damage on many of the stones, suggesting it is actually much older than when the castle was claimed to have been built. Now, this is intriguing because polygonal style, the kind of cyclopean construction where the jigsaw stones are placed together, has been proved to work really well in earthquake zones where they just don't fall down when earthquakes occur. And we know this area is an earthquake zone. And so potentially it could have been standing for like thousands of years. You know, can we also speculate that there's some other strange features on the stones that appear to be vitrification, like they've been superheated by some kind of cataclysm. Therefore, could they be even 12,000 years old? Could they have been witness to the Younger Dryas impact event that decimated the planet this long ago? 
One of the things that you find in Japanese architecture are these megalithic constructions. Now, one of the things that I find fascinating is that when you look at some of what I consider the oldest construction, is you have these bizarre shaped stones, and all of them have very beveled edges. And you find that same kind of architecture in South America, in Machu Picchu, in Sacsayhuaman. You find it on Easter Island, in the Imperial Palace in Japan, and so it's a, just a very consistent style. Where if you look at what I consider later construction, instead of having these beveled edges and very tight-fitting stones. We still have odd-shaped stones, but they're not as well placed together, and that's one of the things that's very consistent about all megalithic construction is that it's very tight-fitting. It is clean and exact, and as you move forward in time, the level of workmanship and the quality of the workmanship really disintegrates. The culture that is. Most strongly associated with these incredible megalithic stone blocks found in Japan is that of the Jomon. Now, who exactly are these? Well, they seem to have started out as hunter-gatherers as much as sixteen thousand years ago, but they would seem by about twelve thousand years ago to have created the earliest pottery. Some of which has been found、uh, in the caves of Japan. It's very distinctive, and it shows that they, by this time, had reached a certain stage of development. They go on to be high culture that exists across Japan through to around 400 BC, and then they disappear. They just vanish basically around the same time that we know. Japan, with its whole institution of emperors, begins to rise up, and quite clearly, they almost certainly have some kind of basis in the fact that the Yomen were there in the past, and out of their ashes, almost like the rising phoenix, comes the whole institution of the emperors of Japan. There are several mysterious stone structures and carvings found in South America that resemble masonry styles in Japan. A lesser-known site around Lake Titicaca is named Amaramuru. The function of this site is highly debated, but the flattened mountain and precise carvings hold very interesting ties to the pillar shape from Gobekli Tepe in the Fertile Crescent. And an awe-inspiring megalith in the Kansai region of Japan. Ishinohoden, or the Stone of the Heirloom, is one of the most interesting sites in Japan. It's located in the center of the country, so it could be like an omphalos stone. It could have marked the sacred center of ancient Japan. It's got this very odd design. It's almost like part of a huge machine. It's like a cube with a pointed end on one side. And so, who created this? We don't know. And how they could have actually carved such a beautiful piece of stone art. Ishi no Hoden, which is a massive cyclopean stone that weighs 500 tons, something like 15 feet tall on each side and 15 feet deep. 
the stone cube that's referred to as a floating ship. It's called a floating ship because it literally appears to float on water. The water actually gushes up from underneath the earth in a continuous stream. I think floating uh, rock in Japan is an extraordinary megalith. It's associated with groundwater, that's rainwater that fell from the sky, often coined yang water. It's also associated with a female water called yin water. So you've got groundwater feeding the pond, making it look like it floats. Plus you have seawater uh, feeding into that as well, it has been uh, suggested. So uh, when we have a rock placed on all of that kind of energy to do with water, like geopathic stress, like energy, it can rise up the ground about 30 or 40 feet, imbuing the site with healing energy. I think that's why it became associated with healing uh, ailments and diseases. But whether that was its first use, I don't think so, because it's such a strange-shaped monolith. There's a, a sort of suggestion that it has something to do with the metaphoric idea of rejuvenation, the spring of life from where everything comes from. And uh, the story goes... The gods, when they first arrived in Japan, they got there by the assistance of sky rock boats. And Ishi no Hogan is also said to be one of the representation of these boats of the gods that used to fly from the Korean Peninsula all the way to Japan when it was still attached to the Korean Peninsula. If you look at the entire structure, it's been hollowed out like a big bowl. So it's almost like the bowl is it's collecting something. It's pretty obvious that it's drawing in the power of some star or something on the horizon. A date? Well, the best example that I've been able to come up with so far is that exactly on the winter solstice of 8600 BC, the sun rises exactly facing that stone, which is a very momentous occasion because it is exactly the same moment around the face of the earth where humans suddenly, mysteriously discovered civilization thanks to a group of gods that show up in groups of seven led by a charismatic leader at strategic locations all around the world. So the dating of the alignment of the stone relative to archaeological discoveries of the sudden discovery of civilization around the world actually matches and overlaps mythology at the same time. It seems to have no obvious function other than it looks like it should have formed a piece of architecture that simply doesn't exist. And the importance about these stones and several others in Japan is that they are many thousands of years old. They are clearly not part of any tradition that we can associate with Japan over, let's say, the last two to three thousand years of recorded history. Southeast of Ishinohoden, the landscape holds several stone relics that deepen the pre-Diluvian mystery in Japan. In Japan, there's a village named Asuka, and in this village, there are literally dozens of super megalithic stones. But not just any megalithic stones. These stones are cut with advanced technology. There's even evidence of tool marks on some of these stones. And these stones are interesting because they actually resemble similar stones in Pumapunku, halfway around the world on a mountaintop. The inlays, the cuts, the smoothness of the, some of the interior of some of these cuts, it really matches the same cuts at Pumapunku. 
One of the other amazing pieces of stonework in Japan is near Asuka. Now this is what's called the rock ship. It's a very strange, anomalous, artistic, almost abstract piece of stone art. It's a multi-ton block and it's got grooves carved out of it. It almost looks like some kind of spaceship or UFO has kind of landed there. And so this is another one of these obscure pieces of stone art that we find in Japan. And again, no one knows who put it there. No one knows who carved it. And yet it shows extremely high levels of sophistication. So we have to question who actually built these amazing sites that we find in Japan. It's a monolith that is perhaps 500 tons in weight. And it's been carved out in such a way as to look quite literally, almost like a sort of crashed UFO, really. That's the only way to describe it. And the type of machining that seems to have gone on to create its bizarre shape is something which is unnecessary. Unnecessary from the point of view that we have no idea why they would have created a monolith like this and just left it on what is today the edge of a, of a forest. What's interesting is that this particular stone has a legend about it. And it's said that one of the celestial beings that founded the Japanese culture was actually flying through the air in a vehicle, a rock ship, and that it did actually crash, and that this was the result of that. Now that celestial being in question is a part of, of mythology in Japan, and it's become associated with this particular monolith. Could the legendary tales of gods flying through the air be connecting this ancient culture to India, where similar Vimana craft were depicted in the Mahabharata? Were these ancient stonemasons trying to recreate what they observed in the ancient sky around the same time as the epic battles in the Mahabharata? What other clues point alternative researchers to look deeper into the spiritual texts and traditions from Japan to answer questions about their ancient connection to the stars? According to the Japanese traditions, the Shinto traditions of, of Japan, people have been present there since the very beginning of Japan when it was first manifested. You know, they have the idea in their origins accounts that there were higher beings, gods, who manifested the Japanese islands. They were on a bridge that led from the heavens to earth, and they dipped a spear into the ocean waters, and some salt crystals crystallized from the tip of the spear, and those formed the eight principal islands of Japan, which were populated by these gods with human beings. And then they decided the human beings on Earth should have an emperor. So a descendant of the sun goddess became the first emperor. 
So according to the Japanese Shinto traditions, the islands of Japan have been inhabited by civilized human beings from the very beginning of those islands. So Shinto is one of the most fascinating religions uh, on the face of the earth. It means the way of the gods, and that, that phrase alone places the original understanding of when it appeared in Japan. So at the time of creation of Japan, when the Japan rises out of the waters of chaos, and you have the gods, it's tsunami and it's a nagi, uh, they bring in uh, what's called 17 ways. Each of these ways is a sacred esoteric teaching, how to perfect yourself in this particular lifetime. And it's from this, many thousands of years later, that Shinto is born. The th interesting thing is that these 17 ways are found in other parts of the world, and they have exactly the same point of origin, and they're attributed to the same people. So, for example, in Peru, which also features some of the exact same rock carvings as they find in Japan, you'll find around this little temple called Kenku, uh, on the outskirts of the city of Cusco, the 17 alcoves. Each one had one of the 17 ways of teachings of the gods. So it puts Shinto into the same tradition uh, and point of origin as a time when the gods suddenly reappear on the face of the earth and they're teaching humans the accoutrements of civilization. And the accoutrements really go down to the laws of civics, civilization, well-being, how to show respect for others, megalithic temple building, and all the other things that we seem to find are the foundations for leading a very orderly life. I think it's very interesting that Japan is perhaps the only civilization that their origins come from the sun goddess. Her name was Amaterasu. And this tells us that, one, they believed in extraterrestrial beings, that they're ultimately descended from extraterrestrials. All of the Japanese emperors up until World War II believed that they were incarnations of the sun god and goddess, that they were literally incarnations of this divine being and they had this divine right to rule as emperors. It was the General MacArthur, after the Japanese surrender, that, that told the Japanese emperors that they would no longer be able to make that claim. And even to this day now, the Japanese emperors are not allowed to speak in public about their ultimate connection to these divine beings. Could these gods and goddesses, known as the kami in the Shinto traditions, be the same group of gods that influenced ancient cultures around the planet, leading to the royal bloodlines? Or were they connected to the other groups of pre-Diluvian gods and goddesses that appeared nearly 38,000 years ago, around the time of Zeptepi? Were these wise ones connected to the Shimsuhor in ancient Egypt, the Anuna from the Fertile Crescent, or the ancient beings depicted on Easter Island, a discovery in the 1930s deepened the mystery around the true history of Japan. Mr. Kiyomaro Takeuchi, the youngest in a long line of Shinto priests, discovered a set of documents in his family library. These documents further confirmed a unique lineage of the Japanese people and the mixing of human DNA long before the great cataclysms. The Takuchi documents supposedly go back many, many thousands of years and were preserved by the imperial ancestral shrine along with a number of treasures by a Takuchi family after they were given to them to be preserved 
uh, at a time of unrest in Japan. And it is claimed that they contain the foundation point, uh, not only of the human race, but also of the, the cosmos, the universe, the world, how everything came into being, and how there were countless generations until the rise of the first Japanese emperor, Jimun, who reigned in around 5 to 600 BC. The Katushi documents claim that before Emperor Jimun reigned, there were 73 other emperors from the so-called divine era. In other words, they were almost like demigods that had ruled right the way through to the prehistoric age. But before then, it is suggested that the very first emperor was the result of a divine union between the sun goddess and a mortal being. And this is something that the emperors truly believe, that they were descended from this celestial being that had come down from the stars itself. Can these documents be compared to the Sumerian king's list in the Fertile Crescent and the Turin papyrus in Egypt, serving as evidence of an advanced group of wise ones that were on the earth long before Homo sapiens sapien became the dominant species? As with most mythology, the tales get taller as they age. But the stone relics on this mysterious island chain point to a much stronger foundational connection to the Mu civilization. Japan feels different uh, because Atlantean civilization never got to the island. This is the Mu territory. And Japan was one of the main path that they had to go to the Gobi Desert. So they used this island as a place of connection. And as you see, the shape of the island is also the dragon. So it was like the holy land for them where they would prepare the people to have all the, the wisdom before they left. Like in South America, we had Machu Picchu as a school because it was the important place there. So for the moon in Asia, it was Japan. As the submerged Yonaguni monument gives us a clue to the presence of the Mu Empire in Japan, the archaeological connections to other sites on lands that surround the mighty Pacific Ocean are hard to deny. Huge tombs, unique structures, castle walls that date back to 12,000 years and stone carvings resembling flying craft. Do these ancient artifacts in Japan not only represent a lost civilization, but also knowledge and concepts of a world we can barely fathom? A world preserved in the documents and religion that have been banned since World War II. As the tales of gods and goddesses throughout mythology have taught us, as we wind down the road, the trials and tests that we must endure as a species aren't designed to be easy. They are designed to help us understand that we have the power within to become these wise ones.
from which fables are written around. We too, one day, will become the ancient ancestors of Earth's inhabitants. When humanity unites as a species, we can return this majestic planet to a way of life connected to the cosmos like the gods and goddesses did before the end of the world. Wow. Well done. Mm-hmm. So Rama has something here that he found that he wants to share with us. I'm trying to get there. <laughs> He's working on it. Oh, it's called Ariel Superhuman Embodied. You kind of got to turn your head this way because nobody can hear you there. Ariel Superhuman Embodied. Superhuman Experience with Lee Holden. The superhuman experience finds Ariel, a telekinetic from Argentina, subject to many scientific studies for his ability to move objects without touching them. This behind-the-scenes look at his mysterious abilities gets real when his gift is put to the test. We all have these abilities to do this kind of stuff. It's just that these good old boys kind of brainwashed us from the very youngest of days out of it. Yeah. But now is the time. Okay. Let's do this one. How long is it, Rama? No, 17 minutes. Oh, it's very short. Okay, let's do this. Here we go. That's coming. take a deeper dive into Ariel, a person from Argentina who's been scientifically studied many, many times. He has the ability to put his hands on a table and lift or levitate that table with his feeling frequencies. We're trying to demystify it, but we'll see that this is a very similar concept to what Bing or Sergey use when they're using it in combat situation by moving people without touching them. First, Ariel blends with the table, blending his energy, his feeling attention with the table in order then to move it. You see, sometimes when the cameras get turned on and everybody's watching, that ability doesn't work. It doesn't always work 100% of the time. As you'll see in this episode, in the beginning, when Ariel goes to move the table, it doesn't work. But what I find so extraordinary in this behind-the-scenes look is that all these extraordinary people from all over the world, from South America to Russia to China to Australia, 
come around and support. And they demystify this concept of how to use the mind to move matter. Now, this table, it's a wooden table that I have made for the occasion. It's quite heavy, maybe about 10 kilos, something like this. And clearly there are no props. Now, what Ariel will do, he will put the hand on the table and move it without the fingers. Just using magnetizing sort of or gravitating the table toward his hand and tip it. This phenomena um, is, of course, like most of these phenomena, not like this on commands, so it requires a certain mental state. So let's try altogether to create the best space for it. You can't see it, but I'll tell you when he does it. <laughs> when energy is absurd, it tends to change. It tends to not behave how you want it to behave. Now, this is quantum physics. Ariel is experiencing this right now. He feels that the stare, the expectation, uh, it's blocking the energy to move as it should move or the event to happen as it should happen. So he really feels the stare and uh, it's a little heavy for him. So we will join him now. Let's see if we can try together and we will listen to the suggestions also of the experts that have been looking at his doing. Ariel, how can we help you? Que tu imagina en tu mente, que tu haces con tu energía, con tu conciencia. Eh, trato de pensar que la mesa es parte de, de mis manos, como que meto las manos dentro de la mesa y intento llevar la mesa. Hacia arriba. Bueno, let's try together. There it goes. Importante que nadie ejerza presión sobre la tabla. Si lo vas bien, llevar todos acá. Todo lo que pase tiene que pasar acá. En el medio. Importante también es focalizar como un relajo, un relax mm -hmm. mediante la respiración, tomando aire. Y se usa la breath to help to focalize and transfer, extend his mind through his hand into the table. 
with the exhalation, extending the mind, the energy, eh? through the hand into the table. Cuando siente que el momento mágico te dice ahora, vamos a probar. Pensemos todos. The power of concentration. <laughs> Ariel, dígame, uh, ¿qué te piensa? ¿Qué te, qué te haces? ¿Mm? Pienso como si metiese las manos en la herida. Como trato de pensar que la tabla. Um, I'm putting my hand. He's creating a mental image. I'm putting my hand through the sand. I'm trying to think that the table is soft and I can pass through it. Ya es algo suave. No puedo entrar ahí. Esta es la explicación. And that's the explanation about it. Esta es la resolución de tu problema, la resolución de tu pregunta. ¿Cómo me hace? Tú ahora, ¿qué es ese cómo me hace? Es genial. He just solved his own riddle. He reverse engineer what he does in order to explain it to us, and by doing that, he answers his own question: mm-hmm. How do I do what I do? He just said it. <laughs> Extend your energy into your hands, into the table. The table is soft, like sand, not solid. You need to enter into it. You need to feel the table as part of you, not separate from you. You're the table like fused, they are one. You need to think that the table is not solid, but like he used the word ethereal nearly. And then he say you need to zoom all your attention, all your focus into it and forget anything else that is happening around. That is it. That is how he does it. And it's also his practice. Let's look at it in a different way. You know, your body might seem solid and that table might seem solid, right? But what physics is telling us is that these bodies and these objects aren't so solid. Look at it under a microscope and we'll see that the body's made up of cells, cells made up of molecules, molecules made up of atoms. And when you look at something atomically, it's nothing but energy, but vibration. The body, as they tell us, is 99.999% empty space. Not an emptiness of nothing, but an emptiness of vibration that responds to our minds. That's what's so fascinating. So when you look at your body, when you look at the world around you, know that it's vibration. Why does it seem so solid? Because these electrons in the atoms are moving so fast. It's like a very fast fan moving. It gives the appearance of solidity. 
But really, it's just energy. I stand up uh, close for him and try to feel the frequency of his energy. And then I with, walk with this frequency. I change my frequency to her frequency. It's maybe different way to, to, to try to change his frequency, frequency of his, but it's, it's need uh, two weeks, six weeks to change his frequency to my frequency, yes? And it's easy for me to change my frequency uh, to her. No, to him, to him, yes? And that's why it's easy for me to connect with him. Uh, it's only practice. When I only start uh, to feel energy, I work with different people. It uh, uh, was a big workshop. For example, 600 people in the whole. And I walk with different people, with uh, this, with this, with this, this, and I understand that all people have another frequency of, the, of his uh, energy. And I walk with these people, and I try to feel these uh, these people. Then I change uh, uh, this person for another person and try to connect my energy with this energy. A, li- a little different um, uh, frequency of my energy. And this only practice, only practice. If you have more uh, people this, uh, for, for training, you change your frequency in, um, in big distance, in, in big wire, in a larger range, a larger range. Yes, mm-hmm. larger range, yes. Uh, it's it's broader, it, it's, broader range. Isn't it uh, practice? Но главное, на чем, допустим, я сам работаю, да, это на полевой структуре, да. То есть нужно войти в поле человека. В поле человека ходим через сердце. Сердце постоянно держит определенный ритм. In, in your mind with the energy. Okay. It's a little bit hard to follow. Yeah, because it's hard to translate both. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very visual. Yeah, I you could act, you actually Penny. saw him lift the table without touching it. That was the that was the main part of the Yeah. Okay. So let's go to this one, Rama. How's this one for next? Okay. Okay, this is called the mechanics. Let's see here. Yeah. We gotta bring this microphone closer. Okay. This is called The Mechanics of Dreaming and Astral Travel. 
And this is with Regina Meredith. We haven't heard from her for a while. And where do we go in dream travel? Sheila Gillette is the world-renowned spiritual medium and channel for the 12 archangels, collectively known as Theo. In questions to and answers from Theo, Gillette shares insights on how to use travel during sleep and out-of-body experience, OBE. When the physical body is sleeping, the astral or etheric body is capable of connection to other dimensions as well as other conscious entities. Theo describes how humanity can better reach our vast potential by reaching beyond our physical selves to receive communication and help from angels. So this again is 46 minutes. Let's do this one now. Here we go. I'd like to ask a lot of questions about dream time and the asking to discover those parts of self that are not keeping the body alive can leave the body and have other experiences we are only encased in this physical existence by permission but we are of no space and time belief is the barrier between you and your multi-dimensional experiences is it a little bit painful to watch from the other side? It's a bit frustrating. <laughs> Theo's encouraged us before we even put our feet on the floor in the morning, think of one thing we're grateful for, one thing we're proud of ourselves for. And the third thing that I do... Have you ever had the experience of tandem dreams with another person? How about sleep paralysis? And what about out-of-body experiences? Sheila Gillette is back with us today, and Theo is going to explain how each one of these work from a mechanical point of view, from their perspective. And I really want to welcome again, Sheila. Oh, Regina, it's so good to be with you again. It's always wonderful being together. I, I have to say that this is something that has always interested me. Because we read books about it, but they don't really explain the mechanics. This aspect of your being is gone. And when you bring it back in a bad way, you know, improper way or too quickly, it can be very harmful to your psyche, for example, or mess your day up or whatnot. What's actually going? I've always wondered about all these things and how you tell a dream from another dimensional experience and you know, hooking up to you. As everything I mentioned in the open, I find it fascinating. So I'm really excited to talk to the Theo group about it. But you have, you've had these experiences for 40, 50 years. I have had. And, you know, when I started being the trance channel that I am, I would get that paralysis. Mm-hmm. And I would be lay, laying flat in my body. I wouldn't be able to move my body. 
And that was part of doing the work with Theo. It's scary, though, when you, it first happens. You don't, and a lot of people watching have had these things happen and don't know what's happening to them. So it's frightening. We always are frightened of what we don't understand. It is. And what I realized and what I was told, it was the way of the body protecting itself so it doesn't short circuit in the nervous system because the nervous system is our electrical system. Yes. And we forget that we are above everything else. We're electrical beings. Yeah. Yeah. And in the beginning, you know, I, that energy of our soul is bigger than our body and it extends out farther than our physical body and it's connected to our nervous system. Mm-hmm. That's how we can sense when we're in a, you know, a safe place. You know, we learn that from birth. But yet in, when you get into circles such as ours in the Gaia community, people are very loose in talking about, well, you have to be in your body. And that isn't what that means. This, this has multiple meanings. And I know I've played with it a bit and had some disastrous uh, kind of results that happened. And so that's why I thought we need to get clarity on all this and build a proper mm-hmm. language around it. I agree. I agree because so many people are opening up now. Yes. And that's the way of the world these days. That's mm-hmm. that's who we are. We're spiritual beings. We're souls having a human experience. And now we're really waking up to life is happening through us and for us, not to us. Mm-hmm. And we are powerful, creative beings. And we're, we're going to be having a lot more of these types of experiences that we've been talking Absolutely. about. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so if we can understand the mechanics of it, then we can be at peace and relax while these things are happening, I think, better. Oh, yeah. And then also need some techniques for uh, example, I'm hoping Theo can share a technique or two on if you bungle it, getting back together in the morning from dream time, snap back to like me, uh, snap back so fast that I'm disoriented for hours. I, I can't really, I'm dizzy and disoriented. I can't get integrated. Um, how we can work with that and probably breath, but we'll find out. We'll see what Theo has to say about it. That would be good. It reintegrate. Cause I think a lot of people have that issue as well. It will help all of us. It will help all of us. So, I have a whole list of questions here. Are you ready to let Theo flow on through? I am. Okay. Here we go. Okay. It is the beginning, is it? No. It is. Thank you so much, Theo, for joining us on this today. We have many, many points of confusion on this planet of what's happening between the various parts of our being, um, the electrical system, the physical body, um, the astral body, the etheric, all these different causal, all these different bodies. All the books give them different kinds of uh, capacities and such. But in the end, I don't think we really understand how this works that well. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd like to ask a lot of questions about Dream time, dream time with others, going to other dimensions, being out of body and safety and how we integrate if we bungle it and so forth. Are you okay with that? We are appreciative of the opportunity to serve and the asking it is given. Very good. Thank you. So let's start really simply with when we go into dream time, 
that place where we're no longer cognizant and our body is sleeping, yet we seem to be elsewhere. Can you tell us about what part of us is no longer, or if that part is no longer connected to the body or maybe just by a tether, and what's just random firing of the brain? Can you just explain the architecture of dream time? Dream time can be part of the brain releasing the energy of the day, clearing, just like you would clear your computer, hard and soft web can be deleted, if you would. Mm -hmm. So some dreams are those dreams which are just deleting energy that it does not need to hold on to. Mm -hmm. But then there are other dream states. There are the body experience. There are flying dreams where the soul can leave the body. Yes, there's a tether. All you have to do is think body and you're back in it. You're not going to lose the body. Many are fearful of that in dream of flying or out-of-body experiences that they would not get back. They always will. It allows the soul to be in its multidimensional expression for higher learning with teachers and other experiences that human bodies are not available to. Explain that, that human bodies are not available to. What's the density? Okay, the density of the human, of the third dimension or fourth dimension. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so the soul is eternal. And the earth is one choice of the learning. There are billions. And so the soul can go in and out of the body at will. Because as this evolving consciousness is occurring, there's an awareness that that's available to you. So when you're leaving the body and just have that little tether and you're going into another dimension of learning, um, is this often a part of the dream time that can't be expressed or remembered per se because it is quite different from our kind of the architecture of the reality around us here that we're familiar with? Yes, that's correct. Because humans think in their human minds conceptually of things they, that it knows mm -hmm. in picture form. Right. So if we would say chair to you, what comes to mind is not the word spelled out. It's the image of a chair, isn't it? And that's true as one's deciphering information the mind is attaching to what is known. So if you do not know something from your multidimensionality, then you would not have a picture of it mm -hmm. or right. think of it. So a lot of that teaching is something that our being is, is being inculcated into our being, but we're not necessarily going to have remembrances or awarenesses of that. Correct. Okay. Now, in dream time, deciphering between what is a dream, but maybe there isn't a difference, and what is simply having another dimensional experience where you're out and acting and meeting with and doing, 
and fully aware in another dimension. Is there any difference between those two? Not much. What would be the distinguishing The difference? distinguishing experience of it would be memory. Okay. A dream you'll remember or you will remember parts of it. But most often when this experience is happening, there is an awareness that you're dreaming. Mm-hmm. In which would be called lucid dreaming, being in the dream conscious of its occurrence. And that's informational dreaming. Mm-hmm. It could be prophetic. Mm-hmm. It could be answering a question for you that's being posed before the sleep state mm-hmm. in answer to what is asked. So there are many ways to use the dream time to inform you. What happens when you and another person go into dream time, you see each other in dream time, maybe two or three of you, you recognize each other in dream time, and you appear to be working towards something in common during dream time. Is that an agreement where the souls have simply met up to work things through in a less dense environment? It's by agreement, yes, Mm -hmm. this meeting. Because a lot of times when people say, oh, I had this wild dream and I was doing this and I was this, this person, everything, I'll get the sense that you were with them. You were with this other being. You have met. It's not just some crazy random firing of the brain that's been concocted. You are actually meeting with this other being for purpose. How would you say to the audience, how would they know the difference between those two? How it feels. It's important to not only think of the vision or the dialogue, whatever you might be receiving, but also most important is how do you feel about it. For you may have a vision that that could be violent in context, but not feel violent at all because the message is, that's being given you is something you need to know. Mm-hmm. And so the feeling aspect of it is informational. Right. It's not that you're involved in a, an, an act of violence. That it's that it's getting your attention to teach you something. Correct. But you can be in a situation where something is happening that does feel quite threatening emotionally and physically in that moment. Yes, and that's informational as well. What's going on in your environment? What's happening around you? Is it a message to you or is it a message to another? Right. I can bring by, I mean, I have all kinds of dreams. I can bring a few in by way to illustrate what's going on that I think maybe other people have had. In one dream, it was the re, that was a re-entry from dream time back to the body kind of going through layers. And in this particular layer, it appeared to be the layer more of an astral realm where people who have passed over but aren't settled yet um, exist. And I ran into a woman uh, in that realm. And it was much more gray and not, not very vital in the colors. And she wanted to be acknowledged. So I acknowledged her in a, in a really nice way, but she wanted to touch me. And I, I, I said something kind to her to stop any kind of physical interaction between us. Because it felt to me like I was actually in another place at that time. 
do we pass through different realms where we're encountering these beings? You can. And know that you're in the awareness of the multidimensionality. Mm-hmm. For you're in a multidimensional being. Mm-hmm. Your soul is multidimensional and eternal. So you can be in other dimensions with that awareness. Mm-hmm. I read after that that if you do end up in that place where you do feel that you're encountering some disincarnate entities who are just kind of lost, they haven't settled yet, um, it's it's important not to tangle up physically, that that wouldn't be a good idea. That's what I had read. What is your thought on that? Is there truth in that or not? There's no harm. No harm can happen. That's the great uh, sense that you could be harmed in some way. No. You cannot be when you're in those other dimensions. And nothing, no one, not anyone can do anything with you or to you without your permission. And this, yes, very important to remember. Okay, what about what we call out-of-body experiences? Let's look at how that differs from what we've been talking about dream time. Out-of-body experiences is an awareness that you're out of your body. You're witnessing the body beneath you. And that it is an awareness at that period of time that you are a multidimensional being and awareness in your conscious state. And then you can begin to navigate what you want to do out of the body. But initially, it could be a bit shocking. I rolled out of my body into a field of plaid one time. Didn't know what to do with it. So I just popped myself right back in thought, what is this? I just rolled out. I was lying in bed and I was in a field of plaid lines. So there's an awareness, is there not, that everything's geometric. Plaid is a geometric form, isn't it? Yes. And color has vibration. Right. And so what you did as you rolled out of the body, your consciousness aligned with what was occurring with what was known mm-hmm. intellectually. Okay. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I'm sure many people, when they leave their body, that it's common to have, see grids and vector points and that kind of thing, <clears throat> which as you yes, say. Yes, you can, but it's <clears throat> not a constant. It depends on the individual. Right. So now leaving your body, as you just said, if you're leaving the body, you can, you're actually outside of yourself and aware and can look down on yourself, kind of like near death experiences that people describe. Yeah. Right. What about when you need to simply send your awareness somewhere to get information in what's called more remote viewing? What's happening there when you can send your consciousness to a distant location and view things? So it is remote viewing. Mm-hmm. Actually, but what part of you is going there? Is it just it's an intention of entanglement? Soul. And it's intention. Mm-hmm. It's intentional. And it's vibrational. Everything has vibrational frequency to it. So you're going on those lines of vibration. So your <clears throat> your mind is more or less kind of entangling with those lines of vibration, you have an intention and it's taking you to the destination so that you can bring back information. 
that's not the same as being out of the body, right? That's different. Yes. <clears throat> being out of the body is like by locating. Yes. And there have been many gurus or teachers who have the ability to put their body in samadhi, which is the paralysis state. Mm -hmm. It appears it's dead, the body. It is not. It's just being held in state, you might say. Mm -hmm. For the soul to leave the body and be in another place at the same time. Mm -hmm. And there have been many stories written of this from past history, but this can be more the normal experience of the human experience in the fifth dimensionary energy. And that's the recognition of masterhood or awareness or soul connectedness <coughs> in that awareness of knowing you're more than your physical body. So this is something that you see coming up as our human potential becoming a more common, a more common occurrence for yes. humanity. Yes, and that's why there's so many interested in it, because they're on the edges of that awareness and knowing and wanting to know more. Mm -hmm. Because I feel like sometimes when I'm talking to people, they're confusing being out of body with remote viewing. When they say, I just went and got this information, and sometimes that's a little confused. That's why I wanted you to break down what that one feels like versus the other. It is a bit different, but similar in many ways, isn't mm -hmm. it? That is why it's so confusing, because there are similarities because of the multidimensionality of all of the things you're speaking of. So when you have an out-of-body experience and you leave the body dormant somewhere safe, in a quiet, safe space, you've done this, and it, you can't have any body near you when you do this. And it's very disturbing to the field. What part of you is leaving the physical body when you're talking about out of body? So, as we said, your soul is multidimensional. Right. So there is that part of soul that is alive in the body mm -hmm. that gives the mind life. Mm -hmm. And that allows that part to stay. Mm -hmm. In the body, mm -hmm. for that's life, yes? And then the other awarenesses of the soul, and it's difficult to describe, for you have not an awareness of what that could be mm -hmm. in your thinking. That will come more so as there's greater insights into the mind and the functionality of it as well those parts of self that are not keeping the body alive, mm -hmm. and that's part of your awareness in your brain, your mind, can leave the body and have other experiences. Would but it's all, it's like every cell of your body is you. Mm -hmm. You could take your cell out and make another you. Mm -hmm. Yes? Yes. So would it be fair, I mean, just using the parlance of one system um, of saying that maybe the lower mind part of the soul stays with the body and the higher mind part of soul is the one that's free to leave while the body is remaining under the control of the lower mind, the body mind, the animal mind. One could say this for mm -hmm. 
lack of a better exactly just finding a very simple language for it okay all right so one of the things that um this was a it was a regression i had actually it wasn't a wasn't a dream years ago but one of the things back and this was in very early times in lemurian times and uh, we were doing this there were some people that did this you would set your body down somewhere, as you said, put it into a quiet state, as you've done in this lifetime. And then we would leave the body, but we were joining with other, in this case with birds, large birds. And we would, with their permission, join together, and we would fly together. And it was really wonderful. You could feel everything that the bird felt. And uh, the bird was in agreement with it. That's all, just in agreement. They didn't usually joy ride around. They didn't usually waste energies flying around for kicks, mostly for prey. But um, is that the part you would say was going with that bird at that time? Yes. And so can this still happen today? Can people still merge with other species? I know that was a long time ago when we were configured very differently. I get that. In today's world, is it possible that we can still do something like this to be able to merge with an animal if our intention and practice was strong enough? You can, but you would not merge physically with it, but you could sense and feel what they're feeling. Yes. And that is part of your shamanic background. Yes. The shape-shifting is what you're talking about. Yes. Yes. And becoming something else. You can experience something else. Yes. Just yeah. like you're experiencing a human experience. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and that experience, it was just taking part of my being and allowing it to flow into the bird to have a joint experience. It was their body and a higher part of another part of my mind, another dimension of mind. And it was exhilarating and fun. It was what we did for entertainment. You know, yes. in, in the day there, there was no Netflix. So <laughs> it was very, it was a very joyful experience and it wasn't uncommon and it wasn't harmful. No, with proper intention, with proper intention to be respectful. Thing. Yes. Respect. You could call that love. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. So the closest we get to that for the most part now is in flying dreams. So can you talk about flying dreams? Some people have a lot of them. Some have none. Some would love to and start and fall because they become afraid. What's going on when we're sensing that those, these magnificent flying dreams? What you're experiencing is freedom. And that's what's exhilarating. You're not encased in in the physical form, and you have the freedom to be omnipresent, if you would, mm-hmm. to feel as we feel in that omnipresence. We are only encased in this physical existence by permission of the jailer to speak to you in this form, but we are in that realm of omnipresence mm-hmm. energetically. Of no space and time. So is it simply symbolic in the dream or are we actually in an experience of breaking free from physical physicality and we're we're moving through space and time and we're just sensing it or remembering it? You're remembering it. Mm-hmm. Yes. You're giving yourself a mission of that freedom. 
So for people who um, would love to do this or remember this, have this experience, what would you say uh, by way of a little tutorial uh, to people who would like to have more of that experience of freedom during dream time? Believe it first. It won't happen unless you believe in its possibility. It is the human conscious state, the intellect, that is the barrier to all your experiences and the judger of all of them. So as you're releasing your judgment into the realm of possibility thinking, you open the door for, yes, it can happen. For if you think you can, you can. If you think you can't, you can't. Yes? Mm -hmm. So belief is the barrier between you and your multidimensional experience. Mm -hmm. Okay, so having set an intention and know you're perfectly capable of this. Yes. And then you may have some fear of the unknown. Mm Mm-hmm. Be adventuresome. Yes, yes, that's a good place to be adventuresome is in, in dream time. Um, I meant to ask you something a little earlier before we close the subject of dreams, and that is once we're out of our body and we're having these other dimensional experiences, some of them can take us quite far away from this dimension in reality. And I have found, for example, if something happens, like a very loud noise or pressure on the body from my dog or Zeus or something, that um, I snap back so fast I'm disoriented for quite a long time. It really kind of ruins the morning. If we snap back too quickly and have this sense of lack of integration, what are some techniques we can use to reintegrate ourselves? Breathing, of course, Mm -hmm. deep breathing, Mm -hmm. deliberate deep breathing, filling the lungs and exhaling completely several times. You can count to it. Mm -hmm. Taking several deep breaths in, five to six, exhaling the same count out, Mm -hmm. and water. Drink water. Okay. And put your bare feet on the ground. Okay. Water, breathing, get your feet on the ground, get grounded physically. Yes. Okay. And breathe into that as well. Okay. Excellent. Um. Another area of being in dream time and and collaborating, like we were talking about a little bit ago, has to do with healing. How much of our healing does or could be taking place during dream time if we simply understand there are aspects of ourselves working with other beings and other dimensions that are perfectly capable of bringing physical effect? That's true, and intention can be achieved in that as well. But it's also to place intent in loving the body. We hear so many humans berating the physical body, and it's magnificent. Mm, That's a miracle. And the body is always trying to find its homeostasis. What you call healing, we call balancing. Yes. Coming into full balance. Mm -hmm. 
So loving the body, energizing the body, saying it's whole, healthy, functioning perfectly, and the body will inform you of what it needs, whether it's supplementation of nutrition or even if it needs a balance of medication, homeopathic or allopathic, both are good. Both come from the same source, actually. Mm-hmm. Many think that not, but it's true. Mm-hmm. It is true. So it's awareness. And can and you ask to be, can you ask to have healing partnerships during dream time? Yes. And then you will have teams of beings that know how to do this properly, working with the human matrix. They will come. Of course. In the asking, it is given. Mm -hmm. And they're just waiting to be asked. This is another problem we have. This is a big problem. All of these wonderful beings that are underemployed Mm -hmm. by humanity. (laughs) Can you talk about that for a moment? How much help is actually there and how little... We actually tap into it consciously. Very little. We cannot even describe the enormity of what is there for you. You don't have a perception of it. And understand this. No limitation to space and time. That omnipresence of what we speak. And your free will... Your soul's power, the master that you are, there is no one other in the universe greater than you. Mm-hmm. So your will, your power will not be usurped. That's why in the asking it will be given. You're making welcome that input. Is it? A little bit painful to watch from the other side that we're floundering around, not even asking for magnificent help that could be given because of the limitations of the human intellect. It's a bit frustrating, (laughs) but we like to look at it humorously. (laughs) I'm sure you do. I always I always uh, joke about it as guys on a smoke break with not much to do. Um, only we don't smoke. Exactly. Only you don't smoke. <laughs> okay. This is a fun, this is kind of a fun dream. Okay. But it can get into some other areas. Um, I had a dream one time. There's this lovely woman in my hometown, very well known in our hometown. Um, at the time, uh, she was in marketing and kind of everybody knew her. She was the town queen and, uh, lovely lady. And I had a dream that she and I were at an event. It was a party of some kind. And we decided to play a trick on some of the other people by choosing to consciously swap bodies. Mm -hmm. So we were going to each get out of our body and send our consciousness into the other one and tell people, you can ask me a question and I can answer it as though I'm her. And so they would be able to test us and see if what had happened is true. I mean, there was a little twist at the end because she was 40 years older and wouldn't give me my body back. But the notion of being able to do something like this, what was actually going on in a situation like that? So you did exactly what you said you were going to do. Mm-hmm. You have the power to do that, mm-hmm. to exchange, to become the other person. 
That's what actors do. do they yes, not? yes. They become that personality that they're to act. But we brought all the knowledge and history with it into each other. We could feel us leaving our bodies and re-entering the other body. So you've answered your own question. So that is what was going on. Yes. So people have the capability to do this in dream time. But do we or are we going to be able to develop the capability to do this in waking time? You already have the capability of doing it. It's just knowing you have that power. We probably should not use the word power. It's off-putting. Yes, it's a little off-putting. But the ability. The ability, because people are afraid of power, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Of being overpowered. Yes. Mm -hmm. So is there ever a time or an advantage where um, one could change bodies, just experience the other person's body for a bit, Tell us in what conditions, once we develop the understanding this is possible and the capability to do it, this, where and when this could be actually useful? Only by permission. By permission, of course. But more it's useful for the individual to recognize that they're more than their physical body mm-hmm. and more capable of many things. So it's more just a confirmation of it. Well, it's more than just walking a mile in someone's shoes. Yes. So there's compassion and understanding that can be achieved. Yes. But not only are you caring whatever they've learned and the knowledge as you speak of it, but everything else that's not yours to carry. Right. Yes, it's a fascinating proposition. I I thought it was interesting, at least... In the dream. Let's talk about, okay, I want to talk about one other thing before we go to another subject, which has to do with people who are encountering or meeting with what appear to be off-planet beings and having experiences in dream time. But before that, the whole notion of um, saying, oh, you're not in your body. You need to get in your body. When people say this, sometimes I don't think they really know what they're talking about. As you say, the soul and this multidimensional aspect of self is far larger than the human body. And so in what do you take to mean by a healthy connection between the two? We find that statement, you need to get in your body, a judgment. I do too. I find it a judgment. And it's offensive. Yes. So please explain what actually is taking place. What is, what is taking place is on the individual that thinks you need to be in your body has some issue with possibly the interaction that is being had. But if you are ungrounded in your body, you know that. You can feel it in yourself. Mm-hmm. And you can do things that can ground you in the body if necessary. But not get, and I made the mistake one time of trying to pull myself into my physical body and I got about this far and had a screaming headache and started crying. I thought, oh my God, that would be pure torture. 
to live in the human inside the body bring you all can't this in. pull all can't that energy that. into this one physical no container exactly so the reality is we are connected yes and are we connected through the organs through the chakras where are our primary connection points into the body the chakras mm-hmm. yes okay. but every cell because mm-hmm. it permeates It does. We permeate all of us. Yes. But it's more than that. You're more than this physical body. And the energy of the soul is much larger than that. If you were to extend your arms out from your shoulders, Mm -hmm. you could imagine, to begin imagining the energy of your body extending out from your fingertips, your soul's energy, you could touch the opposite walls. Right. You can feel the density of that mm-hmm. with intention. So we're so much larger, so much greater, so much more multidimensional than we have the capacity to understand. And one of the things that you just said a moment ago that I think is so terribly important is there's so much help and we don't ask for it. Yes. What could life you look like for us? What could life look? Okay. Let's say we all woke up tomorrow and realized we have this vast system of help around us. What could life look like for humanity, any one of us individually, if we realize that starting this moment? Ease and grace. Not the difficulty of feeling like you're pushing. You'll be receiving intentionally all the assistance you desire. For it's open to you. And yet, as human beings, part of the journey is to learn how to deal with challenge, overcome challenge. But what better way than to ask for a little help? Receptivity is your greatest lesson. Because there's something in us that feels undeserving because of, we can go into that in another conversation, the various beings who've come by this planet and who have exerted influence and made humans to feel less than and small. And this continues to this day. We've given our power away to pretty much everything and everybody, to doctors, to preachers, to politicians and teachers. That's what we do. We give our authority and power away. And you're, I'm going, I would like you to comment on that. Of course, you have spoken with us about our knowing of this and why we've come to encourage and to teach you as a species how to recognize and bring this fragmentation that occurred between your human self and your soul into cohesiveness in the recognition of the magnificence that you are, the soul integrational process. Yes, no more worthy journey. There's, that's the journey that matters. And, and, um, we've had so much, we've covered so much. I'm going to save the whole ET thing for another day. We'll have another conversation about that. We'll just stay with the human matrix for now and our own capabilities. And Theo, I want to thank you so much for explaining some of these things to us and for reminding us that all the help is there if we just ask and that we're so capable if we just believe. If you could see ourselves as we see you, there would be no discontent. There would only be love.
You are complete yes. with your asking. I am. Thank you, Theo. God's love unto you. Thank you. Good day. Hello, Gila. Hi, Regina. That was fun. Oh, good. Yeah, we got good. into a lot of different topics um, about the human potential, the parts of ourselves that we don't even think about, that we don't understand, that we fear even. And um, I thought Theo did a lovely job explaining some things that are misunderstood. But one of the things we talked about was how we're just, we can't even comprehend how much help is just right here around us waiting to be asked. And this, and myself included. Yeah. And I know better. And when I ask, I just laugh. I'm so shocked at the creative ways in which help comes that I would, I would never imagine. Just by asking. You know what I start doing? Theo's encouraged us before we even put our feet on the floor in the morning is to think of something we're great. One thing we're grateful for, one thing we're proud of ourselves for. And the third thing that I do is I say I am open and receptive to all angelic assistance now this day. Perfect. So those are my three things before I say them one more time for all of us. Be grateful for one thing. Be proud of yourself for one thing. And ask for angelic assistance every morning. I love it. I know that it it works. It absolutely works. And I feel like such a dum-dum myself that I hesitate to. I don't. I just don't think to ask. I think I I'll, I'll muscle through this. No, we don't have to do it that way. Well, what do we do? We wake up in the morning and we start thinking about the things we didn't do yesterday, mm-hmm. the things we have to get done today. I mean, our minds it goes so to work. and boring. And boring. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like stop, do those three things, and then go. I love it. And I know that your life, since I've known, I've known you, I don't know, maybe 12 years or so, a while. I've known you quite yeah. a while now. Um your life does flow with what seems to be grace and ease. And one way you can tell is that you don't change. You don't age. Everything seems to come when you need it. It doesn't mean you don't have challenges. We all have them. But you live that life of grace and ease. So <laughs> yeah, I've been a good student. You have been a very good student. And you've been a wonderful teacher for these everyone here as well. So, oh, Sheila, goodness. thank you so much for joining us. And uh, you're Art of Relationship book is coming out. And so next time we get together, we'll talk about that. I'd love to do that. Okay, very good. Thank you so much. Thank you. I hope this has been enlightening and educating on some of the more common human phenomena. Meanwhile, you can reach Sheila and the Theo Group's events by going to asktheo.com. Until next time, thank you for joining us here on Open Minds. Wunderbar. <laughs> that was very fun. <laughs> yeah. I have a sense of those experiences much more as the energies keep increasing. How about you, Rama? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The one we're going to do next is called Geometric Structures Beyond Duality. And uh, this is with Jimmy Church. 
Our new scientific discoveries linking consciousness and space-time, delving into the cosmic connections of consciousness, super tuminal systems, CEO Adam Apollo shares the evolving history of humanity's understanding of our place in the universe. From the matching geometry of DNA and proton structures to quantum physics rewriting science itself, Apollo pushes us to move beyond duality and resonate within the harmonic universe. So this is a 33-minute piece, and we begin now. I'm radio and television host Jimmy Church, and I'm here to uncover the truth about some of life's biggest mysteries. If this is revealed, everything has to be rewritten. My guest today is Adam Apollo, founder of several successful companies and a featured speaker on future technologies and unified physics at the White House and the United Nations. This is the most advanced machine imaginable. Technical assistant Josh. Josh, can you pull up the map? Yeah. Also joins us to help set the scenes. Join us as we deep dive to get to the bottom of some of the most intriguing questions of our time. As soon as you consider maybe a ship has a way to create a gravitational envelope around it, suddenly, boom, they can be here like that. Welcome to Into the Vortex. I am your host, Jimmy Church, and today our guest is Adam Apollo. He has been researching unified physics. He's been teaching unified physics and consciousness with different academies and, of course, his own companies as well. And, Josh, today is the show where you get your knowledge on. Are you ready? Yes. Uh, the science of consciousness is dear to my heart. And I know, Adam, you're on the frontier of this research. And I'm just looking forward to this conversation. We have to start where it all starts. Um, physics, orthodox academia, and the hard sciences – they don't want to discuss consciousness, whether it's they can't measure it, they can't put it into the lab. Uh, there's a denial there, and there's a bona fide line in the sand where they don't want to go here. But I'm going to go there right now. What is consciousness? Consciousness is an emergent principle underlying the very evolution, diversity, centropy of space-time itself. It's harmonic. It's geometric. And everything that exists is essentially a self-referencing, self-learning feedback loop connecting with itself, evolving itself through this sort of spread of frequency and harmonics and the way that each of those harmonics play off of each other, grow from each other, are in relationship with each other. It's a conversation happening at the most fundamental levels of the universe itself. When a physicist or scientist mm. is asked that question and everybody wants to get this out of a scientist, 
uh, you know, what is consciousness, immediately they back down. And the science is starting to push towards consciousness today. Why is it that they want to fight this and not answer the question? It's an old story. It goes back uh, hundreds of years. You know, in the ancient philosophy that became what we know now as physics, the ether was a fundamental principle. This understanding that some part of us and some part of the field of space-time are the same thing. But as we got into the Enlightenment era, into the 17 and 1800s, there became a huge amount of pressure between religious organizations and the scientists and philosophers. Because when you're talking about consciousness, what makes us aware, you're getting dangerously close to the concepts of God. And the concepts of God were you know, patented, trademarked, and owned by the religious groups at the time, particularly Roman Catholic Church, to point fingers a little bit. And so scientists had to try to get outside of the space where the church held domain. And that meant trying to somehow explain the fundamental faculties of the ether and actually break them down enough so that they would no longer be defined in the same realm as this story about God. So a physicist who used to be a philosopher, which philosophy was physics and then separated, a physicist today knows he can laugh, he can ponder, he can think, he can ask questions because he has consciousness, she has consciousness. They certainly understand that they possess this, but they don't want to talk about what it may be. And if that's the case, it must be a thing throughout the universe. There's still a lingering effect of Descartes' theories. And Descartes essentially said that, you know, the physics of the bodies of beings is automata. Everything is mechanical. You could understand a body just by all of the parts and pieces that make it up. And we still have a strong thread of that in the core of physics, the idea that everything is just a compilation of parts. And so the physicist now would say, oh, that's just neurological impulses that are residually pinging because of the patterns of the pings that I had prior to this moment. And that all I'm experiencing is the collection of impulses that has you know, aggregated to form my thinking right now. However, this misses certain very fundamental pieces of phenomenology. Anyone who's actually in the field of either deep psychology or deep philosophy knows and understands that you can't actually get the result of an instantaneous inspiration or impulse, a new idea, the magic of Satori, as they would say in Eastern traditions, the lightning bolts that bring us into new levels of innovation and understanding inspiration simply through some kind of linear process of impulses that are uh, essentially responding to patterns that we experienced in the past. Well, I'll give you an example. I'll throw this to Josh. Mm-hmm. Josh, you can think, you can laugh. You're thinking right now. Mm-hmm. Do you ever wonder why you can do that and where your consciousness comes from? More and more as I get older, not when I was younger, but yeah, I question that regularly. 
And that's the worldview of this. I would think that we know it exists. Physics today, science is, is trying to suggest that there's a little piece of consciousness in every particle. And I think it's their way of quantifying the existence of consciousness, and they're trying to figure out where it comes from. But if there's a little piece of consciousness in every particle, eventually, if you mass enough of it together, you get consciousness and this gray mass between our ears is because so many particles are assembled together. But that would say that consciousness is throughout the universe then. Correct. Absolutely. And again, you can still see that residual thinking from Descartes. You add together all the particles equals a state of consciousness. Holography has shown us something interesting and different where we know that the whole can exist in each of the parts and that no matter which parts you choose or pick or how small a portion of the parts, the entire whole is reflected there. Now, in the field of quantum mechanics, when we start actually looking at the structure of space-time, what we've come to understand is that it's likely, and Lee Smolin and the Loop Quantum Gravity guys really kind of set this in motion, that each point in space-time acts as like a bit, the same way a computer bit works. But maybe not just isolated to one and zero. Maybe a quantum bit with fluctuation between the one and zero, right? A both. And a both. And so all of these little quantum bits form this, right? But what are we talking about when we're saying it's actually forming this? We're talking about those quantum bits forming protons. Now, I became deeply interested in understanding the geometry of the proton, mostly through doing a lot of work with my colleague, Nassim Haramein, in the Resonance Academy. And as I dove deeper into looking at the geometric structures of the proton, I became highly interested in applying Buckminster Fuller's work and geodesics to the understanding of how space-time curves. And what I found is that in the vortices that would go into this nested ball that makes up each proton, you have these vortex tunnels. And the vortex tunnels, when you look at their geometry from the top as if you're looking down into the proton – the geometric structure is exactly the same as what DNA looks like from the top. And this got me thinking, maybe protons are actually little hard drives storing information from the universe. Well, it turns out, Jimmy, that if we count the amount of little bits, those quantum fluctuations that make up a proton, it turns out there's 10 to the 60th of them inside of one proton. Well, I flipped the page over to Planck's work, looking at all of the Planck numbers. And Max Planck, by the way, he's the guy who pretty much started quantum mechanics. And he counts time in a unit called Planck seconds. And it turns out that there's also 10 to the 60th Planck seconds in the lifetime of the universe. Okay, let's stop right there. That is a huge number. Yeah. And for anybody <laughs> right now listening to 10 of the 60th, that, that is, it sounds like it's being thrown out there. That is how big of a number? That's a 10 with 60 zeros after it. What's bigger than that? <laughs> Not much, right? <laughs> Not much. 
that that's a huge number. And yeah. so this would also suggest to me that the ability to measure consciousness, which is the battle yeah. um, in physics is measuring anything. Right. And even that is another conversation in of itself. Yeah. But is this a way to maybe quantify and measure consciousness? It is because as we're getting down to the structural fabric of space time itself, we don't have the instruments to observe that small yet because we're talking about literally the threshold of the electromagnetic spectrum, the highest possible frequency. And so we can't capture that on camera yet, but when we do, it's my theoretical assessment that you will actually be able to see every layer of the energetic body talked about in all of these spiritual traditions across the earth. You'll be able to actually capture on camera the spin of a chakra, the nature of a nadi, the aspects of entanglement that are traveling through that fundamental field in space. And what we're actually measuring is gravity waves because gravity is just the fluctuation and curvature of space-time itself. So any impulse of consciousness in space-time, a movement of consciousness in space-time, as above, so below, is represented in this fundamental quantum field. And this connects the dots back because it says every proton is remembering every moment that exists in the lifetime of the entire universe and every proton is exchanging information with other protons in a shared learning field. And now, that sounds a distances. lot like you and me. Vast distances. Vast distances. Let's let's spin this around, if we may. If there is an advanced extraterrestrial civilization out there, we'll call it ETC. If there is an ETC out there that understands this, mm. this is a way to not only communicate in real time over vast distances, but also share information, right? Absolutely. Gene Roddenberry presented a great solution to this many years ago, and he talked about in Star Trek, the writer of Star Trek, the subspace relay. Now, what the heck is the subspace relay? Well, in physics, what we're actually realizing is subspace would basically be this Planck-level field, and that there'd be some way to entangle points in this quantum field. And guess what? We went ahead and did it. And China teleported information and structure, literally molecular structure, teleported to a satellite and back. And that key, that understanding that essentially you can connect two points in space-time and that information can be transferred between those points. And maybe not just information, because what's matter? Matter is just a more complex, curved form of information in the form of protons. Right. So matter transmission across space-time without motion through space-time. Now, uh, again, the hard sciences will say entangling one particle with another particle and having it affect the other one in real time, not at the speed of light, but in, in the speed of now. Yeah, That's one thing, and we can prove that. But it's another thing to use that same concept with data transfer and communication. Mm -hmm. I would suggest that if you 
understood how to entangle all the particles in your mind mm. with the mind and the brain, say, of Josh sitting next to me here, and that if all of our particles are entangled, we could share any information that we wanted to. Isn't this what entanglement represents? It's more than a postulation, Jimmy. It happens every day, all the time. Think of a mother whose child's outside playing. Right. Child falls and skins their knee. What happens? The mom suddenly has alarm systems going off in her energetic body, and she goes out to check on her child. Every mom can relate to this. Every person can relate to this because we've all had those moments where we think about, uh, we call it your ears burning when someone's talking about you. We've all had some experience of knowing someone was talking about us, and yet we spend very little time actually cultivating the sensitivity to be able to develop that to its fullest extent. Imagine a civilization that has developed that over hundreds of years or even thousands of years as a core part of their culture to the point where they're now using devices instead of just augmenting my voice and transmitting that over a phone to another location on the planet, they're actually augmenting that entanglement so that those telepathic transmissions happen more clearly, more accurately, and more exactly. And guess what? You've got to have that to have a galactic civilization. Okay, so if Josh and I are out in our starship, he's actually a starship pilot, he's accredited, and he's really good. If we're out in deep space... And we are going to a destination, to a star. And there's another ETC that was just at that star system. And we want information about that and and what we can expect when we get there. How do we know who we're talking to and where they are in space? And how would they know where we are and not communicating somewhere else in, in the universe? Well, there are different ways of refining the kind of information reception that can happen through telepathy. Um, we can see this in a lot of the modern science work around remote viewing, that you can remote view random things, but if you very clearly intentionally put your consciousness in a certain location, even a certain GPS coordinate, you can get exact data about that location. Now, Refine that a little bit and consider an intergalactic, an interstellar network, mm-hmm. essentially, where you have species on ships all over the place jumping to different star systems. Well, on Earth, we have airports and we have control towers. And those control towers have operators with a bunch of radar who are basically coordinating which planes are going to come in in which order. So if you're going to travel to someone's local star system, You're going to want to check in with the local arrival authority that is controlling the space around that planetary system. So likely they have a hub somewhere on the planet. You know, in the Syrian system, they do this in the polar regions because it's the area that's the darkest because they have two suns. So it's a little bit easier to filter the light and to also see in the stars. Um, And essentially, they're coordinating arrivals to that location through telepathy. So you as a starship pilot are going to ping that star system, and there's certain ways that they can also dial very specific numbers the same way we would on a phone. 
but they use frequency sets to dial in communication. So they're trying to find a specific frequency band that's accessible that can lock in the telepathic connection. And then essentially, you're good to go. There's open space. This region here, they send the impulse of exactly what it looks like from that location. Then the person piloting the ship essentially is visualizing that location, transmits that to the ship, augments it, jumps. So help me understand this. Josh piloting Mm -hmm. wouldn't be communicating with a piece of hardware. It would all be done with entanglement of the mind. The frequency is allowing the reception. He would know when it is coming in. And then his answer back would be at a certain frequency, communicating back all in real time. Not that it's, the hardware is removed from the equation, right. but that the hardware is essentially biofeedback mechanisms okay. amplifying the natural capacity of the human body. So if you think about it, we're already doing that. Like we have the ability to be telepathic, but in order to confirm that that person just thought about you, what do we do? We call them on the phone. Mm-hmm. We look at them on video. We talk to them. And so our device is augmenting us with the capacities we know right now to do that. But then consider the next level of that tech where it's actually providing biofeedback to you of what your own body is capable of. This is the most advanced machine imaginable. And so just giving feedback to our own vehicle of the power that we have provides us with a mechanism for that kind of communication. And you would absolutely be able to holographically display someone who's remote viewing into your ship. You'd absolutely be able to essentially project yourself as a hologram for somebody else. I mean, you can imagine the kind of translocational presencing that goes way beyond Zoom. Do we do that and not even know it? Yes. Absolutely. If we're out with a group, I keep using Josh as a reference, but he's a magnet. right? Sure. And so... Again, we're out and we want to see something cool, maybe something arrive here, and we're projecting that. Mm. Is that like a beam or an antenna mm. to a, you know, an ETC out there going, hey, Josh and Jimmy are saying hello. Uh, do they see us? Do they feel us? And do they, are we calling them in that way and not even, mm. you know, we're not aware of it? In my Guardian Alliance training school, one of the Jedi practices that we do during retreats especially is we have a circle of people surround a person, and that person is blindfolded. And the circle, people switch off essentially focusing on that person and pointing little fire fingers at that person. And the person blindfolded has to sense in the field can they feel that angular vector mm, coming at them right. and turn their attention in that direction? And this is a sort of trick to unlocking the deeper sensory perceptions involved in higher level martial arts. Um, but and now extend that idea to the directional focus and intention that we all radiate all the time. And imagine you're on a ship able to look at the earth and you're able to see When there's an intentional beam going out trying to connect to a certain star system or trying to connect out to some life that's outside the atmosphere. And there is such an intense desire and focus that it literally is like a vector ray 
coming off the planet that's able to be perceived by these advanced instruments inside of these ships. And by the way, more than just those vector rays, they can actually see harmonic field sets with different color coding illustrating the level of consciousness, tension, emotionality, etc., in a whole vast area around a city. So they can tell if there's places in the city way out of coherence and others way in coherence. Is this something that we would call maybe like a beacon? Is that the right sure. way to say it? Yeah. Right? And, and, and so and they could gauge through colors mm-hmm. on what's cool and what's not. And I don't want to sound fundamental here, but that yeah. sounds like that's what's going on. Well, right now we have a project called the Global Co- Coherence Initiative. And the Global Coherence Initiative has instrumentation around the planet, and it can actually pick up what the electromagnetic field levels are in different cities around the planet. And what we find is when there are major events occurring on the planet, oftentimes there is this massive increase of synchronization that goes on between the states of all these instruments around the planet. And so that's our sort of big brute force measurement to get to this kind of information. But they're a thousand years ahead of us in terms of highly defined individualized studies of coherence. Mm -hmm. You know, is you and your household in a state of coherence or not? And it's not to say you're good or bad if you're in coherence or not, but someone's in a who's in a high state of coherence low level of fear, anxiety, et cetera, high levels of love, connection, feeling, uh, openness. Now that looks like someone who might be willing to have a conversation. Josh, have you ever called in a ship? No, but this conversation is giving a lot of credence to the idea of these groups of people coming together and using meditative states to reach out. You know, I always believed in it, but after this, I'm, I'm, there's a lot more uh, evidence to back that up. What would you do? Because he, Adam, Mm -hmm. has not only called in things and and interacted, but it appears that it's pretty quick and that it's not something that is uh, imagined when this goes down. Mm -hmm. But if you, you haven't done it yet, but I'm asking you, if you went out Mm -hmm. with, with Adam and I and you called in a ship, and something appeared above you, how does that change your world? First, I would try not to panic, even though I want that uh, Fair. <laughs> want that experience to happen. It would change my worldview because immediately it would give evidence that there is more life out there than I realize and that the science of consciousness and how we all connect makes us closer than we realize. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what happens with you. You always have somebody in the group mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. is like, ah, right? And then it happens. There's usually... Uh, a threshold to overcome in the resistance factor first. One of the things that I learned from having conversations with different star beings starting back in 2005 is that when someone is in a high state of resistance and they're not willing to believe what they see, they can write off anything. I've had ships come in and literally turn 90 degree and do a check mark. And they're obsessed for a moment with the phenomenology of it. Like, oh my God, like, what was that? Was that, was that a ship, you know? And then 
they're like, is it going to happen again? Like, and then they start doubting. Did I really just see that? Did I really just have that experience? I had a friend in Sedona who I've worked with for many years. He got me into the White House and the UN back in the day as a speaker. He wanted me to assess how many of the youth in that in those events were interested in these topics and new energy systems. And that actually got me to get a bunch of funding for Nassim and his research. And he was like, you know, I've never seen, I've never seen a shit. Can we do that right now? We're out in the desert in Sedona. We went on a walk. We're out in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, let's do it right now. And so I open up, I start feeling into the stars. I show him a little star linking practice get him really opened up and I'm like, just be patient and be still. We're sitting there for a couple minutes. He clicks over and he describes this to me afterwards. He was like anticipating, anticipating, doubting, doubting, afraid. It's not going to happen. He's already disappointed. And then he like, let's go. And he's like, you know what? I felt this feeling like, you know, whatever. Maybe it's not real. Maybe it doesn't matter. Why am I, you know, so focused and affixed on this happening? Right then, right when he let go, boom, ship shows up. And then another ship and another ship and another ship. And they show up. They pulse across the sky, pulsing together, disappearing, coming in kind of like a little chain. And he's he's blown open so much he just starts crying. And his heart is open. He's like, my God, Adam, it's true. It's real. And he couldn't, he didn't even know how to deal with it, how to process it. And he shared with me this moment of this releasing. But even after that experience, he still came back to me in an email like, did that really happen? Because he hadn't opened up enough of the neural pathways to actually accept this possible new reality. And that's what it takes, a shift to a new state of belief and a new state of openness and a new state of being. And that shift is an initiation process. This is why it doesn't just happen to everybody. We have to be willing to go deeper, explore more of ourselves, find out who we are and why do we need to know. There are so many different civilizations out there, and I think that the number is nearly infinite. It has to be. The the universe itself is infinite, and we know that in our own Milky Way right now, science is telling us we have 80 billion Earth-like planets in the Goldilocks zone right here in our galactic neighborhood. That That's would huge. suggest that we have a lot of different things uh, checking out planet Earth. But how do they get here? Are we looking for, when you say a ship appears above you, is this a nuts and bolts situation? Is it interdimensional? Are they folding space? Are we not seeing them get here? Uh, do we not make that observation of their arrival and then boom, they're just appearing above us? How does this happen? The factor in science, that's one of the big limitations. And this was a fault that you know, even Stephen Hawking fell into. He said, extraterrestrials can't come to Earth because they would have to expend all of this fuel and travel through all of this space. And then eventually they'd finally get here and they'd be out of resources. And 
Then they'd have to come down and mine our planet to get their resources back to be able to get back home. And generations would die along the way. And I say, look, that's a major fallacy because that assumes the same level of technology that we have. Right. That's assuming that you only have horses and buggies. Right. No that, it's the only way that we can look at it. Right. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we get stuck in that lens. Right. But. As soon as you consider maybe a ship has a way to create a gravitational envelope around it and essentially transposition itself to a new spot, quantum teleportation, but at scale for a ship, suddenly, boom, they can be here like that. Second, they're not using light to communicate. So if we're sending out beams of radio waves trying to talk to the Pleiades, they're 400 light years away. It's not getting there for 400 years. They're using quantum communication. They're using telepathic communication. It's instantaneous. It's in a totally different zone, and it's not using light as the mechanism. So the things we're trying to sense as communication methods, even SETI's obsession with, like, let's find a laser beam coming from another planet. Right. Well, yeah, but what's your point? Because they're not using those laser beams to talk. That's not. That's way too slow. And so the ships are here. The ships have been here. They've been visiting this planet for thousands and thousands of years. All the stories of the gods and goddesses back in the day coming down, making demigod babies occasionally, superhero <laughs> abilities, fantastic tools that could regenerate. Sharing food. information. Yeah, yeah, right. They've been here. And we're now in a stage where we're just starting to open up to that realization and we're starting to understand the physics of how it could work. Tonight, Josh, you, Adam, and I are going to go call in some ships. Are yes. you ready? Yes, please. This has been a great conversation today, Adam. Thank, Thank you, you so much. It's really a pleasure, Jimmy. Thanks for having me. This is Into the Vortex. I'm your host, Jimmy Church. And Josh and I will catch you on the next one. Okay, this one is our final sharing of this evening, and this is George Nury, and uh, he's having a guest, Roderick Martin. Why is the African-American perspective largely missing from the UFO disclosure conversation? Roderick Martin, an African-American investigator with MUFON, Mutual UFO Network, discusses his work in examining photo and video evidence of ET contactee experiences and the history of minority contacts in the UFO world. As we learn to deal with our own interplanetary issues, we paved the way for future disclosure and interactive uh, interactions with advanced intergalactic cultures. Okay, ready, Ron? This is uh, 45 minutes, so fasten your seatbelts. Here we go. It all happened. 
within about a minute. I was like, wow. At 12, you understood what you were looking at? I knew it was not normally if an African-American person would have seen a UFO. He's not going to walk into the local police station. This is not something you're just going to make up and wake up in the morning and say, not only were an interracial couple, but let's bring something else into the mix. Oh, we were abducted. I sat back and I said, you got to be the good husband. This is mentally affecting your wife. Oh, wow. It gets in your blood, doesn't it? It's a rabbit hole that we can't get to the bottom. What would be one of the greatest stories from a witness you've ever heard? Welcome to Beyond Belief. Roderick Martin with us is a Mutual UFO Network Texas field investigator. Now, he also hosts a podcast and a YouTube channel called Why the Big Secret? Roderick, welcome to the program. Glad to be here, George. And why the big secret? Because there is a secret, plain and simple. But what's, I think what's the secret? We don't know. But I think if we start asking the question why, we get past the, the narrative that's put out there, right? Because I think everybody knows what most of the secrets are, but we really don't know why it's a big secret. We all are interested in UFOs. Mm-hmm. We're just baffled by what happens. How did you get interested? Well, it all started when I was 12 years old. Uh, well, probably before that. But when I was 12 years old in Dallas, one evening, you know, I was about to come into the house because that's when my mom flicks the porch light. That's the signal. Like, get in, Rod. Get, get in. in. And everybody's like in the corner over there. And so I was lagging that night, that evening. So it's right when the stars was just, you know how it meets and you just kind of see the stars a little right. bit. And I just looked up and there it was. It was a white object, just like a disc. Well, I can't say it was a disc, but it was white. And behind it was two jets following it. And then it came back and then they came back and it went back. It all happened within about a minute, you know, but I was like, wow. At 12, you understood what you were looking at? I knew it was not normal. Uh And I've watched enough TV to know that what was that? But I didn't realize the significance of that moment. But as the months and years rolled by, and it was always seared in my head because I never told anyone. Sure. From a neighborhood, you're not going to talk about UFOs, so that's not happening. (laughs) How did this evolve for you then at 12? Did you keep going with it or did you stop for a few years? No, it it, it stayed my secret, you know, and like I said, the neighborhood that I grew up in, you could have been the neighborhood bully. You're not going to say, well, I saw a UFO last night. Your street credit is gone. So it stayed there. Okay. But then close encounters of the third kind. Then you have ET phone home and all of that just brought it in that, yeah, where did E.T. come from? People you know? got interested in the song. Yes. And, and so I would always read the, the magazines when I go to the store, UFO magazines that were out at that time. In fact, I have a collection of them now. And so I would read those stories, comic books that had the UFO stories in them. So, um, But over time, I began to say, wait a minute, this is probably a real deal. I love that. Now, how did you migrate to MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. Well, MUFON, I was watching Hangar One, which was one of their feature things. And I used to always see the little the MUFON things on the show. I was like, that's cool. There's somebody out there that investigate UFOs. Now, this is besides Coast to Coast and yeah, listen to Art Bell exactly. and all of that stuff. But there's actual people doing this. And so at this time, I was uh, on Facebook or something, uh, social media. And they have these tracking things. I have went to their site and I became a member before I became a 
uh, UFO investigators because you can get a membership to the site. Anybody could. Yeah, anybody could. So you can access some of the data. And so I was always a fan, so I always contributed to their cause. Um, but then there was still this thing in my home, so where I really just didn't talk about it enough. So, um, but MUFON was became an outlet. But then all of a sudden, I said, you know what? I'm going to become an investigator. And what was it like investigating UFOs and talking to witnesses? Well, I think for me, um, again, I've always knew that they were real to me. Yes. Uh, and no doubts. Never had doubts. No, I haven't had doubts, no. And I think, you know, a lot has changed now. But for me to start investigating with some of the witnesses uh, and the challenge is that, that you have to really understand the witness themselves because before you can go any further than that you know you have to ask those hard questions and and it's kind of humorous to me but you know you hey I'm, were you drinking that night you know That's and right. and the witness will tell you i had a little bit now most people could stop right there and walk away but right. i say what is a little bit to you versus what i think is a little bit because i don't drink at all and you find out maybe it was a keg. Now you have to think, oh, well, I normally drink three kegs. And so right. you have to then trust the witnesses all across the board. So that's where it starts. And that's what I like the most when we move on. Because you meet some great people. There is some great witnesses. There are some people that really, really uh, have have some good background that you you will believe what they're saying. Yeah. How do you get the witnesses? Does MUFON dig them up for you? No, yeah. MUFON has a, a CMS system. Uh, and then, of course, everything goes through the hierarchy from through our state director to our, to the person who handles sure. us regionally. Cases are then assigned to us at that point at that level. Uh, and once they're assigned to us, we have a few days to go into there, depending on the code, to contact the witnesses themselves. Um, and then, of course, open up the case and then make contact. Is it based on region? So these people you interview are in the Dallas area? They'll be more in the Texas South area. Okay. So, yes, it's all based upon region because now I think they may, and I, and I may just be saying this, I don't know if they're now going to change some of the parameters because now, you know, we can do a lot of stuff more virtually. But back then. You could do Zoom calls. You can do Zoom like because that. now they bridge it out because if you're going to go out to the witnesses. But since COVID had happened, yeah. that all just shut down. And do you come back with a report? Do you have to finalize some report on the person you interviewed? Yes. And the CMS, we'll go through a Form 30, and, and that's going to be the finalization of us doing our report. Now, the witness don't see this, but it is examined you by file it. Yeah. When we file it, our state directors and everyone else has access to it. And if there is any discrepancies, they will reach out uh, or if we need any more assistance, because there are times that there's things that I probably see that I really don't know what I'm looking at, but there are more experienced people that do. So I will reach out and, and then they can assist us. But at the end of the day, we uh, seal it off, close their case out. Then uh, at that point, it's archived. And your recommendations or your reports generally are favorable to the witness or not? Well, it depends on the investigator. For me, I think you you just I just state the facts. Um, and you try not to be uh, too opinionated. Yeah, because at this point, that's your, even though I'm a believer and you tend to want every time a case is signed, you want to know this is the one. Yeah, you, know? you want it to be real. You want it to be real. But then you have to, like I say, once you talk to the witness and then you hear their side of the story, you go through the protocols of information, 
then you write the report. But now we're going to do a lot of other stuff. I mean, we're going to check metadata on the pictures or the videos. We're going to check the weather report because oftentimes a witness say, oh, I saw it. It was a clear day. And you uh, check the weather. It was cloudy. How could you see something out there? So, but again, this is not a conversation we have with the witness. They have no clue that we are being that objective because all we are doing is just gathering information from them. Now, you have, of course, your own program on yes. YouTube. You've mm-hmm. developed the podcast that mm-hmm. we've talked about. So you have evolved into your own podcast, your own YouTube channel. Tell me a little bit about that. Well, basically, um, as again, you, you want to get your message out to the world, uh, especially being in my community, you know, and sure. knowing that it, it, it's interpreted a little different, you know, or taboo almost. So when I initially started my podcast and, and the question for me was curiosity, because, you know, I go back to the basics, George, when it comes down, you know, there's a high level conversation when it comes to all of this. But I'm finding that there's still millions and millions of people who still have that one question, and that is, are UFOs real? Are we alone in the universe? Are we alone? Yeah. And so that's when I began to start looking at all of the secrets that we've heard. And I was like, wait a minute. Now, of course, it's also inspired by the movie Men in Black when mm-hmm. uh, Will Smith sat down with Tommy Lee and that scene when he says, why the big secret? And Tommy Lee, you know, uh, Kay said, you know, well, uh, he says people can handle it. That's what Wilson has said. But Tom Lee says, no, a person can handle it. People are dumb, crazy, and they out of control. Right. And so at that point, it gave me some context to think, why is it a big secret? So if you think about Roswell or any of these, and I'm thinking, okay, now that over the years of the past 50 or 60 years, we hear what they found. Yeah, okay, there was a crash, all that possible alien bodies. But what's the real secret? You know, what would it really be such as what if the extraterrestrials told us something about free energy? Sure. Wouldn't that be the big secret, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah. They don't want that. They don't want that out there. So instead of us focusing on the narratives that that is leaked out or that then we think we done found something great. But this is the strategy behind this. We need to start getting curious. Think why is what I tell my audience. And that begins the possibilities of the curiosity questions. And once we start that, oh, my God, then we get into a whole nother level. So. Rodwick, the amazing documentary film producer on UFOs, James Fox, was on Beyond Belief with okay. us and talked about how he got into this field. How did you get involved in this true obsession with UFOs? I really wanted to know the truth. When I, a good friend of mine started talking about Roswell, this was in the very early 90s. I honestly felt that he had lost his mind, and uh, but he's a really good friend. And then I was uh, working doing video production in San Francisco, doing PSAs, public service announcements. Yeah. And one of the guys that I really respected on the on the job site was like, "Oh yeah, Roswell really did actually happen," and he confirmed a bunch of stuff for me. And I thought, "Hmm." So I started looking into it, and here I am, all these years later, still wanting to get to the truth. And I feel like I'm getting closer. To the truth, but the truth is a more elusive than I expected. Is it like one step forward, two steps back? One step forward, ten steps back. That much? Well, yeah. That's I mean, frustrating. Well, it, it is, it isn't. I mean, I really feel like I'm getting closer to knowing what the government knows. And uh, we know that the government uh, knows the real, and they have for quite some time, uh, as early back as the estimate of the situation in 48. 
Um, but I, I'm beginning to believe, and some people are going to hate me for saying this, that it's more a question of what the government doesn't know as doesn't opposed know. to what they know yeah. is reasons for secrecy. Because you can't let the cat out of the bag and not have – it's going to open up a floodgate of inquiries. Could you imagine That's true. admitting that they're real and then not having all the answers? I mean, we you don't really not know. Not being able to back it up yeah. or tell us if it's dangerous or not. Are they taking us? Are they eating us? Who knows what? But you're <laughs> right. I think people would panic. Right. Have you questioned the non-disclosure from government? Why they don't tell us? Well, I mean, same with what James just said. You know, it's, for example, like I was just alluding to, we never saw a UFO stop for gas, right? No. So, therefore, never. they're using something different. And just as his question is to go deeper. So, with the government disclosure, I think, again, it's all a narrative. It is their way of... um you know, letting this thing, and like you said, they may not know everything, uh, and maybe not, but who's to, I know what they're not telling us, and that's everything that they right. know, right? And so I think the disclosure side of the government, we probably would never know, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, times have changed though, because if you go back to the 40s and 50s, there was a different network. Now you have children of those people are now senators, they're curious. And so I think in another 10 or 15 years, we probably have a, a whole change of government and some of the powers to get the questions answered. When you talk to witnesses, mm-hmm. what seems to be the most predominant answer that they give you about these UFOs that they see? Well, I think when I really dig into it, George, we spent a lot of time focusing as investigators, researchers on the UFOs itself. And I think it's evolving for me is to start trusting the witness because right. now you're getting down to what they say or, or their stories, their emotions, because you can't really verify all of them. But that's where I get into where I now have to know what they're really looking for is someone to believe them. What would be one yeah. of the greatest stories from a witness mm-hmm. you've ever heard? Well, I think from the greatest stories would be that I've ever heard. Now, would that be via MUFON, um, which outside of MUFON, as I would say, one of the greatest outside. stories okay. was a hybrid story of a person saying that how they have had hybrid children uh, and how they have been on a spacecraft and just the deepness of that and really how they really was giving me a descriptive of that story. Did you believe them? I had to because and here's where I go with this. It's. And this is a powerful thing. It's no more of believing the story itself. I have to believe you believe. Right. And that's what gives me the power to to come with you on your journey. And do you look for that on them? Yes, you have to. Their actions, their eyes. Their eyes, uh, the way they tell the story, uh, the way the emotions that they put behind it. Because a lot of people are not understanding the mental health in this thing. And some people carry a heavy burden when it comes down to this phenomenal. And if you can see it and feel it and come through it, you have to believe uh, what they're saying to go with them. So if you told me, Roderick, behind that dumpster, there is a leprechaun and I can't see it. I don't even see the rainbow, but I do want the gold. But at the end of the day, I have to believe George. Yeah. And if George is an emotional enough, then I'm going to say, George, you know what? I believe you believe that there's something behind that. And for that, I'm going to go with you on this journey. 
What do you think the ETs are doing? What what what's their goal here? <laughs> I think we hear so many stories. Okay, we hear the ancient civilization stories back into now. Um, I think now the ETs, uh, if they had an agenda by now, they are now displaying because uh, you got two sides of this coin, whether benevolent or benevolent. Right. Uh, and I tend to lean with the process of insurance. I just want us to be safe if something was to come up. So the agenda of them, I don't think has really, uh, has been known because that's where that why the big secret comes from. But if we start looking at the facts though, from cattle mutilations to abductees, to, you know, all of these things that's happening, somebody is studying us. That's for sure. And for why we don't know, but I'd rather be prepared for it. This agenda would not be that bad, though, or they would have done something to us by now, don't you think? I don't know about that. Uh-huh. I question that. And I have an example for that. We all have alarm systems in our homes, okay? We turn them on at night for security for us and our family. Sure. But if there was something or someone or something standing across the street, and every time you armed that alarm, it raised its hand and it disarmed your alarm. It's going to really take you into a frenzy. No, but yet it hadn't broken into the house. It hadn't done anything. It just keeps yet. letting you know. Yet. Yet. So that doesn't allow me to sleep at night to say just because they haven't done anything doesn't mean the possibility. But when they do display the power through their technology, through all of the things that they do that we can't keep up with, our military, you know, saying how much of the air threat it is, that let us know. There is something out there, and the possibility is there, and we should act accordingly. Let's get your opinion on Chase Klotsky, a MUFON member who was on my show and talked about what she thought was the agenda. Okay. There's information on all sides, and we have to weigh everybody. If they're a credible witness and they're coming to you with they're all good, or they're all bad and this is reproductive and they're scaling our babies and creating hybrids. I'm, I think it's premature to jump in a box too quickly. And when you put it all together, what again, why couldn't it be a bunch of different agendas? I kind of look at it as if, um, say you and I discover intelligent life on another planet and we come back and uh, who would want to be on that spaceship for the next time we go out? Who would want to be with us? Virologists, biologists, sociologists, scientists, um, you know, people. All kinds of people. Absolutely. And each one of them with a, their own agenda, which is the most important. To them. Yes. In the study of, you know, d- this new species we found, much like we do in the Chongos today when we find a new bug. So I wonder if... You know, there just happens to be that same scenario that if they're an advanced culture that has all this intelligent technology, there would be many agendas and many reasons to come at us the way they do. However, there's no evidence one way or another. Um, so we're still working. You think she's spot on, Rod? Yeah, I, I think she's spot on. And, you know, even myself just finished a documentary. Uh, and it was the military encounters and stories that had never been told. That's great. Um, and that also posed a whole different, uh, perspective on this, you know, cause you, on one hand, you have people that say, okay, they're, they come in peace. They're not done anything. But then when you see the, the cover up of some of the military encounters and you think about that, I mean, we have the most 
feared military in the world, right? We have some advanced technology. Absolutely. But when you have some of these pilots, such as what you saw in the Tic Tac videos and how they was excited, but then you hear the truth that they were um, not excited. They were scared or they had a lot of, you know, feared sentiment that lets you know that there's another side of this that we need to be looking at. And so as she's saying, it's a lot of pieces and they all need to come together. And I think that's what Congress is really trying to do is get all of these agencies to begin to report together. And it's all separate right now. It's a hodgepodge. Yeah, because if you think about it, uh, you, you get a case that something comes out of the water in California. Well, okay, we got the Coast Guard may report it. Then once it goes up a little higher, the Navy is involved. Now it doesn't hit the sky, but it doesn't zoom in seconds over to another part of the country. The Air Force is involved. Okay, maybe it landed and abducted somebody. It's the Army. But all this is one encounter, but we have all these agencies got different reports, and they're not communicating because they're keeping it all in their own compartmentalized way. And that's the problem. We need all of them to work as one, share the technology, share the information, and then hopefully we get some things to the public. And it's just not so much our government working in separate capacities. When you get reports, Mm -hmm. they come from people of all walks of life. Absolutely. And I remember back when I was 11 years old, the Barney and Betty Hill case. Yes. Where we had an Mm African-American married to a Caucasian woman, Mm -hmm. which was a no-no in those days. That's how ridiculous society was in those days. But it was a huge story. And it got pretty good coverage. Look Magazine had a spread on it. Uh, John Fuller wrote a story called The Interrupted Journey about yes. them. It was a big story. Are we getting African-Americans and others to come forward with these kinds of stories, or are they holding back? I think they're there. And I think the holding back uh, side of it will be a little bit yes. Uh, and it's, it's going to be societal for this. Uh, even then, as you alluded back to when the Betty and Barney Hill story, you, you're talking about at a time that there was a lot of segregation and things. Yeah. Uh, so you can imagine, even back then, uh, if an African-American person at that time frame would have seen a UFO, he's not going to walk into the local police station because you had a lot of issues there. He's not going to go to some of the organizations and say, oh, by the way. Yeah. I, you know, you're talking. They're extraterrestrials. Yeah, I see them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They. I was out there, and and something abducted me. And so you're talking a don't pass go, don't collect two hundred dollars, straight to jail. You going straight to jail. You know. So that's the ticket. So imagine those stories. But yet, I think that we were on the same military boats, the bases, some of the same stories. We were there in presence, and and so there lies that. Uh, there's another thing. And then it goes into some religious aspects of it as well in our community. But I think the Betty and Barney Hill uh, really was significant in history because it did um, have an interracial couple, uh, which definitely the extraterrestrials didn't mind and probably had nobody to should have mind. Right. And nobody else should have mind. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, I think their story was authentic. I think that. It did open the gap in the stories up. And then you got to understand, too, George, probably 
it was the best of the best available at the time. It was a great story. Yeah. And so why wouldn't somebody run with it? Oh, okay, we might have this African-American segment in it. But wait a minute, this is a, a great couple. Both of them were bona fide people, you know. And so therefore, let's look at this from a witness standpoint. And to back up what you said, when I was 21 years old, mm -hmm. I'm a radio reporter in Detroit, Michigan. I interviewed Dr. Benjamin Simon, okay. their psychiatrist, wow. who was in Boston. Okay. Pick up the phone. He answered, Dr. Simon, I'm interested in this UFO case. I was obsessed with these stories. And I said, can I interview you? He said, sure. I wish I still had the tapes with me. Wow. And I said specifically. Well, you archive yourself. We can just get the questions. Go are ahead. Barney and Betty Hill, did they lie to you mm. about this incredible experience? And he said, no. I don't know what happened to them. Okay. I don't know if they got abducted, but they believed they did. Mm. And they didn't lie about it to me. And that was the great story. And, and that's the point. And that's how I, uh, you know, approach my witnesses today. You have to take out all of the noise and begin to look at the individual themselves. And when you can do that, you can then begin to listen to their story objectively and then maybe put some emotion to it from their perspective and come up with some suggestions that, you know what, this might have happened to these people because, you know, look at this. Look how it has disturbed them. This is not something you're just going to make up and wake up in the morning and say, not only were an interracial couple, but let's bring something else into the mix. Oh, we, we were abducted and studied. And, and so, therefore, and with that intelligence, and I think Barney had a high IQ, and she worked oh, with yeah. Super, yeah, so I'm that sure that don't tell you to go make some stuff up, and then all of a sudden, you know, you're either going to be ridiculed for years or now. But then today, let's take us in today, I think it's vindication with all this happening now. We I can now so. go back and say, oh, that raised the probability to 99.9. I told you so. I told you so, yes. You brought up religion mm -hmm. and religion and your work in the ET field mm -hmm. had an effect on you personally. Yes. Helped cause a divorce. What happened? Well, I think, you know, even though I will say our issues had issues, but let's add that to the issue. This pushed it over the edge. It pushed right? it because I was now going toward the fact that I wanted to make a career out of this. And you got to have a conversation. So you think about all the people I've interviewed, just, you know, They've told their spouses their the, the most intimate secrets, where the, where the codes are, everything except for an extraterrestrial experience. So I take my wife, who was a little younger, about 15 years younger, and we, her religious background was pretty intact in Christianity. And here I am saying, OK, look, I want to get into ufology and, and be full time, full time. Full time. And, and she's already thought this was a cuckoo idea okay uh in fact it was to a point i had three stepchildren sons in the house and, and i used to step at night and try to watch the ancient aliens because i had to make sure i don't watch this during the day and the channel was turned off of it when she awakened just uh -huh. didn't know okay and the boys were not subject to that although they had interest too and i didn't understand as i do now from a cultural lens of what's happened and that's really how everything is based on our experiences so she grew up where, uh, you know, the story of Jesus Christ, in which I was raised Christian as well. Sure. You didn't deny that. No, I didn't deny it. And, and, but the, the stories of it. And for her, it's just, 
don't, I don't want you watching that stuff. I don't want to hear about this stuff. So imagine being in a relationship and some of your most enthusiastic things that you want to talk to your partner about, right. you cannot. And so you find refuge in finding organizations like MUFON. That's what drove me to MUFON. You know, looking and for. You drifted apart, didn't you? We drifted apart. And I remember distinctively one of the days that I had set forward. It was like three weeks in advance. And I was like, I'm going to my first MUFON meeting. I'm going to meet some people to talk about UFOs. And I'm telling you, I was like, and, and I mean, I gave her the whole plan. Right. Three it's weeks in advance. candy store. The, the, yeah. The two weeks, you notice. The one week notice, the seven day notice down to the three days to the maybe tomorrow I'm going. And just so happens we was down to one car. And uh, I never forget this moment. Uh, it was on a Sunday and she went to church with her sister um, in the car, in the car, the only car that we had at the time. And I knew she was going to she normally would get back around noon. And okay. I was going to be a little late. But you're talking late to a meeting that I just. That was enough for me. I just need to get you there. You wanted to get there. Yes. And so here she is, the phone rang, and I'm hearing something in the background, some, you know, cleaning, Mitch, they were out to eat, and I was just floored. And I said, where are you? Well, I'm out to such and such. So, okay, that's fine. I'm going to deal with this. They didn't have Uber in those days, No, right? they did Well, they did, but I just wasn't really, it wasn't. I mean, I'm married. This is my wife. This is our car. Yeah. I don't need Uber. You know, I just need what bring the car home like we talked about. So and I asked her why. And she says, because I don't want you fooling around with that stuff and all of that. Oh, wow. And I was so depleted at the moment. And I just said to myself, OK, and here's what was about to happen. I sat back and I said, you got to be the good husband. This is mentally affecting your wife. And yeah. so give it up. Don't do this. Take the high road. Give up this pursuit because this is in the house. And so unfortunately, we separated a few months later because, like I said, we already had some issues. Right. But this is just this was icing on the cake. That was it. It was that. And so ultimately, I was separated. And when you separate, you liberated. You like I'm going to do all the things I want to do because you're thinking the relationship is not going to come back anyway. And so I took the exam for MUFON, passed it, um, and then later on uh, went on and started one of the largest UFO clubs. Good for you. Now I do a, a you know, weekly show. I got a podcast that's in 59 countries. And you're happy. And I'm happy, um, you know, TV show, you know. But I'm also giving back to the community of this, okay? And imagine had I not done that. You never would have been satisfied. Never would. I, it would have been the most thing in life that you would ever have is look back on regret. The Bible definitely shows some type of extraterrestrial presence. Yes. Whether it's fallen angels, mm -hmm. Ezekiel's wheel, there's something there. Mm -hmm. On Gaia's Deep Space Program, they talked about the Bible and ETs. Mm -hmm. When we're reading the Bible, we always have to look to the first page to see which version of the Bible are you reading? The New International Version? The New New International Version? The King James Version? The St. Jerome Version? Which version are you reading? Because the language is going to be different. So if we were to write, for example, the E.T. version of the Bible, we'd go back to every story where it says, and the heavens opened and realized they're, they're talking about a stargate. What else could be the heavens opening but the, a rip in the fabric of space-time? 
And so this is a way we can start to connect with what the ancients were actually seeing or experiencing. Their language was different from ours. They would say, the heavens open. We would say, oh, a stargate open. It's as much a function of language that separates us from true understanding as it is anything else. There are so many references of extraterrestrial contact in the Bible. There are 70 verses describing clouds as vehicles, 15 verses describing pillars, 10 verses describing dwellings as vehicles, 160 verses describing lights and fire as vehicles. There's 17 verses describing spinning wheels and also 22 verses describing dark and shining objects as vehicles. There's also 37 verses of various objects in the Bible that describe UFOs as flying furnaces and burning bushes. So as you can see, based off of the vocabulary of the people of those times, they can only use words that would help them describe what we would call nowadays UFOs. The Bible begins with the book of Genesis, and it ends with the book of Revelations. In between are dozens of stories that reference what many scholars suggest may be extraterrestrial phenomena. That's exciting. It's very exciting. And I think for me, in the Bible that started my journey uh, was the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 26. And it read, let's make man in our image, our image, in the likeness of ourselves. Now, I went to school. So at some point, I was told that I was poor. <laughs> and so I was like, what is this? You know, wait a minute. So this is not talking about a singular God here. This is a possibility of God's. And that's also one of the questions I get all the time, George. People are like, what do the aliens look like? What are they? And I say, well, what do we look like them? That's right. <laughs> you know, that's right. and that's the question. And I think even further now, I, I like to tend to go one more step, George. And that is when people say, oh, we're alone in the universe. And I say, now the question you should be asking me, oh, we're alone here on Earth. Let's bring it down now. Because we don't have to go out there to look for them. They're here, you know. And, and so they've been here. They've been here, our waters, you know, all of those things. So. What do you think of the theory of the late Zechariah Sitchin, that the Anunnaki came down mm -hmm. here, seeded whatever creatures might have been on the planet at the time, mm -hmm. and here we are? Possible? Well, it's possible, because in his books, you know, he talks about uh, how they created us and, and and I think he was saying one of the goddess at that time said well hey well, let's create the slave race or whatever and the answer was what you seek is already here and so let's go and, and at that time we weren't able to procreate which is what he was saying in the story right. uh, and so now you look at the fact that um, you look at that Anunnaki stories you look at all of those the, the Noah the ark and, and the stories. And then, of course, you kind of coordinate that with what the Bible says. And so you, you find some truth in this, and then you find some truth in those stories, and you begin to, uh, let's bring this together, because the possibilities are high that there was some ancient gods, there was ancient civilizations. It's exciting. It's very exciting. I can understand why you're so into this. It's it's. It gets in your blood, doesn't it? It's a rabbit hole that we can't get to the bottom. And so it's so much life has so much ceilings, right? But in this case, we have no ceilings. There's no, it's like, what are we going to know tomorrow is, is, is what really drives you is what we know today. We just learned yesterday and that was exciting enough, but what are we going to know tomorrow? If Congress asked you to come testify, mm -hmm. would you go? In a heartbeat. 
In fact, I'll sleep there. Well, yeah, I'll do that <laughs> Apple thing and put a tent and be out in front, you know, and everything. Who is Robert Jones' friend? Robert Jones' friend is, I think, is a phenomenal story. He is one of the uh, original Tuskegee Airmen. It's not the experiment, okay. but one of the pilots. He was in that group with Tuskegee Heroes. War heroes. War heroes. Uh, and, now, of course, he was at a time that African-American pilots was not uh, seen to be or accepted or accepted in the status quo of the Air right. Force or what became the Air what Force. What times that we have, huh? Yes. I keep and, about those. But yet, one of the highly respected uh, fighter groups, okay? Uh, but then you're still talking about what they went through uh, as the segregation side of life, okay? Um, but then over the years... I started making some more discovery as I, you know, read his story. And it wasn't even UFO related until I got to a point where he was over Project Blue Book. And I was like, are you kidding me? You know, from 1958 to 1963. But I still thought about this, George. I, I, I kept thinking, hmm. Now, we're talking about a time that this phenomenon was still known you're talking about Stan Freeman said this is where ufology come from. So the military would say, hey, that person is a ufologist, meaning that's their code word for the joke, right? So let's think about this person. Let's think about the phenomenon. And I'm just going out on a limb here, okay? And why would they do this? Well, at the time, you're talking UFOs were a joke. Nobody's going to hang their career upon it. But they needed to really have a deeper dive. And they already had Blue Book, they, you know, Professor Hyatt. But then if we're going to ruin somebody's career, let's pick him, you know. Why not? Why not? And so he's African-American. But if you go through the stories of history, we don't hear that. That's what really drove me into this idea. I even took the time and pitched an idea um, to one of the producing companies and so a network is going to pick it up. We're going to do something called a minority report. And it's going to be me going all over back over Zimbabwe, different places, some celebrities, different people in the African-American community, getting that perspective based on religion, all of those things and how we perceive it. But also dig up some history of stories that have never been told, but was right there in the timeline. But because of what was happening in history, they were never going to be told. You're a great investigator. I could tell already. I'm just, I'm an enthusiast. I'm just, you love this. Yeah. I mean, investigation is just the title, but it's the blood. It's the, we just want the answers. I, I call them the big secret keepers. I, I just want them to tell us the truth. Like he said in a clip, we got to get curious. It's curiosity. That's all it is. I think we're getting close to disclosure. Yes. I don't think I ever would have said that 10 years ago. <laughs> Probably. But I think yeah. we're getting close. You agree? I think, no, I don't agree that we're going to get to the answers. I think we're getting closer to a new narrative, George. And we, mm. it's, it's disguised under disclosure. Our military don't do nothing without a plan. We cannot believe. They're this. not stupid. They're not stupid. They're not just loose lips sink ships, right? They're not letting some of this stuff out unintentionally. Something is happening. We That's why we got to get curious and don't take the narrative of disclosure that we're getting and still get curious and ask why, because there's always a plan. 
They don't do anything. We we have to know that. They don't do anything without a plan. You know Richard Dolan, great mm-hmm. UFO. Oh, my God, yeah. He was on Gaia's Open Mind show with Regina Meredith yeah. talking about his thoughts about disclosure. Okay. How many cases have to come out? It's been 50 years. Well, if you, know, if you go back as far as Roswell, 60 years, but yeah. uh, more, that That's these right. cases have been coming. At what point do, does the government, the military, some official agencies say, okay, right, it's real. It I mean, makes, this is becoming absurd now. I, I, I agree with you. A couple thousand people in the desert, they all know it. We're at a point where the emperor is wearing no clothes. Yeah. Someone's going to make the point and say, look, he's not wearing anything at all. We're, we're just about there, it seems to me. In other words, we've had 20 years of Internet and really 10 years of a true Internet where we have all of this. Right. We have a web. We have uh, Guy TV. We yeah. have YouTube. We have Skype. We have all Facebook, all of these ways that we communicate with, all in the last decade, really. Mm-hmm. So it's all new. And I think what we can see is that this has had a dramatic, profound effect on our civilization. Mm-hmm. Um, but what we have is the old paradigm is hanging on by their fingernails. And that old paradigm is one of denial of the obvious. I was going to say the truth, but really denial of the obvious. Right. I think it's more apt. So that, um, but they're still hanging. You know, there's a, the expression, there's nothing so powerful as an idea whose time has come. Right. But the, the, uh, there's another part of that, which is the second most powerful thing is an idea that refuses to go away. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's where they're at. So they're hanging on. That paradigm is, is still... There, but I, I think what we're seeing is a real battle here between the the old and the new. I totally agree, and it seems to me that events like this, there are many UFO congresses of different kinds around the world. It seems like events like this will ultimately themselves disappear once there's disclosure and it's out there. Then the gathering will happen in a different way. We're going to up the subject right. matter to something maybe more to do with consciousness than this event occurred, this event occurred, and this event occurred. Maybe. I think, um, yes, I think that'll be part of it. I, I suspect there'll be a lot of political repercussions of this. I think there'll be a lot of energy repercussions of this. We're talking the world AD after disclosure. I wrote a book yeah, on it. Yeah, we, I, we I talked a lot about of, that. Right. And I think... Go over so, some of that again for anyone who didn't see our last interview. Well, a number of years ago, I co-authored a, a book with a fellow named Bryce Zabel, and uh, we called it AD after disclosure. And it's really our attempt to look into the future uh, as a think tank would. Uh, you know, in a world in which UFO secrecy ended, mm-hmm. A, how might it end? And we try to puzzle that one through in different ways. But then really more significantly, B, what then? What is what is the world likely to be like after the disclosure of a UFO ET reality? He is so enthusiastic, Rob. Oh, man, he's one of the best. I, and, and I have all his books and everything. And as you he alluded there is what I was saying. They get... They know they're losing the control of this. So they're going to have to have a plan on how do we stay on top of Absolutely. this narrative. And that's why I said that even though they're disclosing information to us, there, there's some type of disclosure happening. I truly believe there's still a strategic plan on where they're going to take it to the next level. Because you, you're talking about the new space economy. You're talking about if there is a space economy and we are a civilization moving to space to work daily. What's the possibility if you're looking out the window on your way to work and you see some type of extraterrestrial? So uh, the plan is there. Uh, I think that disclosure is we just had a new paradigm. That's what I said earlier, where you got younger people who are kids and now are going to be in Congress with a whole new attitude. Yeah. And so that's where the conflict. But then the military still thinks they run the show and they don't really have to 
abide by any rules anyway. You're a UFO investigator. You're a YouTuber. Mm-hmm. You've got a podcast going. What's next for you, Rod? Dream is to someday, just one moment, and get the phone call and says, you know what? George needs you to stand in for his show. <laughs> oh, coast to coast. You never know. You never know. It's beyond belief, right? It is beyond belief. Is beyond Thank belief. you for being on Beyond Belief. No, it, it was an honor. And and believe me, I would trade this moment. Uh, it's just one of the greatest moments of my life. It's fantastic having a UFO investigator like this who is so enthusiastic about getting us the truth about the extraterrestrial presence. I'm George Nori, and thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Well, we have our our awareness beyond belief times. How many times I'm going to pass this talking stick to you, Rainbird? Here it comes, and what's the qualls right there on that talking stick? Here it comes. Oh, I got it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. It was fun. It was fun today. And, yeah, here we are. And let's do this. <laughs> Lots of gratitude for where we are and where we're going and what's going on. And for everyone that's doing this, <laughs> let's do it. The Sarah now. And uh thank you again so much for the weekend. And I'm passing this coffee sticker with you, Mama. Have you got anything? Here it comes. Okay. What you got? This is Alan Watts. Don't take life too seriously. (laughs) Okay. That's good. Here we go. I might have played it. I can't remember. Oh, that's all right. We can always listen again. It's coming. I hope. The only thing that could be bad is to take it too seriously. In other words, uh, if you take the, the fundamental idea that the whole universe, all its forms... All the forms of biology, all the different species, the giraffes, the rhinoceroses, the baboons, the the roses, the uh, eucalyptus trees, etc. Everything is a form of biological game. It's a dancing thing going on, different styles. And we wouldn't want to say to any of those things, you shouldn't have them. Because they are all the great Maya, the great illusion, the great play. And so the polis, the human community organized with division of labor, with classes, with uh, 
uh, all the complications of economics and banking and transportation and so on and so on and so on. All this is a particular kind of play. And each form of it is as legitimate as, say, different kinds of dancing, a waltz, a rumba, a foxtrot, a frog, all are perfectly legitimate forms of dancing. So the universe does this. But the important thing to understand what the sannyasin, the shramana, the man who goes outside the pale, is saying is, please people who are in the pale, I, my existence reminds you that you're only playing. Don't take it too seriously. Because if you take it too seriously, you're going to start destroying each other and fighting and uh, uh, saying this city against that city, this country against that country, so on. Because you're too involved. So, every sane society allows a certain number of people to deviate. Monks, uh, some sort of outsiders. It says, you don't have to join. You don't have to play the game. A society which is insane and unsure of itself cannot allow that to happen. It says everybody must join. Everybody must work. Everybody must belong. And then freedom disappears. Because as a matter of fact, the, 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 the anxiety is if you say, well, uh, you don't have to join. There are conditions under which you can go out. Then a lot of people get together and say, well, what would happen if everybody quit? I ask, what would happen if everybody decided to take American Airlines Flight 3 to New York tomorrow? Well, they just wouldn't get on. I mean, uh, and, and, and they won't anyhow. Because a lot of people aren't interested in that. Are not ready to quit. That doesn't mean that they're in, inferior. The acorn is not inferior to the oak tree. It's a potential oak, but as an acorn, it's just as beautiful and lovely a thing as a full-grown oak is. A baby is as lovely as an adult, sometimes a great deal more lovely. So a person who is in a beginning state of evolution is just as marvelous as a person in a high state of evolution. Just as much a manifestation of the divine dance. So, when a society allows a certain number of people to withdraw, it should have no anxiety that everybody will want to withdraw. Because some people are absolutely fascinated in, in competition, in being involved, in playing the game. They should be. It's fine for them. But we are witnessing in the United States today a... Uh, a great motivation for withdrawal. It's simply because we haven't provided for it. We haven't... Uh, there's no opportunity for a Protestant to become a monk or a Jew. The Catholics have half-heartedly provided for this sort of thing. And there have to be people who uh, stand outside the game.
and do not identify themselves with a class, with a name, with an ego, with a persona, with a role. Thank you, everyone. It's that time. I will... It's that time. I will leave you with Tuesday's Aurora Ray message. And she says here, humanity will be able to live much longer than now because of changes in your physical body structure. You will be able to do miraculous things with your mind. We've been listening to all kinds of things just tonight that you currently consider impossible, such as telepathy, manifesting what you want, and manifesting manifesting what you want out of thin air. And this world of being galactic humans um, is becoming mainstream in a, a lot quicker way than that last gentleman was seemingly saying. And I don't believe that the military have the whole say-so. What do you say, Rama? I would say that there, there's more to this story than there's time to talk about. It's about love. <laughs> okay, and we love everyone. And thank you. Uh, let's have good vibrations and see you. On the bridge tonight and in your dreams and come to Cheryl's call. Uh, the meditation works uh, when a small group of us come together in a, in a very great and positive way. So real quick. Her number is 425-436-6260. And the PIN code is 946-7441-POUND. And tomorrow evening and Monday evening, uh, 7 o'clock Mountain, 9 o'clock Eastern, that'll help. Uh, and we'll see you there and in your, in your dreams and until we meet again, aloha, mahalo nui loa, 13 thank yous, honey in the heart, no evil, and live long and prosper. Namaste. Aloha, everyone.